This is Chris. Welcome to episode number 28 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm going to do my best not to uh, be hiccuping the entire show. Um, Growing up, my mother would say that if you woke up with hiccups, you would have them all day. And uh, I don't know if there's any empirical science to that, but uh, you might be able to imagine how my day has been (laughs) just by saying that. Uh, Today, we're going to be discussing New Mutants, volume four, number three. And uh, New Mutants was at, like, the tippity-top of my favorites uh, for the first couple of waves of the uh, Dawn of X books here, but I heard that this one might might be a little bit different. Um, I assumed that it would be all about the Shi'ar and Deathbird and Lalandras and all that. I think we're about to have a rug yanked out from under us. Uh, let's hop right into it. As stated, this is New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 3, had a February 2020 cover date. The story's called To the Grave, written by Ed Brisson, or Brisson, art by Flaviano, colors by Carlos Lopez, letters by VCs Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman, edits Bisa White-Sapolsky, cover price $3.99, and went on sale December 11th, 2019. And as I just alluded to, we don't quite pick up where we left off last issue. In fact, we're not anywhere near Shi'ar space, uh, which uh, is usually something I'd consider to be a good thing, but uh, makes me wonder just what are we in for here? So we're on Krakoa, and we're with Armor and Glob Herman, who are discussing how they felt upon finding out they were mutants. It almost seems mean for Armor to talk about how she felt. She says she feels like her life was over, or she initially felt that way. Considering, I mean, she still looks like a normal human being and not a uh, chewed-up piece of bubblegum with organs like Mr. Herman. Now we cut to them hanging out at Carousel, where, you know, nobody seems all that bothered that their leader was recently shot in the head. Uh, They are all dancing. And uh, while Armor laments the fact that not everyone who was summoned to Krakoa has taken up the invitation... Glob decides to break away and dances a little bit with Pixie. So, you ready for three comic-less pages? Let's do it. First, our roll call. We've got Armor, Glob, Sage, Boom Boom, and whatever a Maxime and Manon are. Then our double page spread of creds, and uh, it does find us with a whole new creative team than we're used to for New Mutants. And once comics return, we rejoin Armor. And she's hanging out with Sage at one of the monitor stations, or whatever they are. They're reconciling invites with arrivals, and they're doing so alphabetically by surname. You know, Bishop, Lucas is here. Blair, Allison is also here. Bohusk, Barnell, however, is not. Now, Barnell Bohusk is, of course, Beak from the Morrison run. He's the one who knocked up and married Angel. Not Warren Worthington, Angel Salvador, who totally wasn't created just to confuse us every time she was mentioned. Actually, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's exactly why they named her that, but let's move on. So, Beak and Angel never answered Professor Xavier's invite. And this troubles Armor for 
reasons. I don't really remember her being all that tight with Beak. But in fairness, it's probably been a dozen or so years since they might have occupied the same panel space, though, right? Anyway, Armor wants to investigate. Sage doesn't give a rat's ass what she does so long as she leaves her alone. Now we follow Armor back to the new X-Men house, where she and Glob talk about Beak some more. We learn that he's living in Nebraska on a farm. Glob, he's not really into this. He's too distracted by thoughts of Pixie dancing in his head. Armor tells him just to ask her out already, before thinking she might have figured out why, uh, why Bohusk and company chose to remain off-island. And so we stick with Armor for a bit. We follow her again. This time, she heads to the New Mutants' house. And she finds them, well, not home, of course, because they're in space. I feel like more of the Krakoans ought to know this, right? None of them seem to. It's like, hey, where's Doug? Well, he's in space. Well, where's Doug? He's in space. We've heard this so many times. Anywho, Armor is looking for not Doug, but Sunspot. But she only finds Boom Boom, who is busy rifling through Sunspot's things. And I gotta say, aesthetically here, it's still so weird for me to see Boom Boom with long hair. I, I, I never would have recognized her if it wasn't clear, she wasn't clearly labeled as who she is. It just looks like a totally different character. Now, Armor shares the deets of her pending trip to Nebraska and reveals she was here to see about securing some Krakoan meds from Roberto. Tabitha says she'll go with them, but for whatever reason, she doesn't. She does, however, help Hisako score the medicine, though. From here, an info page. And this shows the uh, little cluster community of the young mutants, the uh, Academos Habitat or the Sextant. It's kind of set up like Fraternity Row or something. Uh, we've got the Delta House, which is occupied by the members of Generation X. The Zeta House, which is occupied by the new X-Men. I'm guessing the Academy X version. Uh, Beta House is uh, occupied by the Frost Academy, so I'm assuming Hellions. Uh, the Pod is where the Five live. That's, you know, Hope, Elixir, uh, Tempest, uh, Proteus, and Egg. Life Death is the communal area, which sounds like a really cool place to hang out. The Sigma House is the Jean Grey School, of which I can't remember a damn soul. Um, the, maybe it's Brew. Is Brew one of them? Maybe it's him. Uh, Omega House is Redacted. We don't know who lives there. And Alpha House is the New Mutants. Uh, this is actually a pretty cool idea. I, I think this is actually an, a helpful info page. I enjoyed it. From here, we jump to two days later, and we rejoin Armor and Glob. They've secured those meds, and they're headed toward a portal. They're stopped by a pair of gray-skinned children, and this is Maxime and Manon, neither of whom I have the foggiest idea who they are. Apparently, they have the power of influence, and they assure Armor that they can get Beacon Angel to return with them to Krakoa. Armor decides to allow them to accompany them to Nebraska, however makes it clear that she doesn't want Beacon Angel coerced into coming back with them in any way. It has to be their decision. Bada-bing, bada-boom, our quartet arrives in Pilger, Nebraska, at the foot of a sprawling farm. They knock on the door, and, duh, it's Beacon Angel's place, of course. And they've got something like a half dozen kids, some with wings, some without. Um, it doesn't look like Angel's got her... Like, really gross fly wings anymore, though. Um, or maybe they just fold up real tight. Anyway, it's a nice little reunion involving people I never realized actually cared about one another. Um, though, in fairness, Glob was in Zorn's special class with Beacon Angel, so there's that. Uh, armor wasn't even created at that point, but what are you going to do? 
Now, once all the tea kettles are settled, Beak reveals that they did, in fact, receive Xavier's invite, but chose to remain in Nebraska. Armor expresses that she understands, and uh, what's more, she has a pretty good idea why they stayed, and so she asks if she can see him. Next thing we know, we're in a room with Beak's folks. His father's in a bed strapped to all manner of machine. Oddly, his mother refers to her son as Beak, rather than Barnell. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? I don't know. Anywho, Mr. Bohusk is suffering with something called Taylor Ellis disease. And this is apparently a rare form of dementia. However, if you do one of those quoted Google searches for it, it only brings up this issue. So uh, that's pretty damn rare, isn't it? Uh, so, Armor injects Mr. B with the Krakoan cure-all and lickety-split, he's cured. From here, we jump to an info page, and it's more on Taylor Ellis disease, with the Latin name Munis Motricium Dementia. And uh, Munis Motricium means motor function. Uh, Googling for that doesn't bring up any results either. In fact, if you Google for that, it tries to correct it to Munis Matricium Dementia, which leads us to results showing pseudo-dementia. So I don't know if this is a real thing. Um... Maybe it is. Maybe it's just that rare. Um, I couldn't find anything on Taylor Ellis either, who's apparently a uh, fantasy writer, who this was named after, or a sci-fi writer. Couldn't find anything, but, uh, uh, you know, I I looked with quotes, (laughs) which is about as much as I can do. Uh, Anyway, real or not, this sounds like one scary disease. A very high mortality rate. Not good stuff. So... Dad's cured. We rejoin our heroes later on as they have a coffee break and a chat. Armor tells Beak and Angel that their kids will love it on Krakoa, which causes Beak to peek out the window to see his kids surrounded by a bunch of folks. He asks Armor if uh, maybe she brought some others with them, but she didn't. We get a look outside and we see the Bohusk brood being rounded up by some... like really generic looking hillbillies. I mean, these guys look like complete geeks. It's just... It ain't cool. Um, Now, they're threatening to, you know, beat the freaks like you do. Uh, Angel freaks out and blames Armor for bringing them to her door. And so, Armor, Glob, and the Grey Kids head outside to face down the bad guys. Armor takes point as one of the Hicks launch a friggin' rocket at her. Uh, She's nailed, which causes her psionic armor to vanish. You see... This missile was of the power-dampening variety. And I feel like we're getting a whole lot of power-dampening hoodoo in these Dawn of X books. Is it just me? Or am I imagining this? But it seems like we're getting this often. Uh, The issue ends kind of out of nowhere here. Um, It doesn't really feel like a cliffhanger so much as it feels like they might have ran out of pages. Uh, The lead hillbilly, the one with the the most colorful... (laughs) Ensemble, he tells Armor that they're going to take it inside so they can negotiate. So I guess we're getting another issue of this. Yay? Eh? <laughs> yeah, that's New Mutants number three, and. Whew. Not what I was expecting. Um, next, we're going to be discussing X Force number three, but uh, let's talk about this. Um. I would like to start our little talking time segment by taking this opportunity to uh, formally apologize to Deathbird. I was hoping, beyond hope, that I wouldn't have to see you today, but at this point I kind of wish I had. 
Deathbird, I am sorry for doubting you. It'll never ha... Okay, it'll probably happen again. Just not today. Uh, I'm sorry, Deathbird. From honest and true. From the bottom of my heart. So what in the world was this? Um, This felt very much to me like a throwaway issue of uh, New X-Men. That is, you know, New X-Men colon Academy X. Even down to the more cartoony art. It felt so out of place when compared to, like, basically everything else we've been reading up to this point for the uh, Hox Pox Docs, right? A real throwback, but throwing back to an era that, in my opinion, didn't really matter. Uh, a lot of page filler back in those days. Um, not, not great. Let's start with the good, though. Let's start with the good. The premise. The premise here, I gotta say, is, is pretty neat. Um... You gotta figure it would stand to reason that there would uh, there would be some mutants out there who chose, for whatever reason, not to take Professor Xavier up on his invitation to Krakoa. Putting together a team of mutants that scout those characters out to find out why? Yeah, that could be interesting, I think. Um, I feel like having armor so focused on Beak was a little bit weird and a little bit forced. Um, though, perhaps I am forgetting some key story where they became... Pen pals or best friends or people who traded their sack lunches in the Xavier cafeteria. I don't know. But uh, if we push the force, force nature of this event in particular aside, I really dig the, like the concept of uh, you know, just scouting the mutants and finding out why a particular character might have chose not to go to Krakoa. And I figure Armor armor as a point-of-view character is as good as any. Um, she's relatable. She's fine. It's not a big deal. Um, let's talk Tabitha. Now, Tabitha ransacking Roberto's things was kind of odd. Um, I don't know if this was included as an attempt at comedy, or if we're going to be getting, like, a Tabitha's stealing stuff subplot. To be completely honest, I'm not sure which would be worse. Uh, because, A, it wasn't funny... And B, I don't want to waste a whole issue on a New Mutants intervention with Boom Boom. That that doesn't sound fun in the slightest. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the attempts at comedy in the Hox Pox Docs books here, and uh, another swing and a miss. Um, not great. Um, let's talk about the cure. Now, this is a piece of the puzzle that makes me almost a little bit uncomfortable, because it raises so many questions about the roles of superheroes in these comic book universes. Like, all those things we're not supposed to think about, to my mind, anyway. Um, Like, you know, if Superman or an X-Man could stop wars with a word, why don't they, right? If, if, If superheroes can cure diseases, why don't they? Here, we have heroes curing diseases which... I'm not quite sure how that makes me feel. Um, you know, my, my grandmother, she suffered with dementia for the better part of the last decade of her life. And I mean, I get fiction, and I try not to be precious when it comes to things like this, but I don't know, I think I'd be lying if I said it didn't get under my skin a little bit. It feels um, almost like a disservice. And uh, I don't know. And... And I, and again, I don't know if this, uh, if this, you know, Ellis disease is a real thing or not. Uh, maybe someone can let me know. But uh, what it led me to was a bit of a rabbit hole that reminded me why I chose psychology as my major in the first place. Um, 
because you have this pseudo-dementia, and then you have a lot of like the power of positive thinking and the positive of ne- the power of negative thinking as well. And uh, that, to me, was a big catalyst in my choosing psychology as my major when I returned to school in 2011. I believe very strongly in uh, in the power of cognitive thinking, uh, just a, a cognitive psychology. Um, and how the way you frame things, the way you view things, has a has a larger impact than one might imagine. Um, you know, let's I talk about uh, my grandmother. You're not to get you know too personal on this show. I try to keep this one more material based, but it felt as though we all knew there was something going on, but it wasn't until we got the the diagnosis that acceptance came and that's not acceptance from the family that was acceptance by her and uh you know when you accept something as being as being something that will change your life and that you can't fight against that's kind of when you give up and i don't know if this disease here was uh, was meant as a nod to that um Frankly, I don't know enough about it. My my uh, academic career kind of shifted from, you know, pure brain science to, you know, other realms of psychology in, in the course of a decade. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is a power of positive thinking sort of thing. I don't know if this is a an allusion to something we're supposed to be picking up on. Um, I don't know, but I, I do feel... You know, personally, I do feel like there is a lot of power in the way you frame the way you think of things. Um, it's it's funny. I uh, in you know forty years on this planet, I have never gotten an IQ test. You know, I've refused. I've I've had offers, and you know, you, you sometimes do the uh, you know, you partner up in in higher education, and uh, and you try to do the. Uh, the profiles and stuff like that, and I've always refused to get my IQ tested because, to me, that's something I don't think I should know. You know, I don't think I should know if... Because to me, it's not going to be... It's not going to be a good thing either way. Because if I find out what my IQ is and it tells me that I'm that I'm low, then I'm going to feel like I have an excuse. And suddenly it's going to be like a self-fulfilling prophecy and I'm going to devolve or maybe not so much devolve, but I will underachieve. And on the, you know, conversely, if I find out my number is astronomically good, I'm going to feel like I've been underachieving my entire life. (laughs) So it's just not a good thing either way, but that's, you know, a rabbit hole I wasn't expecting to go down. So that, that might be the best part of this issue is that it caused me to do a little bit of a introspection and a reflection on on my uh, academic career. But don't know how I feel about it in the context of this book. I get that it's that's kind of the deal, you know? Uh, that's kind of... That's kind of the whole thing that Krakoa can offer. So we gotta take it, right? Uh, as far as the story, um, sticking with the cure, I feel like the cure might have worked a little too fast. Like, it really is a miracle cure, right? Seeing how quickly it worked made me uh, want to, you know, run for my umbrella to, to dodge them fallen shoes. Uh, still, though, uh, solid, 
I guess, stuff here. Uh, at least it's building on the very premise of the Dawn of X era, so I can't really get mad at it, no matter how uncomfortable it might make me feel. Um, speaking of getting mad at things, let's, uh, let's go to the bad here. The Gang of Hillbillies. Come on. Haven't we seen this before, like, way too many damn times? This is just so tired. And it feels to me like something that would eat up like eight pages in a random issue of X-Men Unlimited or something. Um, from character designs, if we can even call it that, to the context, it's just so played out. Um, not not cool. And, and this might just be me projecting, or just uh, being the victim of past you know, uh, things like this uh, in, in X-Men comics. I feel like it's supposed to, we're supposed to think it's a new thing. You know, um, that reminds me of the first arc of the Joe Casey Uncanny X-Men run, where we were promised all these new things, and basically we got, like, a bald dude with a flamethrower trying to reenact the, uh, you know, the mutant massacre in London. (laughs) It was just like, this isn't, this isn't new, this isn't novel, this isn't forward-thinking, this is just more of the same crap. Um, then we have power-dampening missiles. Come on, isn't this like the fourth or fifth or sixth time that someone's been able to dampen a mutant power since we started this run? I mean, is there like another black market out there that we don't know about that sells power-dampening dealies by the truckload? Just so played out. Uh, Now, even, even with all the good things that I mentioned in this issue, it made me think a little bit. It was nice seeing some of these characters. Um... It really doesn't make me look forward to the next issue. Um, and it's got to be the weakest outing for this title yet on, on every front. Uh, the art. I mean, the art's clean and solid, but certainly not up to the standards of Rod Reese. And as mentioned, maybe a little bit too evocative of like the manga light throwaway era of Academy X. That might just be me, and that's fine. But... uh like I said, it's clean, but it's just not what I wanted from this issue. Gotta say, if Fallen Angels wants to keep its bottom slot in my rankings, it's got its work cut out for it this week. <laughs> I really didn't enjoy this. Um, this hasn't been a great week uh, for uh, the X-Books here. Um, I mean, this is, the, this is the fourth one of the number threes that we're discussing, and... Outside of Marauders, we're not getting a whole lot good, uh, which is reminding me of so much of the feedback that I was getting early on in this little uh, X-lapsed endeavor, where people were fawning over Hoxpox, as did I for a, a good portion of it, but warning me that the level of quality does not maintain through Dawn of X. Yeah, <laughs> I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that right now. I'm I'm still optimistic and hopeful, but I can't say as though I enjoyed this so much. It certainly wasn't the first two issues of New Mutants. Um, Yeah, (laughs) we'll just grin and bear it, and we'll keep going, I guess, right? Uh, Speaking of feedback, let's get to a letter from Damien. And he's going to be discussing another book we talked about, another number three. This is X-Men number three. And, of course, X-Men number three, the entire premise was the Golden Girls were picking Krakoan flowers, right? The old ladies who who uh, <laughs> just weren't very funny. Uh, Damien says, 
I remember when this issue came out, it was a case of the entire X-Men fandom saying, quote, is this a joke? I genuinely think we were meant to laugh. It was so ham-fisted. Even the fact that he, he used old lady names from the wrong generation. They're from my grandmother's era, but they're in their 60s and 70s. Yeah, this was a... That was a toughie. Um, uh, another swing and a miss when it comes to comedy. It just was not... It wasn't funny. <laughs> I don't know why I feel so bad saying that. Um, I, tr- I, I, The thing about me is I have trouble criticizing things that I know I can't do. You know, art, even if the art's not for me, even if the art is technically inferior to another artist, I still feel bad saying something like that because it's not something that I'm any good at. So I feel like I have no right same with comedy. Um, I might say a funny thing on accident every once in a while, but comedy is difficult. And uh, sometimes when you see someone trying and failing, you, you, you feel bad. <laughs> and I, I kind of did too. Um, it just felt so baity, the, uh, the old ladies there. It felt like it really wanted to be a meme. It was very, very baity of... Of perhaps an audience that doesn't exist, you know. Um, yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> this has been a weak week. Uh, <laughs> back to Damien. He says, talking of my era, because uh, we talked about you know when we were twelve. You know, we talked about uh, how comics and pop culture are great when you're twelve. And Damien had shared that 1986 was the year he was twelve. So we're going to touch on that here. He says, uh, "Talking of my era, you're right that the comics in 1986 are great, but I pretty much missed everything you mentioned. My first United U.S. comics were the Marvels with the 25th anniversary border, which were cover dated November 1986. So I started with the Mutant Massacre and the Avengers Under Siege storyline. Daredevil: Born Again had finished the month before." As for DC, I didn't discover them for another year coming in with Millennium. Mm. Well, the Marvel side of that was really good. Uh, the Mutant Massacre and uh, Under Siege. Um, uh, that's that's definitely up there with one of my fa- as one of my favorite Avengers stories. That was uh, something that I discovered by accident, um, far after the fact. Uh, 1986. I was six years old. I wasn't really reading comics uh, like I would be in a few years, but I did find a uh, like a bagged collection of that run of Avengers comics in, I think it was like a $5 box where uh, they just, you know, assorted arcs and storylines together. And I didn't know what they were. I just saw that they were older issues of Avengers and five bucks was a screaming deal to me at the time. And uh, I grabbed them and... Uh, yeah, I fell in love with that run, that uh, that arc. Uh, Under Siege is wonderful stuff. Uh, Born Again, another great um, great story there. That uh, and another one that I I discovered late, of course. Um, on, across the street at DC, you have Millennium. So uh, yeah, uh, Millennium, <laughs> not my favorite, uh, not my favorite at all. I had actually. I found Millennium in, I think, the same box that I found Under Siege in. Uh, it was at a, a local shop that was uh, putting together arcs. And I think I got that for $5 as well and just knew that it was a 
I knew that it was a big crossover event for DC, but I didn't know much more about it. And so I bought that, tried reading it, couldn't get into it at all. Um, kind of just put it away for a little while. A couple years later, I tried it again, couldn't get into it for, for you know, not for lack of trying, but I couldn't get into it. Then I started the blog at Chris's on Infinite Earths, and I decided, okay, screw it, <laughs> I'm covering Millennium. And wow, that was a tough, tough eight days to uh, to write about uh, Millennium because if you don't know about Millennium, it's an eight issue series where only like the first and the last issue mean anything. Uh, everything else alludes to events that happened in other books. Uh, Millennium is something like 20-something chapters, kind of like our X of Swords that's coming up, uh, where there is, of course, an eight-issue series of Millennium, but the other chapters play out in assorted DC comics. You know, you have Detective, Suicide Squad, Action. Every DC comic had a chapter of Millennium at the time, or at least that's how it felt. So you'd have to read everything to get anything out of it, because if you just read the eight-issue Millennium series... It would just give you footnotes to where the where the fun and cool stuff actually happens because the main Millennium series is not great. Um, we've actually got an episode of Weird Comics History that covers the entire Millennium <laughs> event, and uh, it's probably about four hours long. It's a long one, but uh, maybe worth checking out if uh, if you're interested in, in a refresher on Millennium. But uh, if you came into DC with Millennium and you stuck around, then Bless you. <laughs> I don't know that I would have been able to do the same. Uh, my introduction to DC was with the death of Superman, which uh, was when I was 12. So uh, that was a little bit uh, easier of a landing in this brave new universe than, uh, than it might have been with Millennium. Uh, now Damien wraps up his message with, uh, I'm all in for a year of Christmas stories. You could probably do it solely with the X-Men stories. They've got a whole lot of Christmases crammed into those ten years. So (laughs) that was uh, in regards to my mentioning a potential Christmas on Infinite Earths program that I I was kind of thinking about launching. I still still might. Um, I've got a lot of uh, new projects that are in the embryonic stages right now. Uh, I'm partnering up with some folks and... uh, uh, putting together a schedule right now, putting together, uh, working with like format and frequency, knowing when these, how often these episodes will come out, and how we will, how we'll format them basically. Um, but they will be coming soon. It'll be a late f- new fall season <laughs> for this channel. Um, just as a, uh, a teaser, uh, there will be some uh, new universe content uh, for you know Marvel's 25th anniversary uh, to play in with uh, what Damian just said. Uh, so there will be New Universe, there will be ElfQuest stuff, there will be Maze Agency stuff, there might even be some Legion of Superheroes stuff that are, that'll uh, that'll be sprinkled throughout our uh, monthly offerings. So look forward to that. Um, I hope uh, I hope you all are too. That, that sounds like it's going to be a great deal of fun. But uh, maybe we'll get some Christmas stuff peppered in there as well. But I think that is where we'll leave it today. Uh... The weakest issue of New Mutants, I can only hope that 
the second part of this, and, and hopefully the final part of this story, is a little bit better. But <laughs> we will see as we get there. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. As I've mentioned a couple times now, I've gotten back into the swing at Cosmic T-Mill on Twitter, trying to uh, trying to share out some stuff from the archives to uh, get some fresh ears and eyes on some content they may not have known existed. So uh, we'll see how that works out. Hopefully, uh, hopefully folks are digging it. Hopefully I'm not annoying people <laughs> and overflowing their, uh, their timelines, but... Uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's nice for me to uh, be able to uh, to go back through the archives personally and uh, and pick out some some treats for for the new listeners. So I'm having a good time with that. Uh, you can find all the show notes and the stuffs at chrisoninfiniteearth.com. Xlapse has its own page at xlapse.chrisoninfiniteearth.com. You can find us on Facebook at '90s X Men. Um, what else? The audio archives that are that are they are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You can find thousands of hours of audio for thousands of hours of listening. So if you have a uh, I don't know trip to the moon coming up, you know you you might have some stuff to listen to for your trip. Uh, other than that, I think that's uh, where we'll leave it today. Uh, one more huge thank you to everyone for uh, listening and hanging out and uh, sharing your time with me and uh, and reaching out very very much appreciated uh but until next time when we will be discussing x-force number three i will uh, talk to you again real soon see ya Hello, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode number 33 of X-Lapsed. Hard to believe, but now we are just about a third of the way to uh, episode 100, or I guess episode 99 uh, more accurately, but it's amazing how fast time goes when you're uh, well, when you're not paying attention, right? Today we're going to be following up with a series that kind of, in my opinion, dropped the ball a little bit with its third issue, uh, 
we're going into the fourth issue of New Mutants, Volume 4. Uh, this had a February 2020 cover date. The story is called Fast and Furious, written by Ed Brisson with art by Marco Fila. Fila? Maybe. Uh, colors, Carlos Lopez, Lead is VCs, Travis Lanham, Designs, Tom Muller, Head of X is Hickman, Our edits are Bezo White Sabolski, Cover price, $3.99, and this one went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now we open with our roll call, and, uh, yeah, as, we, as we've been tending to do <laughs> over the past couple of uh, episodes here, we've got Armor, Glob, Sage, Boom Boom, Maxime, Manon, Beak, Angel, the other angel. Then two pages of credits, and then an info... Whoa, whoa, not an info page. We're actually going right into comics. I can't believe it. Okay, let's get into it. We open on Krakoa, and it looks as though the uh, never-ending party at Carousel is, uh, well, still happening. We join Boom Boom as she takes the Captain Kate role and gets all sloppy drunk. She bumps into and spills her whiskey all over Pixie, who helps her get back home. Along the way, Tabitha complains about how she did armor a solid, you know, helping get those meds, and never even got a thank you. Pixie informs her that armor hasn't made it home just yet, and that kind of, uh, you know, kind of tweaks Boom Boom's eyebrow a bit. She's, you know, wondering why they didn't get back yet. Didn't seem like it was too hard a mission. They were just going to go, cure the dude, and come back with, you know, with Beacon Angel. So, let's hop back to Nebraska, where those hicks have the bow husks and company under lockdown in the cellar. Armor is designated as the negotiator, or at least a point of contact. I guess, uh, you know, out of this gangly grip of uh, goofballs involved, she does look the most capable. I don't know. She's probably the same person who, like, the waitress at any restaurant instinctively hands the check to, even though there are, like, a dozen other people at the table. That would be a, uh, that would be something that, uh, that me and Armor share. Uh, uh, you know, we also have a very similar haircut, so there's that, too. Now, it's worth noting that all of our mutant heroes are wearing, say it with me, power-dampening collars. (sighs) Anywho, the lead hick, well, actually, they're not hicks. They're actually members of a cartel. He's about to lay out his story for armor here. He's going to say everything he needs saying, and it's basically a screed against, you know, the greed of Big Pharma, which, I mean, do we gotta? I guess we do. Uh, This fella is from uh, the Central American country, or Republic, Costa Perdida, which I believe translates to Lost Coast. Uh, Anywho, in a somewhat prescient bit of storytelling, our lead bad guy, he talks about an illness without a cure that's sweeping his nation, and how the killer disease is now referred to as the Perdida Fever, named after his little republic. Now, this sickness is caused by the republic being downstream by some... uh, White people-owned industries, which have polluted the water. We hear that something like 20,000 San Bertidans have died, uh, many, many, many more have been sick, and there is a vaccine that was developed. However, at $1,000 per inoculation, it's not all that realistic for the, uh, for the locals. Now, the lead cartel guy, I think his name might be Tumalo. Uh, he had this uh, controversial pharma CEO dealt with, which is to say he had that controversial pharmacy EO killed. And in fact, we get an entire boring info page about it. Now back to comics, Tumalo has now set his sights on mutants, you know, the same mutants who are currently holding the world hostage with their miracle drugs. Now he wants a meeting with someone who can negotiate terms, you know, get get some of this, these meds into his hands. Now Armor tells him that prof- about Professor Xavier's treaty and says that, hey, you know, it's just as easy 
as Costa Perdita signing up, and they'll get all the meds they're going to ever need. Well, here comes the rub. Mr. Tumalo here, he doesn't want the pre- his president to sign the treaty with Xavier because then the meds will be overflowing. They'll be readily available, they'll be free for everybody, and, uh, well, you see, the cartel wants to control the meds and also, you know, corner that market. So basically becoming the big pharma he claims to hate so much. Now, he gives Armour a day to think it over. You know, are you going to talk? Are you not going to talk? You sleep on it, you know? But he says that nobody's going to eat until she does. Though he suggests maybe they'll have a big old party, a fiesta even, if she makes the right decision. We jump back to Krakoa, and Boom Boom is rattling Sage's cage about, well, what she does all day, which is, uh, you know, taking attendance and whatnot. Uh, she even suggests that she ought to change her name to, uh, hey, that one page in every Dawn of X comic we look at, The Roll Call. Sage goes on to make fun of Boom Boom for changing her code name as often as her underwear, though she only lists about four, fo- four code names, which makes me think uh, old Tabitha might not be all that fresh, uh, so maybe we just won't take that quite as literally. Anywho, they talk about Armor and the gang, and Boom Boom learns that the Nebraska Quartet have been gone for now five days. We jump back to Nebraska and back to the basement, and the collared mutants try to plan their next move. They also talk about, you know, how hungry they are. Armor's armor sitting there. She looks like she's really struggling with the decision she's been asked to make. We pop back to Krakoa, and we spend an entire page watching Boom Boom step through a portal. This could have been a single panel, or we could have just assumed that she went if she showed up in Nebraska, but nope, we get a full page of her stepping through a portal. The next day, Armor reveals that she's made her decision and that she will return to Krakoa to fetch someone who can negotiate. Tumalo tells her that, in no uncertain terms, if she returns with a telepath, Wolverine, or Magneto, the children will be killed. Armor asks how the cartel knew that Beacon Angel were living on this farm, and so the man yanks out his smartphone and brings up the DOX homepage. Now, I'm guessing that DOX is some sort of Gossip Magazine? Uh, Not really sure what D.O.X. stands for other than, you know, Dawn of X. But I'm sure it's something, and I'm sure we'll find out somewhere down the line. Anywho, Beak, Angel, and the kids, they're on the cover of this D.O.X. mag with the headline, Mutants in Pilger, Pilger, Nebraska. So it looks like the mutants are viewed as something of celebrities in some circles here, and I'm guessing this is something we'll probably revisit as we work our way through uh, these, uh, these issues. Now, Armor is being escorted to the nearest portal, and Tumalo reminds her that, uh, hey, you know what? Everybody's lives are in your hands, so, (laughs) you know, make the right decisions, basically. We get an info page on Costa Perdita, and it's a map and a brief history. Eh, it's there if you want it. Back to comics and back to the basement. The kids have been given what looks like bowls of gruel to eat. Looks kind of like something out of Isle of a Twist or something. Angel mentions how, due to the way she and some of her children eat... This ain't gonna work. Now you see, she's gotta yak up on the food to break it down a bit so it can be digested. And in order for her to use her mutant yakking ability, she's gonna have to be uncollared. Well, the cartelli ain't buying it, at least not at first. He does come around, however, and detaches Angel's, Angel's collar so she can, you know, make that disgusting bowl of gruel even more so. Angel spits her glowing green spit into the bowl, which nearly makes the cartelli's wretch. Then, Angel spits over to Maxime and Manon's collars, dissolving them. They grab the cartelli Andre, and they use their powers of influence to have him draw on his comp- cartelli compatriot, and I think his name is Dalen. 
You see, I actually had to use the Marvel Wiki to confirm their names. And, you know, if I scroll down, what do you know? Nobody bothered to synopsize this one either. It's, uh, you know, only the hits will get the clicks, so why would anybody bother sinking any time into New Mutants Volume 4, Number 4, right? Just me. Uh, Glob Herman grabs Angel and Beacon the kids and shields them just in case things go sideways, or more sideways, I guess. Uh, Madden and Magzim uh, look positively terrifying here. They're all black-eyed and gray-skinned and whatnot. Looks very, very scary and uh, really cool, actually. Uh, now, they're controlling the two cartels, and ultimately, they shoot each other to death. The sound of their gunshots, however, rings out, you know, and everyone outside can hear it. Armor, who still hasn't left yet, she just assumes that the cartel just took out her friends. And even Tumalo does not look happy with what might have just happened. Armor is kicked to the ground by another crew of cartelis and told to stand back up or they'll kill her. Suddenly, the cartel's hoopty tr- pickup truck goes boom, only after someone off-panel says, tick, tick, tick. Bada-bing, bada-boom-boom. And uh, we're out of here. And uh, it looks as though this story arc must continue. But next, we'll be talking about X-Force number four. But how about we talk about what we just read? Okay, right off the bat. I was kind of hoping this would be uh, the capper on this uh, weird misplaced (laughs) two-parter. I was hoping it would be a weird misplaced two-parter, but... Yeah, it looks like this bugger's going to linger for a little bit. Um, I'm now... I haven't read ahead. I haven't even flipped ahead. Um, and now I'm worrying that we're going to go, like, a full 12 issues, jumping back and forth between the Shi'ar space story and the ones on the farm, maybe, like, two at a time. But I, I really hope not. I really hope not. Um, now, this entire story felt felt like it was trying to teach the readership that big corporations are bad being written by someone collecting a check from Disney. Eh, okay. Um, yeah, co- corporations are bad. We get it. Um, I get what they're going with here, right? I get what they're going for here. Uh, it just feels a bit too soapboxy for me to kind of roll with. Um, big big Pharma being bad feels like a pretty safe target. I mean, I think you're not going to get a lot of argument that the ph- pharmaceutical industry is wildly greedy and cares more about the bottom line than actually helping the people with the wonderful things that they create in their laboratories. Um, I will say that it was interesting seeing this from the point of view of a cartel, though. That much I'll hand them. Because we have our man Tumalo. He starts his screed, and he's, like, painting his people as victims and how bad the pharmaceutical companies are. But when it all comes back around, it looks as though he's kind of just jealous of Pharma's hustle, right? <laughs> They've been successful in their shakedown, and he wants a piece of that pie. He wants all the loot. He wants all the power. He wants all the control. And that, that's all fair enough. That was probably the best bit of this issue because um, it kind of zigged where I was expecting it to zag. Um, sticking with some good points, let's let's talk a little bit more about good points. Uh, the cartel is showing uh, a little bit of humility in the basement, allowing Angel to feed her children. That was pretty nice. Because, I mean... I mean, at the end of the day, you know, it's human and mutant and, you know, every, every you know, bit and piece here. But at the end of the day, they're all just people, right? I mean, who's to say that poor dead Andre or poor dead the other guy didn't have families and children of their own, right? So humility was, uh, is, was, was, in, was on display, and I like that. Uh, Manon and Maxime, oof. The scenes with, <laughs> with them controlling those two cartelis. They were horrifying. Um, I thought that was super cool. I, I don't know these characters from anywhere besides the, the previous issue, so 
I might have to track down some more stuff that they're in because <laughs> that was pretty cool. And they don't seem they don't seem heroic, you know. I I wonder like I don't know where they were introduced. Were they introduced as good guys? I don't know. I mean, they seem very very powerful and they seem kind of evil. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe after uh, Dawn of X shakes out, we will uh, we'll see where they land, uh, where their constitution lies, right? I'm also intrigued by learning whatever uh, DOX or Docs magazine might uh, might turn out to be here. I wonder if it's going to be like a TMZ for mutants or something. I think that could be interesting. Um, I mean, we've played with the concept of mutant as celebra- celebrity, like even going back to like Ecstatics um, and, and X-Force before that. And it's been a little while, I think, since we've uh, really touched on this, though. Again, I have been away, so it could be something very, very common. But uh, I, I think that could be a fun angle to uh, to play with, having, you know, some reporters try to follow them around, try to snap candid pictures. I think that that, that just could be interesting. It, it Then again, it could not be interesting, but I'm willing to uh, give it the benefit of the doubt. Now, how about we talk about Tabitha, Miss Boom Boom? Um... Why are we getting so many drunk mutants? Is this supposed to appeal to, like, edgy teenagers or something? It feels just so, so misdirected. Uh, I mean, come on, Marvel. You gotta know that these books are mostly being bought by people in their late 30s and up, right? Come on. And I'd like to think that people in my cohort and older are kind of overthinking it's cool to get sloppy-ass drunk. Like, as a, you know, thing. I mean, sure, drink if you like, get drunk if you want to, but this whole, like, feeling that mutant drinking equals cool writing already felt way too try-hard back in Marauders number one. Now it just feels lazy. Um, again, that's just me. Different strokes, different folks. But uh, for me, it just kind of makes me cringe. It makes me feel like the writer's trying to be... They're trying a little too hard to, to be cool. Uh, speaking of unpleasant things, let's talk about Sage. Why is she still here? She clearly hates everyone and everything. Like, shouldn't she leave? Shouldn't she go to, like, an uninhabited island somewhere? I mean, it's to the point where I cringe every time I see her because I'm expecting her to be, like, snippy and snarky. It's That's not deep characterization. That's not layers. That's just writing an a-hole. <laughs> and that's what Sage feels like here. Um, one more thing here. The art. Definitely a step down. Um, I complained a little bit last issue about how Academy X Flaviano's work looked, but this is like a step down even from that. Um, for seasoned X fans, like, if we were to say Flaviano or Flaviano, however you say that, was Joe Majuara, uh, Marco Fila is Roger Cruz. Passably similar at first glance, but when you look close... You can see the wrinkles, you know. You can see where you can see where it is uh, not what you're looking for. Um, still, you know, fine, fine art, but just not what uh, not what we got from Flaviano, and certainly not what we got from Rodriguez. So that is what it is. I feel weird always. I always feel weird talking about art, but uh, here we are, right? Uh, overall, uh, not digging this. <laughs> I'm still not digging this here. And uh, let's see here. I'm going to actually flip through my long box, or my short box full of these unread Dawn of X books here, and I'm going to see what's on the cover of our next issue of New Mutants, just for my own curiosity here. And, uh, uh, well, we got Deathbird on there, so I guess we're going back to the Shi'ar for uh, issue five. So, yay. 
I guess we'll we'll see how it goes. We'll try to be optimistic. But uh, that's all I got to say about New Mutants number four. But uh, before I let you guys go, let's hop into the mailbag here. We got a couple of letters here. We're going to start with Damien, and he is discussing Fallen Angels number three. He says, I swear if I met Brian Hill, the writer of Fallen Angels, he would tell me that he writes comics but is really a poet. And, uh, you know, I've actually heard a few good things about the first few issues of the Hill run on Batman and the Outsiders that's about to come to a close. Though, while I have all of them, I can't even say that I ever opened one, so I I couldn't say how good or bad it was. Um, I'm a little morbidly curious to see. Uh, I know Rajal Ghul's on the cover of a lot of those books, and I hate Rajal Ghul. <laughs> that is just... He's one of my pet peeve, boring characters in uh, in the Batman Rogue Gallery. I can't deal with Rajal Ghul or Rajal Ghul stories, but uh, yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder how how that goes. Uh, back to Damien, he says, "I really question the point of this series. As you say, they keep repeating the same few plot points. At the end of issue three, we're back at the first panel of issue one, and yep." We're getting the same shocking revelations in every issue. Uh, I'm really not sure how this sort of thing even makes it to print. I mean, we're not even getting, like, any clever lampshading with X-23 saying, like, you know, duck went on. We already knew that, you know? Nothing nothing to even say, like, to, to even just draw attention to the fact that it's like, yeah, we're, we're getting the same information again. I guess we're, we're confirming it, but it's the same thing. Uh, Damien continues, the art is improving and feels less generic. And the cover to issue three is amazing. And yes, that cover is beautiful. The cover is excellent. And uh, I never really had a problem with Kudransky's art, though for an X book, it does feel out of place. I, it, he did a he did a run probably within the past year or two on Spawn, an extended run, I believe, because I think I might be one of the only like ten people still ordering Spawn <laughs> every month. Uh, I I don't read it. I haven't read it in a while, but I still get it because I got a soft spot for it. Uh, Kudransky's work would fit a lot better on Spawn, and, and and it did, in fact, fit a lot better on Spawn. Here, it just, it's, it's good. It just doesn't feel, it does doesn't fit an X book, in my opinion. Uh, Damien continues. I worry by the end of this series that we'll think it could have been one issue of Giant Size X Men instead of six issues, and I'll I'll up the ante on that. I worry that this series might have been better suited for the first two thirds of an X Force annual. <laughs> With, with an obnoxio the clown backup or something, really not much meat on these bones here. I'm thinking we read. Let's give Marvel the benefit of the doubt and say there are 20 pages per issue. Um, so we're up to page 60. And uh, what we learned in these 60 pages could have filled a dozen, maybe. I mean, it's just so samey. It's so repetitive. It's. There's a lot of wasted, a lot of wasted uh, paginal real estate here. Um, Damien continues. As for the issue threes, I have a real difficulty ranking them. Marauders is definitely the best, followed by X Force, and Fallen Angels is the worst. But the rest all fall into a blur of averageness, and that's true, a hundred percent true. I agree. I actually had a difficult time sorting them in my head myself. Um, and to be completely honest, I struggled a little bit just trying to remember what actually happened in each issue. Um, the only ones I could actually pinpoint into position are the same ones you did. Um, Marauders was a, was a hard one, X-Force was a hard two, and Fallen Angels was a dead hard six. Um, the other three, they were just there. I mean, Excalibur was 
underwhelming. X-Men kind of sucked. New Mutants kind of sucked. Um, yeah. <laughs> the number threes were rough. Uh, I, I want to say the number fours are a little bit better so far, but uh, yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, we haven't gotten to Fallen Angels yet, so who knows. Uh, Damien continues. I remember you saying way back when you hit the, hit the midpoint of Hoxpox that you were afraid it was going to hit that part four of six wall where the story treads water. I feel like we're in that zone now. And, yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those things that I wish I never noticed when I was reading. Like, a lot of this comes from reading uh, post-Jemis Casada. You know, um, after Bob Harris left, Jemis and Casada came in, and that's when the writing for the trade, in my opinion, really, really kicked off, because back then they would start putting, like, the story titles on the cover. And they would be, like you'd have an issue of X, Uncanny X Men, and on the cover would be like the Draco Part One of Six. So you knew that there were going to be six parts, and it kind of trained you to like kind of expect the certain certain story beats. It's very very formulaic because it's very very manufactured and artificial. The stories went from being organic, and if they take two parts, they take two parts. If they take eight parts, they take eight parts. If they take fifteen parts, they take fifteen parts. To nope. Everything has to fit six. So if you have an issue and a half worth of story, you got to stretch that sucker to six. If you've got 12 issues of story, well, we're breaking the stories into, into two halves. You're doing sixes, damn it. And when you get to that, you know, like Captain America, Ice, part four of six, or the Draco, part four of six, you knew that you were not going to get anything <laughs> in that issue. And it, like, it makes you think... It's kind of like discovering how magic tricks are done, right? You can never really look at them the same way again. You begin to see all of the attempts of sleight of hand, and you start to notice every nuance and everything that's supposed to distract you. Because writing for the trade, whether Marvel wants to admit it or not, does exist. It does. I mean, their friends at DC admitted as much. They said, hey, writing for the trade's a thing. Uh, it's, and it's really hard for us to unsee that. Uh, the tricks, the tropes, the shortcuts used, they're apparent. And, uh, I mean, yeah, we're, we're hitting that wall pretty hard here in, uh, in these early Dawn of X books here. It's as though uh, it feels like we're already treading water with uh, over half of these books. Um, which, you know, from a creative standpoint, begs the question of why they flooded the damn shelves with six Six, six books all, all at once. Um, I mean, financially, we know why. Commercially, we know why. Bean countingly, we know why. But as a creative endeavor, it feels it feels like uh, I don't know. It's it just feeds into the glut and the uh, and the feeling that we are just kind of treading water. We're just waiting. We're just waiting for something to happen, and not much is. So. Uh, We'll take it as we get it, I guess, right? <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for writing in, Damien. Uh, next, we have Al Sedano, and he is talking about House of X number four. And he says, look at this, three days in a row. And I've also ordered volumes one and two of the Dawn of X trade. So I'm here, I'm here at least until the end of those. First of all, thanks for the trip down memory lane with mentioning alchemy. Now, alchemy is a character that was introduced back in X-Factor 41... Um, from a contest Marvel ran. You know, uh, this was a create-your-own-mutant contest. And I don't remember how he came up in conversation in the House of X episode, but uh, I, do have, I do have a soft spot for Alchemy. 
Uh, Al continues, Damn, I remember when Marvel had that Create Your Own Mutant contest. I wonder if we'll be seeing him at some point. Considering they're bringing back WizKid, anything's possible. And it totally wouldn't surprise me to see Alchemy make a comeback. Um, I mean, it really... It wouldn't surprise me to have him show up in a very important role. You know, he'll just be the most powerful guy. I kind of, and I could be, I could be projecting, right? But uh, I feel like creators like pulling these obscure characters out of the woodwork to get themselves cred with the longtime fans. So like having Alchemy show up, I think that would, uh, I think that would like check a lot of boxes for some people, myself included. Uh, It reminds me of uh, that, you know, that one page in that awful Heroes in Crisis where uh, Tom King brought up the Protector. You know, from the new Teen Titans drug awareness issues. And, it's and you know, everybody kind of squeed. that like, oh, we haven't seen him in forever. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, a year from now, half a comics Twitter might have alchemy avatars. Who knows, right? Um, personally, I'm still waiting for the return of Equus. Equus was a... I don't know how much, I don't know how much crossover there is between um, this show and my blog. But uh, I mentioned the other day I uh, covered... The uh, Uncanny X-Men at the State Fair of Texas, which was a Dallas Times Tribune or Dallas uh, Dallas newspaper. Uh, it was a freebie that came in the Sunday paper, and it was a full, you know, full-length comic book. And in it, we met the centaur mutant named Equus, uh, short for uh, equestrian, probably. But I'm waiting for his return here. That that's when I'll be impressed. Bring me Equus, and bring me Ice Cream also. Bring me Ice Cream. Who, who I will be writing about in the next couple days. <laughs> You'll see some stuff about the mutant known as Ice Cream. Uh, back to Al. He says, I liked the text pages in the beginning of this issue. Very fitting to list all those who had gone before or- Orcus with their mutant hate. Though I do agree that the ones at the end were a waste. I loved how they call the Scarlet Witch a pretender. Ouch. I wonder how they feel about her brother. And I actually, you know... I'm I'm kind of at a disadvantage here. I are the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are they still mutants? Are they inhumans or are they were they miracles? Is that the 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 lame thing that they tried to do to so they could use them in the movies? I don't I don't know how that went. Uh, I are they related to Magneto anymore? I I don't even know. <laughs> and, uh, and frankly, I don't I wouldn't even know which 16 Avengers books to buy to find out. So uh, I guess that's just one thing that I'll have to leave to the uh, to the theologians or something. Uh, Al continues, this issue was pretty intense. It was like Days of Future Past issue, but taking place in the current time. I can see your criticism about them not acting too too upset about the deaths of Archangel and Husk, but it makes sense. These are all veteran X-Men. I know that they knew there was no time for the luxury of grief. If it had some been if if it had been some of the newer kids, on the other hand, I would have been surprised if they acted this way. I mean, the deaths and the lack of consideration for them is going to make a ton more sense given what's to come in Chapter 9 of Hoxpox, so uh, you'll you'll know. <laughs> you'll get that. Uh, though that, that, that big ol' shoe is going to drop. Uh, that said, I'd still expect, I don't know, a sad glance or something from the vets? I, I mean, they, they were just so aloof uh, to, the, to the deaths here. It's just like, it was like, you know, when something bad happens in an episode of Seinfeld and Jerry just goes, that's a shame. You know, it's like, nobody cared. It... it like you, like maybe maybe struggle with a tear in the eye. I, I don't know. Uh, speaking of the oh, back to Ali says. Speaking of this team, I'm pretty sure the Monet is Penance thing had been established before. I wasn't surprised at all that when that happened. Though I didn't realize she could still turn into Penance. Not sure if I just didn't know about that or if it's new. 
And I kind of just chalked that up to something I couldn't remember. Um, I, I kind of gave up trying to make sense of it, and I just assumed it's something that happened before and I just forgot. Uh, but then again, when you get to New Mutants number one, we're going to see Monet and the Penance Twins. Again, though, that might just be something I can't remember reading an explanation for, too. <laughs> that might be something that is totally simple and totally makes sense. Um, I, I think that might have all come to light during that all-women X-Men volume. Uh, one of the Marvel Nows, where it was uh, just a volume, unad- unadjectiveless X-Men, and it was all uh, all women. And I think I only made that about two issues into it before figuring out it was just like another X-Book to clog the shelves. There was really not a whole lot special about it. Um, I was unimpressed with a lot of the stuff that came out then But uh, I gotta assume maybe that's when Because I think that's when she left uh, X-Factor to return to the X-Men When X-Factor was the, you know, the the investigation uh, The detective club, whatever it was um, X-Factor Investigations, there we go um, That's when Monet came back to, you know, the X-Teams proper So I wonder if that's where they put it I might have to might have to give that a flip through one of these days if uh, if I can discover several more hours of the day. Uh, Al continues. Also, I think Mystique bears watching. I'm not sure where they're going with her yet, but some of the things she does are either odd or shady. First, she's uh, the one covering up Husk's body. I wonder if any if uh, I wonder. It, I'm sorry. If anyone was not going to care about the deaths, it's Mystique. There's also the scene right before she dies. When Cyclops tries to contact her, she doesn't respond right away. What was she doing? And you know, Mystique really hasn't gotten all that much play, as I thought she would in this uh, post-Hoxpox Doc's world. Um, I figured, especially with her reasoning for joining the Quiet Council, that we'd be getting a little bit more from her, even this early on. Though... I mean, when you get to the end of Hoxpox, there will be some, there'll be some discussion about Mystique and some of the things that Mystique wants, you know. And I suppose maybe due to her ties with Destiny, uh, Mystique might be like a story trigger that's going to be pulled closer to, I don't know, whatever the next reboot's going to be after Dawn of X, um, because I think that could send shockwaves through Krakoa and. Uh, that might even bring us to an endgame for this, uh, for this, you know, blip in history. So, so Mystique, definitely one to watch for, definitely. Uh, Al wraps up with, finally, that speech Mother Mold gives about the Titans. I think she was comparing the mutants to the Titans of myth, humans to the Olympian gods, and sentinels to humans. The humans stole fire from the gods and eventually didn't need them anymore. Kind of fits with what we're seeing in the future. They don't need the humans anymore. And yeah, that's, that's 100% it. That is uh, definitely what it was. They were going for. It was just a little bit too flowery for me. Um, in the reading, there, it felt it felt kind of like it insisted upon itself. It wanted to sound a little bit more um, a little bit more poignant and flowery than I, I felt maybe it needed to. Uh, I don't know that whole you know baffle them with BS sort of thing is is how I kind of took it. But no, no, your your explanation makes perfect perfect sense. So uh, thank you so much for writing in. Thank you so much for uh, sticking around. And uh, I think that's uh, where we'll put a pin in it for today. Uh, thank you all for uh, listening. And if uh, you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Uh, you can find the show notes at chrisuninfiniteearths.com. We got xlaps.chrisuninfiniteearths.com. We got 90s X-Men on Facebook. 
We got the tumble page on tumble. <laughs> it's a, I think it's X hyphen lapsed. You might be able to find it. I, I just, uh, you know, I typed TU in my browser and it brings it up. So I don't think that'll work for everybody though. So, uh, you might have to actually search for X lapsed, but, uh, if you use the tumble machine, you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll find it. I guess. I don't know. <laughs> The complete audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. A lot of noise there for your ears, and uh, hopefully some of it will be enjoyable for you. Um, I don't usually ask, but uh, hey, if you know anybody who's in, who's ex-curious here, uh, let them know this show's out there. Maybe they'll maybe they'll dig it, or maybe they'll uh, want to throw a brick through your window for subjecting them to me. But uh, <laughs> if you're digging the show, and if you wanted to spread the word, I would greatly greatly appreciate it but uh i think that's where we'll end it for today uh, just one more giant thank you to everyone for uh, sharing your time and sharing your ears with me it really means the world so uh till next time when we talk x-force number four i will talk to you again real soon see ya This is Chris. Welcome to episode 46 of X-Lapsed, where uh, I'm coming to you, uh, well, kind of soaked. Um, I, I probably smell like a, uh, not so much a brewery, but maybe like a, a Mexican brewery. Um, I've been uh, pushing myself a little harder than usual in the uh, workout department here, and uh, I'm suffering a very, very sore shoulder. And uh, I am married into a uh, Mexican family. And, uh, so before I go to actually go to an actual, you know, doctor, um, there's this thing called mezcal, which is, uh, alcohol fermented from agave, I believe, that, uh, is said to have, uh, healing properties if you rub it on, uh, sore muscles. So, yeah, so that's what I did. And, uh, that stuff is warm. It's really, really like, it's like hot to the touch. It's very, very strange and, uh, couldn't resist. So I did take... A single sip of it to see what it was and I swear it was like liquefied acid reflux <laughs> it was 
some of the most heinous stuff I've ever put into my mouth before. So, uh, and and worst of all, it really didn't do anything to uh, to my you know faculties. It didn't make me feel. It didn't take the edge off, is what I'm trying to say. But uh, yeah, so I have this stuff soaking into my right bicep and shoulder at the moment. We'll see. Maybe I'll, I'll I'll keep you guys up to date on how this works out for me. But uh, with all that out of the way, let's get into today's book here. We are discussing New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 6. Now, this had a March 2020 cover date. And the story... Now, the story title might have been better for uh, Issue 4 because it's called Not As Hoped. And uh, I remember when we started this uh, little trip to the farm. Yeah, that wasn't what I hoped for, so... We'll see if it still uh, if it still fits for this sixth issue. Written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Beso White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale January 29th, 2020. Now, let's open with our roll call to remind us, uh, you know, which New Mutants arc we'll be talking uh, talking about today. Uh, we've got Armor, Boom Boom, Glob, Maxime, Manon, Beak, and Angel. Then our double-page spread of creds. And in we go. Drunken Boom Boom has just arrived at the farm, and picking up from where we left off a couple issues back, has just blown up one of the cartel's trucks. She then aloofly turns to Armor and asks, you know, what, what's the haps? Before she can get an answer, however, the Gartellis fire a power-dampening rocket in her direction. Armor tackles Boom Boom out of the line of fire just in the nick of time, but it seems like seems like that power-dampening rocket was still, you know, in range. On the ground, Hisako tries to fill Tabitha in on just as much as she can, you know, the cartel, the power-dampening... Beak, his family, and the rest of the team being held hostage in the basement. And also, there were how there were some shots fired inside the house when we closed out last chapter. Speaking of inside the house, let's go head into that basement and catch up with our hostage friends here. Now, our man Glob Herman is freaking out that Maxime and Manon had those uh, two cartellis kill each other, rather than, you know, maybe just manipulating their minds and convincing the bad guys to, you know, maybe just let them go. Maxime and Manon don't really see what the difference is since it got the job done either way. Glob clarifies by explaining how the rest of the cartellis heard those shots get fired and will very likely be interested in seeing just what went down. No sooner does he say this than one of the baddies pops his head into the basement to, you know, check things out. Glob disarms him and chokes him out. From here, Beak heads upstairs to check on his folks. As soon as he reaches the top of the stairs, however, he is brutally shot in the chest. I mean, there was a lot of blood in this scene. Outside, our boss bad guy, Tumalo, is directing traffic. He sends a couple of grunts out to fight Boom Boom and Armor, while he is going to head back inside the house to check on the rest of his men. Inside, the young mutants have made their way back to the ground level from the basement, and we see Angel hacking some of that strange puke onto one of the cartellis. Maxime and Manon are taking Glob's suggestion and causing another one of the bad guys to think that, you know, they're all friends. They even convince him to protect them. And so, when Tumalo enters the living room, this blonde cartel member, who Maxime and Mammon have been digging around in his head, he starts shooting at him. Which is a good and a bad thing, as we're about to find out, because in order to evade the gunfire, Tumalo runs up the stairs. And we remember who's up there, right? That's, uh, you know, Beak's folks. Back outside, Boom Boom and Armor beat up a pair of cartellis, with Tabitha being especially no-nonsense. Then, the rest of the mutants rush out of the house, Glob's carrying Beak's limp body. 
Armor asks Boom Boom how she got here, hopeful that maybe there's a Blackbird jet stashed away somewhere nearby. But here's the thing, she didn't fly. In fact, she took a Marvel Universe approximation of an Uber or Lyft to get there from the uh, Krakoan portal. Now, this pretty much means they're out of luck as far as getting Beak to a uh, local medical facility anytime soon. That is, unless they take the other cartel rig, you know, the one that wasn't blown up. And so, they load on in. Before they can pull away, however, another shot rings out. Boom Boom, Armor, and Glob rush back toward the house, instructing Angel to drive to the hospital and not look back. At the house, Tumalo kicks the door off the hinges and he's holding his gun to Beak's father's head. That gunshot from a moment ago was where Tumalo killed Beak's mom. Tumalo tells them nobody better leave the farm in his truck or else he's going to blow this old man's brains out. So then Angel rushes the porch and points out how this is, you know, a lose-lose situation. If they stay, Beak's going to die. If they go, Mr. Bohusk dies. So someone's going to die either way. Angel starts crying, stating that they came to the farm so they could be left alone. She then tells Tumalo that his cartel, they win. You know, she and her family will leave Nebraska and they'll move to Krakoa. They'll never have to see him again. She also informs him that uh, he's not leaving this farm alive. So there's that. Unfortunately, this doesn't really seem to bother old Tumalo. It's almost as though he wasn't expecting to leave in the first place. He explains that he's part of the Bohem Cartel and that there will be more of his ilk to trouble the mutants going forward. He then pulls the trigger and blows Mr. Bohusk's, Bohusk's brains out. He continues explaining that they'll never be free from the cartel, especially if all those members sent to the farm today wind up dead. He then presses his pistol into his own dome and pulls the trigger. Okay, so he's gone. They're both gone. We jump here to an info page talking about the Bohem cartel. Now, they're based out of Bohem Costa Perdida and have a net worth of $15 billion. We get a hierarchy of names here, which will mean very little to us at, the, at this point, but for completionist's sake, let's read them out anyway. The head of the Bohem cartel is Ezekiel El Rey Dengra. He's got two lieutenants. They're Miguel El Rojo Martinez and Julian El Amarillo Perez. Now, El Rojo has, a, has three officers, and they include, and I'm going to you know, try to say these names as best as possible, Oscar El Pupura Romero, Alexis El Naraja Gutierrez, Juan El Verde Montes, and then El Amarillo, this is much more difficult than I thought, it's a lot easier just to write them. El Amarillo's officers include Orlando El Sarcofagio Espiga, Rodrigo El Muerte Ruiz, and poor dead Tumalo, whose real name is unknown, so... It's quite a colorful group, isn't it? Pun partially intended. Uh, it's said here that there are 40,000 members of the Bohem Cartel, you know, just creeping around the world. So these guys might pose a threat. Jumping back to comics, Angel rushes back to the pickup truck and drives Beak toward a local medical facility. The rest of our mutants are just left standing among the wreckage. This news is quickly picked up and reported on by our new favorite news source, Docs. D-O-X. The headline reads, Nebraska Nightmare, Four Dead in Mutant-Infested County, which sounds about as biased and baity as uh, most real-world news. It's worth noting that this little article reminded me that Beak and Angel were part of that weird makeshift post-House of M, post-Civil War team of new, mut new warriors, actually, which was mostly comprised of depowered young mutants wearing costumes that granted them different powers, which was a really cool idea, but kind of executed poorly. 
Uh, also worth noting, the DOX or DOCS article cites a correspondent going by the screen name Sapien Superior 24-7, which uh, might tell us a thing or two about DOCS's sources. It doesn't help that SS-247 is only sharing information that paints the mutants as attacking the farm rather than being the victims of a cartel hit. Now we get back to comics and we jump back to Krakoa and the Healing Gardens, where Beak is recovering from his injuries. He's happy to see Armor and he thanks her for saving him. He also comments how happy he is that nobody else was hurt, which, you know, baffles our POV character just a little bit. Glob goes to bring up Beak's parents, to which Beak is a bit confused. You know, since they both died peacefully in their sleep many years ago. Ruh-roh. Before Glob can correct him, Armor pulls him outside. It looks like they're going to have to confront and confer with a pair of creepy little gray-skinned, black-eyed children. And so they do. Quickly, Maxime and Manon cop to the accusation that they did alter Beast and his family's memories in order to make them think that they were just victims of an attempted break-in and that the Bohusk elders were long dead. Armor goes to flip out, and she tells them that, you know, they can't be doing this kind of stuff. The kids, you know, they figure, okay, well, we'll just, uh, we'll give them their memories back, you know? She, they offer to give the Bohusk's memories right back to them, but Armor kind of throws her hands in the air and gives up. She says, you know, what's done is done, and decides they'll just let Beak and his family go on believing that this was actually a far better day than it actually was. And that is where we leave it. Now, next episode, we uh, begin our countdown to the landmark 50th episode of X-Lapsed, and that'll begin with X-Men plus Fantastic Four number one. But before we get there, let's, let's talk about what we just read. Well, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I actually like this quite a lot. After, you know, not having all that much use for the first two parts of the story, I actually, like, really appreciated how it how it all wrapped up. Um, maybe it's just the fact that it felt like an actual wrap-up, which is something we're just not getting from the other Dawn of X stories that are closing out their arcs. Um, I mean, did Excalibur wrap anything up? Sorta? Maybe? Kinda? Did Fallen Angels? Pfft, no. Uh, this three-issue bit actually feels like its own episode, you know? And as disinterested as I was in it, I'm happy about that. I really think they didn't do themselves any favors intermingling the two very different, in every way possible, opening arcs for this title. Had they dropped this farm story in after we wrapped up the Shi'ar arc, I probably wouldn't have had anywhere near the knee-jerk reaction to it as I did. So what do we got here? Now, we're introduced to the concept that this cartel is a whole lot bigger than just a few trucks full of goons, with the promise that they'll be revisited at some point down the line. We also get Maxine and Manon being wildly creepy and uh, sort of following their own moral compasses. See, they're trying to do right, but maybe not quite understanding the responsibility that comes with their powers. I'm looking forward to seeing this, you know, explored further as we continue learning more about them. At the end of this issue, Glob and Armor wonder what Xavier might think of how the twins, well, I think they're twins, used their powers to make the Bohusk brood forget about their troubles. I mean, you gotta assume that Xavier probably already knows, so I wonder if this will ever come back up. Uh, Boom Boom's drunkenness was mentioned, but downplayed from the last issue. I'm not even sure we saw her with a bottle in this issue, whereas she was never without one last time out. Uh, the murders of the Bohusk elders were pretty brutal. As was Tumalo taking his own life. Um, if we stop and think about it here, you know, I'm going to go back to the old chestnut here of talking about the stakes, right? 
This really ups the stakes here in that, I mean, we have a higher-ranking cartel officer who is willing to take himself off the board for the benefit of his group. So the mutants have an enemy that values their own lives even less than the X-Men do. I mean, the X-Men, the mutants can be resurrected, so their lives don't quite mean as much. Cartelis cannot, so yeah, I'd say that this makes this group a scary and formidable group of foes for, uh, for the X-Men. Seeing Beak get shot in the chest was a shock at first. Um, I assumed he was just going to die and be resurrected. Then again, since he wasn't living on Krakoa, I wonder how recent a backup of his is currently in Cerebro. And that is, of course, assuming that there's any backup of him at all, since he never checked in. I'm glad he was able to survive, though, and that these mutants still value things like life and modern medicine, rather than just taking the easier way out, letting him die, only to pop out of an egg a handful of pages later. So it kind of zigged where I was expecting it to zag, and I was happier for that. Uh, I'm also really digging the idea of this Doc's website news magazine thing. I'm looking forward to seeing more from them. I know I've seen the logo, the DOX logo, on the cover of a later issue of New Mutants, so I'm assuming that they'll be looming in this title for at least a little while. Uh, having Docs as a wildly biased piece of business, uh, gotta almost assume it's a commentary on the current state of the mainstream media in the United States, though I could be wrong. I was happy to be reminded of that weird New Warriors volume that featured the post-decimation depowered mutants for a couple of reasons. Um, first, I'd kind of forgotten it was a thing. <laughs> you know, despite when it came out, I counted it as an X-Book since, you know, it had Beak, it had Angel, it had Jubilee, it had Chamber. It had, you know, so many young mutants that I that I enjoy, or former mutants at the time. So uh, I counted it as an X-Book. And here I am, all these years later, almost forgetting that it happened to begin with. And also, another reason I liked it is that it told me that another little bit of X-Men history actually happened. Not that I'm too scared of having things removed from continuity at this point, but it's always nice to get a little reassurance, right? Overall, this issue ended the farm-slash-cartel arc probably the best way it could. It felt like we got an ending here, and in a minute way, it altered the status quo. You know, we started this arc with Krakoa, and now we've got Krakoa plus the Bohusks. So, <laughs> we did change something. Net positive, uh, not, not bad at all. Um, uh, those The first two issues of this... Not great. This one, maybe not the best thing in the world, but a lot better. And I wonder, I really think they did themselves a disservice by intermingling it with the Shi'ar arc that is in many ways more interesting to me. And, uh, and I mean, that, the Rod Reese art there is just, it's, it's almost incomparable. So this feels lesser than, unfortunately. And I, I think this would have benefited by being its own thing or an arc following the Shi'ar arc. But... It is what it is, and it's uh, it's over. So uh, next time we'll be going back to the Shi'ar space here, but that'll be that'll probably be you know, a little ways down the line since we are doing X-Men Fantastic Four, and uh, we're going to be getting some giant-sized stuff coming in. So we'll just play it by ear, and we'll, we'll get there when we get there. But uh, rest assured, it is coming. Now, before I let you guys go, let's uh, do a little bit of digging in the mailbag here. We have a letter from Damien talking about Marauders number 6. He says, I'll start with the feedback on my feedback. And this is uh, referring to a mention of, uh, I believe Jason wrote in to discuss um, Excalibur dealing with the Queen. And, uh, and Damien had taken issue with that in his uh, prior feedback. And he says, uh, 
I'll start with the feedback on my feedback and state that my position on the Queen of Inexcalibur was less a problem with the story and more an automatic allergic reaction that I can't control. I live in London. It's my home. It's not a fantasy place. I can't help but flinch when I see that nonsense on the page, no matter how well it fits the story. And I could totally appreciate that. And I can also, in a very small way, sort of relate to that. I mean, I don't know how obvious it is, but I, I grew up in New York, New York City, and um, I hear a lot of tall tales and anecdotes about the place from folks who've never been there. And uh, there's definitely a stereotype for a New Yorker, and I suppose in some ways I fit it. Uh, that said, some folks out here in the Phoenix area automatically assume that I'm going to be rude and nasty just hearing my voice. And I, I, I may very well be rude and or nasty at times, but I assure you that it likely has nothing to do with where I come from. But uh, I can totally understand. Uh, your point is well taken. That uh, I think we... I, I think things are like distilled down to their very basic elements when we think about places around the world and places that we're that all we know are from pop culture right um i think a lot of people see london people see you know tokyo people see new york and uh though they've never been there they distill it down to its uh, most basic pop culture references and uh like if I'm picturing, if I'm picturing, you know, the UK or something, it's like I'm seeing the, you know, the stereotypical, you know, Bobby and uh, the red, you know, the red phone booths. <laughs> That's it. Um, but then again, I've never been there. I don't know enough about it to, to really say anything more eloquent about it. Um, a lot of folks in New York just see, you know, hot dog stands and and rude people spitting on the sidewalk. And sure, while there are some of those out there, it's not all of it. It's not, it's, I'd, I'd wager it's, you know, probably not even a huge part of it. But, uh, no, I totally understand uh, where you're coming from there. Um, Damien continues, I want to thank Al for questioning my reaction to Storm as cult leader as it made me go and reread the Greg Pak Storm series, which I loved. On a reread, it does seem like Storm rejecting godhood is more in my head than on the page, so Al might be right. Not that I'm ever wrong. <laughs> and I guess that settles it. <laughs> uh, I've never read the Greg Pak Storm. I think I have the first handful of issues um, of it. And I think that came at a time where there was just a glut of... Uh, of solo X-Men books coming out and I, I just, I couldn't do it. There was just too damn many. And uh, Storm, if I'm remembering right, she was coming across as a very, very unpleasant character in all the books she was in that I, I suppose other than the, the solo. But I, I think it was, uh, was it Chris Yost, I think was writing one of the X-Books at the time. And his Storm just totally turned me off the character. She was just awful. And uh, I didn't want any more of her, so I didn't read the Greg Pak stuff. Like I said, I think I still have a few of them because I, I am an idiot and I still buy everything, but I don't think I've ever read it. Uh, Damien continues, On to Marauders number six. I love this story. The best thing continues to be the fact that it's a great single issue, but it builds on the previous issues and builds to the next. Of all the X-Books, it feels the most like the X-Men of my youth, where every issue stood alone. Every character feels true, from Kitty to the most minor villains. They all feel right, and they don't. And when they don't, there's an in-story reason. I don't want to spoil anything, but I can confidently state that this book gets even better over the next six issues. 
You talk a lot about evergreen stories, and I can really see Marauders being added to the list of classic X-Books in years to come. And I hope you're right about that. I really do hope you're right about that. Uh, I feel like these days in comics, um, especially DC Comics, uh, we're getting these sort of like boutique runs. You know, they come with the nicer covers, and and it's uh, it's like in a, a more obscure character usually. And... They're usually written by Tom King because, for whatever reason, folks like reading monthly comics that could be summed up by saying, this month, the title character tilted his head to the left. And that's it. Um, That said, I could see Marauders being in contention as being a standout boutique run. Only unlike the King books, one actually worth owning and reading. But uh, I I could definitely see that. I think Marauders um, is a very dark horse run uh, uh, in uh, in the Dawn of X you know, list of books here. It was one I wasn't going to buy. It was one that I I just didn't think it was going to be necessary. And when I saw it on the stand, it's like my completionist nature got me. And of course, you know, X-Men Volume 5, Number 1, came with that wonderful checklist in the back, which means Chris has to get all of them. So uh, I was going to leave it behind, and uh, and then I bought it, and I, I read it, and I expected not to care for it one bit, and... Turned out being just about the best there is out there right now. So I, I think uh, I think this is going to have lasting power for sure. And and the fact that it really it's so tonally different than uh, than everything happening on Krakoa, it, it it can sort of stand on its own. You know, of course you'd have to know you'd have to be familiar with the status quo, but it, it I think it can shoulder being read on its own. So that that's a cool thing too. Uh, Damien continues. I love it so much. It's not so much the actual content as the style. I wish everyone would pace comics like this. I literally believe that this series gives the blueprint of how to save monthly superhero comics. I hope people notice. It's got the Tumblr ability that you sometimes decry whilst having enough content to actually satisfy readers. Or to satisfy actual readers. And the use of X-Men history is integrated naturally. And, yeah, there's a lot of love and a lot to love in Marauders. Um, and in many ways that, you know, we've already discussed, it's a book after my own heart. I really hope people are noticing and following as well. And uh, this inspired me to head over to our friends at Comicron to uh, check out the sales figures. Because uh, I hadn't done that yet. And I, it's been so long since I've actually looked at sales figures that uh, I don't know what's good and bad anymore. You know, um... Back when I was doing more contemporary DC stuff, um, it, it seemed like there was an unwritten rule that you couldn't get below a certain point without being canceled. And then they kept lowering that point. <laughs> and they kept lowering that point, and they kept lowering that point to where uh, when I was looking at young animal books, there were some that were selling in the four digits. I mean, under 10,000 copies, which is unreal <laughs> to me. But, uh, but no, I'm, I'm enjoying actually taking a look at these sales figures and familiarizing myself with what the industry and what the market actually looks like again because I'd, I'd taken quite a break from doing so. So while we're talking about Marauders here, let's see how many people are following along. Now, the first issue in its first month sold 86,830 copies, which really good numbers, just like Fallen Angels, which we discussed last episode. Marauders number two sold 51,241 copies, so 
not that bad a drop. Usually, we can expect like a 50% attrition from issue 1 to issue 2, which we did see with Fallen Angels, and here it's not quite that bad. Um, Marauders number 3 only dropped less than 2,000 copies to 49,309. Uh, Marauders number 4 dropped a little bit more to 45,641 copies. And then 5 dropped to 44,802 copies, and 6 sold 44,212 copies. So from 1 to 6, and these are all first-month sales, because there are some residual sales that you'll see in subsequent months, but we're not going to worry about those here because those just muddy the numbers a bit. Um, If we look at just these strictly first-month order numbers, uh, Maraud has held on to 51% of its readership. That's not bad. That's not bad because usually... Between 1 and 2, they only hold on to 51%. But here we have 1 through 6, and there's still over half the people who you know, who curiously bought the first issue stuck around to, uh, to see uh, the what would naturally or usually be the end of its first arc, given a Marvel, uh, the Marvel method. But that's not bad. And still, as of the sixth issue, is in the top 30 of comics sold, which isn't bad. Especially when you look at the top 10 and top 20 and see that it's full of gimmick books and tie-ins and books being renumbered and books being relaunched. And yeah, I think that's not bad. Uh, you know, a, I don't want to call it a second or third tier X book because it's head and shoulders above them in quality. But when you think of X books, Marauders, as a casual fan, Marauders is probably not the book that jumps to mind. So to have that selling as decently as it is, that's not a bad thing at all. And yes, uh, there there certainly is a bit of Tumblr ability in this series. And uh, when, I, when I covered issue six, I almost mentioned Iceman making a big deal about being a judge on Drag Race as a bit pandery. But, and I'm, and I'm not going to say I have a ton of gay friends, because to say so would be pandery and it would be untrue. But the few that I do have, they all really enjoy Drag Race. So uh, I guess I can't say it's pandery if it's, you know, true, at least in... Out of through my prism, right? <laughs> Damien wraps up with, "Can you tell I like it?" And uh, yes, I can. And uh, hopefully, folks can tell that I also like it. So, thank you so much for writing in and sharing your thoughts, Damien. Thanks for being a good sport about the feedback to your feedback. Um, if anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, it's easy to do so. You could do so at weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. You could also find the show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearth dot com. Uh, xlaps.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com There's a Facebook group that uh, I don't even know if it's still a thing but it's 90s X-Men. There's that. Um, And the audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com I was uh, getting ready to make a fairly, I guess not not, not too large an announcement since this is just me, but a a decent sized announcement uh, with the 50th episode about some some directions but uh, decided Maybe not. Maybe not yet. So uh, we're going to hold off on that for now. But uh, after this episode, we are going to be moving into uh, the X-Men Fantastic Four miniseries, which will get us all the way to the landmark, milestone, double-sized, foil-embossed 50th episode of X-Lab. So I hope folks are digging it. hope folks stick around for that. But I guess that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. Just uh, one big thank you to everyone for hanging out and sharing your time with me. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and welcome to episode 60 of X-Lapsed, and uh, yeah, the uh, the throat is still acting up. Um, I'm starting to think that maybe I'm actually just getting sick, uh, and maybe it's not allergies. Maybe I'm just getting sick or transforming into uh, Wolfman Jack. I'm uh, doing my best not to. I would really prefer not to have that happen, but... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna push through. We're gonna push through. I do apologize if this is uh, very off-putting <laughs> or sounds terrible. I, I very much apologize and uh, appreciate uh, you all hanging in. But uh, we are gonna be taking a look at New Mutants Volume Four, Number Eight today. Now this had an April 2020 cover date. The story is called "A Hunting We Will Go," written by Ed Brisson with art by Marco Fiala. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sabulski. Cover price, $3.99. Went on sale February 26th of 2020. Now, we open with a roll call. And it's uh, it's our B-cast. It's not our, uh, it's not our A-cast. <laughs> it's uh, those creepy twins, Maxime and Manon, uh, Sebastian Shaw, Magma, Armor, and Boom Boom. Of course, this is followed by two pages of credits. Now, we open in Blackstone on Krakoa. This is home of the Black King of the Hellfire Trading Company, and of course, that is Sebastian Shaw. Now, he's met by Maxime and Manon, who had just filled him in on the whole Bohem cartel dealie that went down in Pilger, Nebraska. We saw during the uh, the three-part farm story, the uh, the Bohems came in and... Uh, well, they did, they did some damage. Um, now, Shaw assures them that he'll take care of everything as he saunters through a gateway. From here, we shift scenes to the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. It's here that we meet a young mutant who has similar features to Nightcrawler in, like, the color and amount of digits department. Very similar uh, hands and toes, you know, fingers and toes. Now, this, this young mutant is running away from something, and we get a look at it. It's something that looks like... Sort of a mixture of a Warwolf and a Predator X from around the time of Messiah Complex, probably, what, ten years ago? Uh, now, just as this beast is about to pounce on the poor little mutant, it's impaled by a whole bunch of arrows. Someone off-panel assures the mutant child that they are now safe. Now, our next stop is Nova Roma, which was a, I don't know, never all that interesting a place to me, but... Uh, for this issue, it's really only there as a backdrop, so really, no harm, no foul. Now here, Magma's there, of course, and she's with Boom Boom in armor. She's leading them through the city. Uh, Boom Boom is complaining that she was dragged away from a killer party for this trip, and uh, yeah, we, we get it, Tabitha. You could, you could stop it, please. Please stop it. Now our trio is greeted by Amara's father, Lucius Akia, and uh, we get a you know sort of touching father-daughter reunion here. And we learn that Lucius has called them because there was something that he felt the mutants needed to see. But first, let's let us see something. It's going to be an info page all about Nova Roma, which 
I mean, I suppose it's a pretty good use of one of these info pages, since I gotta assume that a good portion of folks reading this issue have probably never heard of the place before, so... Eh, I'll give that one to you. Now we resume with the girls being led into a room where they're introduced to that uh, nightcrawlery mutant boy from a few scenes ago. Now he tells Magma that he and his have been trying to access the Krakoan gateways ever since the professor announced that Krakoa was, you know, a thing. But they keep getting attacked by the Predator Wolf Xs, or whatever they're going to wind up being called here in the book. Uh, he says that many of his friends have been eaten by these things. At this point, uh, Lucius, he uh, talks about how the mutants have really uh, kicked up a hornet's nest with this whole Krakoa thing. And he says that it's led to many innocent lives being lost. Now, Magma, she doesn't even acknowledge this statement and just vows to the boy that she'll see to it that he and his friends will find safe passage to the, uh, you know, the mutant homeland. And so, our girls start the their long, hot, sweaty hike to the gateway where the Predator Wolf Xs have been lingering. And Boom Boom complains the entire way. Uh, two panels, and six hours later, they do arrive at the, uh, the proper portal. Now, Boom Boom, she threatens to go home, since she's all gross and covered in mosquito bites. For whatever reason, Magma doesn't want her to go. Uh, I mean, she's kind of a pain in the ass. You might as well just let her go. They argue for a bit, with Amara appealing to Tabitha's need for a win. You know, after that bungled deal in Pilgrim, Nebraska, she suggests that the uh, amalgamated Young Mutants of Krakoa Incorporated need, you know, they need a check in the W column, right? They they didn't really come away from that one on top. You know, that was just a, an eked out, I don't even know if we'd call it a win, considering uh, what happened to Beak's family, but... Uh, yeah, they, they need a win, and this could be that win. Just then, a Predator Wolf X leaps out of the brush, and we get five pages of mutant-on-beast action. Now, after initially struggling, Armor figures out that she could just tear them in half. She uses her, you know, her big armor bubble and just rips them apart. And Tabitha is able to toss a time bomb down one of their throats. The Predator Wolf Xs, of course. Magma just kind of flies around like a less useful human torch here. So she gets batted around and doesn't do a whole heck of a lot. From here we get a scene shift, and it's a scene that's uh, actually worth reading. Now we have Sebastian Shaw. He visits the head of the Bohem Cartel in Costa Perdita. Now they exchange some phony pleasantries, and they discuss the mishap in Pilgrim, Nebraska. Now the big Bohem baddie here is Ezekiel L. Ray Dengra. And he assumes that Shaw is here to cut a black market deal on some of the Krakoan magic meds. Shaw assures him that this is not the case at all. Now, El Rey does not appreciate Shaw's tone. And I gotta say, if that's the case, you're really not gonna like what's gonna happen next. You see, Shaw tells El Rey that he's already cut a backroom deal with the Carrasco cartel, which just happens to be Bohem's biggest rival. Now, with this deal, Carrasco will be able to pretty much take over the area, rendering the Bohems more or less impotent. A really good scene here. I really enjoyed this, though I will say I wish the art was a little less cartoony, because uh, it's making me feel like I'm reading a story out of X-Men Unlimited. <laughs> I mean, this whole issue is kind of like that, but uh, uh, the art here really doesn't fit the... Uh, the import of the scene, and just like, just Shaw being kind of a badass here. The art is 
not doing it any favors. So, we rejoin our young mutants, who are flying a jet full of mutant children back to Krakoa. It's uh, the Pack Rat 2 or whatever it is. Now, Tabitha thanks Amara, suggesting that, yeah, you know what, she needed this. She needed this win. So, all good. You know, hunky-dory, very good. From here, we get an info page, and it's a page out of the diary of Tabitha Boom Boom Smith. And a lot of the st- a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing in here, I feel like it's supposed to come across as far more funny than it actually is. Um, among other things, she's kind of miffed that Wolverine and Beast have usurped the X Force name. She mentions that like three or four times, and uh, first time it was semi cute. The other, the remaining ones were, were were less so. So, back to comics, and we wrap up this issue with just some random blonde woman approaching the carcass of the Predator Wolf X. And uh, she says, whoever did this will pay in kind. And, uh, you know, as our camera pans out, we can see that she's surrounded by a lot of creepy-looking beasties. And that is New Mutants number 8. Next episode, we'll be talking about X-Force number 8. But uh, first, let's let's try to talk about this issue, because uh, (laughs) there really isn't a whole lot to say. But we will, as always, do our best. Okay, so uh, one thing I think I can say with uh, 100% certainty was that uh, this was an issue of New Mutants. Um, Ask me in 20 minutes what it was about, and I'll probably shoot you a blank stare. But it was something that exists, and something that we just read. That said, I really don't know what to say about it. Um, I didn't dislike it. I'm not mad at it. It's just a story, and uh, and it's a story that could have fit into any eight pages of any random issue of X-Men Unlimited. Really not a whole lot of meat on this bone here. Um, and uh, I, I don't want to say it felt like a waste of time, because, I mean, <laughs> we're reading comics here, right? Um, but, yeah, just not great. Not great, but I'm, but again, not mad at it. One thing I will say is that it feels, and I mean, I I don't have any professional training in the writing or or creation of a story department, but uh, to me, this feels sort of truncated. This feels like maybe it was supposed to run a couple of issues, and uh, and again, this is me projecting, and uh, and I really have no insider information here, but it feels like to me, I mean, the pacing is sort of all over the place, you know. When we opened and were introduced to Nova Roma, I was expecting this to be the first chapter of the next arc, right? It doesn't look like that's going to be the case. It looks like this is a one-and-done for now. But we get these like weird little like story spurs here, like things that could have been dug into deeper. Um, I, I don't want to say we had friction between Amara and her father, but there was that odd comment about the mutants kicking over a hornet's nest and how... You know, he was worried about the innocence and stuff like that. That goes nowhere. It was just like a comment, and she didn't even acknowledge it. Amara was just like, eh, okay, we'll help you. You know, she didn't even really acknowledge that he was, you know, attempting to hold the mutant's feet to the fire, in a way. Uh, we get Boom Boom, of course, being really irritating, but she complains about having the trek through the rainforest, right? Now, you figure... Okay, well, she's going to complain here, so this is going to be a long trek. This is going to be like a safari, right? 
But the discussion, this, this, this argument, is interrupted by the fact that they arrived at their destination. Uh, they, that, we, it, did we miss? Like, I don't know. Just feels like there could have been more to that. And uh, though, I mean, search me, I couldn't tell you what it would be. But it just feels like we have all this build-up with the complaints, and it's like, bingo, bango, we're there already. Um, then we get the Predator Wolf X's jumping out, and we jump to like five pages, five entire pages of very decompressed battle. And then it's just over. You know, the, the kids win. Uh, the, you know, what's-her-face armor rips one in half, and Tabitha throws a bomb down one's throat. And that's that. Um, the kids are back on the pack rat, and everything's just, you know, good in the hood. It just doesn't feel like this one played out the way maybe it was intended to, or just didn't play out right to me. Um, of course, we do get that twist with the blonde lady, but I can't say as I'm all that interested in seeing the X-Men fight amorphous quadra- quadrupedal monsters. I don't know. Uh, this just feels like a... a, a this isn't bad, it's unsatisfying. Maybe unsatisfying is the best way to put it here. Just a real unsatisfying bit of business. Um, feels sort of like a, like the creative team is saying, like, Hey guys, remember Nova Roma from the old New Mutants comic? Well, here it is. And that's that. Um, now, on the other side here, we do get the cutaway with Sebastian Shaw, where, which is where I feel like this issue did shine. And... Uh, and if you were to press me in 20 minutes about what this issue is about, this would be the scene I'd remember. Um, I think this is, the, you know, Sebastian Shaw sticking it to the uh, Bohem Cartel. I thought that was really cool, really badass. And, uh, and I mean, we know Shaw is a jerk. We know that he's not, he's not a good guy. But I can't deny that I really enjoyed the scene, and I liked seeing him play and then taunt the Bohems the way he did. Just a real no-nonsense kind of guy, and I uh, really, really thought that was was a very strong part of this issue, and an otherwise uh, totally skippable issue. Um, I did mention in the synopsis, but uh, this scene would have benefited greatly with different, less wacky, cartoony art. This is the Shaw scene, of course. Just uh, tighten it up a little bit. It looked, it just didn't look great. Overall, though, uh, what can we say? I can go back to the beginning of our our fake-ass review portion and say, yes, this was an issue of New Mutants. <laughs> uh, and let's hope for better and more substantial stories in the future. But uh, it was a thing. Um, I hope I hope people enjoyed it. <laughs> I I didn't enjoy it, but I didn't hate it either. So it was just a just a thing. Just a thing that happened to us, but uh, that's all I got to say about New Mutants number eight. But before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here. It's uh, I think we only got one letter to go through, so uh, let's get right in there. Now, this is from Damien, and he's talking about X-Force number six. Now, you might remember, I quite enjoyed X-Force number six. If, uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, or if you're skipping around, or if you just forgot what it's about, it was about the... Uh, the nanofluorites, the uh, biological, um, like, nanotech that uh, a small country was trying to corner the market on. And and it was actually something that could compete with the, mut- the mutant magic meds, you know. And I thought it was a really, really good 
really, really good story in that it uh, it feels like it could have propelled so many things here. So let's hear what Damien has to say about it. He opens with, You seem to enjoy this one a lot more than me. I couldn't get beyond the pretension of the orchestral opening. It felt very Fallen Angelsy." And what Damien's referring to is, early in the issue, Beast is so up his own ass uh, that he is basically referring to himself guiding the X-Force team into battle as that of being like an orchestral conductor. And he talks about the instruments that each of the characters would be. You know, like Wolverine was, was he like drums and cymbals or something? And and Gene was like this fine cello. So, so bad. Um, and I tell you, the opening... I it it almost physically hurt me. Um, so horribly pretentious. It actually did give me a headache because I was sitting there, right? And I try not to be, you know, I don't want to be the guy who nitpicks, especially when it's a book. Like I, I talk about X Force being very forced, right? And I don't want that to become a thing that I'm that I expect myself to find in every issue. I don't want to be the guy who's going to nitpick this series a little bit extra just so I can just so I can fulfill like the boxes that I want to check off when I make fun of something, you know. So I'm sitting there reading this and uh we get this you know Wolverine's a boom 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 and uh and what's his face Quentin's like a, a saxophone and all this stupid crap. And I'm sitting there trying to figure out how I could spin it. You know, how can I share this scene? With, with with you all and not <laughs> and not sound like I'm just like tearing it apart I just uh, it was really uh, a challenge uh, thankfully I loved the rest of the issue so I was able to get past it but uh, I could totally see where you could read those first like three or four pages and be like okay done you know I'm, I'm bagging and boarding this one putting it away I am not going any further with Beast the uh you know, the, the Boston Philharmonic uh, orchestral leader here. I, I don't even know if they have an orchestra. I'm just talking out my ass at this point. I'm sorry. I'm not feeling well. But, uh, yes, definitely very pretentious. Uh, Damien continues, You're right that there were good ideas in the plot. The plant and human hybrids as villains worked well and opens up ideas for the future. Your speculation about future plots was very interesting and makes for many future stories. And definitely, um, I'm really looking forward to see like how and I mean if this plays out. It's just a whole whole other layer added to the uh, doomed futures suggested during Powers of X. I, I really like. I mean, we never heard of this before, so this is all new and uh, very very dangerous. So, really really enjoyed it. Damien continues. You mentioned the monsters remind you of the Martian Manhunter. I was reminded of a storyline from Shadow of the Bat by Alan Grant and Dave Taylor where Poison Ivy teamed up with the Floronic Man to create a new, more dangerous form of marijuana. Floro is depicted as a constantly changing plant creature who was permanently high and looked very similar to the creatures here. And I'm not familiar with that storyline. Um, though, I was... Uh, early on, I was a huge fan of Shadow of the Bat. Um, it was like my first Bat book. And it was, of course, I was able to get the number one. You know, it came out, what, around the time of Batman Returns, I believe. So summer of 90, summer of 92, maybe? Somewhere around there? 
But I remember buying the first issue here and just totally just falling in love with it. I felt like I was on the ground floor, you know. And this is the first book that I bought with like an eye toward collecting Batman comics. Um, Rather than just picking up something that had a cool cover or just something that like my mom or dad just bought and, you know, dropped in my lap. Here, read this, you know, be quiet. But uh, this was the first book that I actually bought. And I got so sucked in by the opening arc, which was the uh, the last Arkham. But uh, it was also where I realized that there were like so many Batman books, but none of them really advanced like the A plot. You know, they were all just kind of there. Uh, one I remember very, very vividly is the cliffhanger for the penultimate chapter uh, in Shadow of the Bat 3. And we have Batman, he's just about to be pounced on by, like, every inmate at Arkham, right? Now, this scene actually managed to kind of get under my skin. And, like, I was really trying to figure... I was doing, like, weird mental gymnastics to try to think about how, ways they could actually write their write themselves out of this. So then I go to the comic shop and I see that there are another three and four Batman books that come out that month. And so I'm picking them up, right? I'm picking them up to see if, like, there's any hints as to what happened in, in Arkham. And uh, and they're, they're their own thing. All, they're all their own thing. And, I mean, I was still very new to the fandom. I was new to the hobby. I was not accustomed to there being uh, several stories running concurrently in, in, like, a family of titles, you know? I was just figuring that everything kind of fed into itself and everything would reference everything else. But, I mean, I'm looking at, like, a Batman book where he's fighting the Electrocutioner and then a detective book where he's fighting the Penguin and and then there's Shadow of the Bat where he's locked up in Arkham. It's like, well, what the hell is this all about? And, uh, And I asked the guy at the comic shop, like, which was the main Batman book, right? Which is the main one? Which one mattered the most? And he kind of, like, shrugged me off. He's like, nah. And, and, I mean, at the end of the day, that's the right answer, right? I mean, which one is the main Batman book back in 1991, 1992? There's a, you know, I, I couldn't tell you. I guess it's a bit of my child childish naivete that uh, that died <laughs> that day. And, uh, and I had this, like, really sad realization that the story that I'd invested so much, you know, time and energy and emotion into reading and rereading and analyzing, I mean, as much as an 11- or 12-year-old can analyze a comic, um, I realized that it didn't matter. Uh, it made everything Bat-related feel, like, so cheap. I mean, I at the end of the day, I was a dumb kid, right? So, but that uh, Shadow of the Bat is one that... Anytime I see it in the cheapo bins, I'll just look at it and kind of kind of shake my head because uh, it uh, it made and broke my the bat fan inside me for in a lot of ways. Uh, Damien continues, reading this, I'm pretty sure we're meant to see Hank as a villain. He's so single-minded and ruthless. Experimenting on living subjects is a bit of a moral uh, is a bit of a moral event horizon. And yeah, yeah, they're really doing a number on poor old Hank here, aren't they? Um, I mean, as we mentioned before, first we start and he's a total, like, pretentious tool. <laughs> and then he's shown as a, like, a psychotic, evil, mad scientist. Um, and he's driven by, I mean, whatever, I'm not sure what he's even driven by here. He's just... Really, he's just engaging in a whole lot of self-justification, you know, like talking about the righteousness of what he's doing. But uh, 
that's a that's a hell of a slippery slope, and it's not a good look. And I think I said uh, when we talked about this issue that I thought maybe this was headed for like a redemption arc for Beast, though. I mean, I doubt that's coming anytime soon. And uh, and even if it does, at this point, it'll probably be written by Percy, which will be as ham-fisted and as and purple as everything else he's jammed into this book. So, I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, Damien continues, My biggest problem with the story was Jean Grey-related. Did no one tell Percy that it was Jean who suggested to kill no human as a key law of Krakoa? She strikes me as the least likely X-Man to do anything just because she's told to. It's so out of character for, for her to blindly follow Beast's orders. Based on what has happened in the series so far, I would expect Jean to be getting Hank removed from the security team because he's gone too far. And yeah, you and me both. Um, this felt especially ruthless. And I mean, even though you know Jean did express concern and reluctance and ultimately regret and annoyance... She still did it, right? I mean, she still did it, and I, I don't, I can't, I don't see Jean going there, right? I don't think, I don't see her that being part of her character, and uh, it was very disappointing to see it here. I mean, hell, I mentioned during the discussion of that issue that I had a problem with Jean cursing, you know? I mean, so I had a problem with. I thought that was out of character, much less her actually ending lives. The whole scene just felt wrong, and it's one of those things that it's kind of, it's kind of hard to walk that one back. You know, I mean, she did it; it's done. She can say she didn't want to do it, but she still did it, and uh, not a fan of that. Not a fan of that at all. Um, it's uh, this is one of those stories where one of those scenes, I should say, where it's like I want that. Uh, I want the uh, the Evan Bevins theory to p- to play out, where uh, these are just clones we're reading about. But uh, I, I would imagine a lot of people would be very upset if that actually came to pass. But uh, back to Damien, he says, I love the art. Steven Segovia drew the issue of Hellions I read as I was following X of Tens, and he's a real talent. Great action scenes and wonderful character work. They really have a good bunch of artists working for the X office at the moment. And I want to say the first time I saw Segovia was over at DC, probably on one of the post-rebirth titles. And uh, I was instantly impressed. I really, really like him. He's a hell of a talent. And I'm happy to hear that we'll be seeing more of his work here in the X-Books. And you're right. For the most part, uh, the X-Art teams are very solid. Uh, You know, Marco Fiala on this issue of New Mutants, not necessarily my cup of tea, but, uh, but at the same time, we've come... Or they've come a long way. Uh, it feels like for the middle of the 2010s or so, the X-Books were, they were like given to all the newbies like as tryout books. Like they didn't care about the X-Men books. You know, we ha- we'd have A-list creators, you know, tenured creators, creators people have heard of on the Avengers and on Spider-Man. And, and just the X-Men would get whoever was left. And uh, I didn't think that was a, I, I, I really didn't like that. I mean, it was clear to to a lot of folks that the X Men were not. Uh, Marvel really didn't care about them because they, you know, they re re didn't have the movie rights. But uh, it, it it made it, it made the line feel like an afterthought, and uh, it made the books feel kind of like tryout books. Uh, a lot of amateurish and uneven looking books uh, happened in you know over the past ten years in in the X Men books, but. 
it's nice to see that we're getting steady teams of uh, really, really fine talent here. And uh, I, I'm happy to hear that we're going to be seeing more of that as we as we continue our way through. But uh, thank you so much, Damien, for the letter. And uh, I do apologize for answering it in a raspy way. <laughs> but uh, if anyone else would like to write, uh, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts at chrisisoninfinitearths.com. We're on Facebook at 90sXmen, and the entire audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for now. Uh, I just want to thank everyone so much for listening and for tolerating my voice, or lack thereof, over the past several episodes. Uh, Going to be drinking a lot of tea. Hopefully that'll help. Uh, but... Uh, But I definitely thank you all so much. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 67 of x Lamps, where we're going to be discussing a book that we probably should have discussed on the last episode here. Uh, we probably should have done this one before we discussed X-Men number 8. I suppose we could pretend I did. Uh, but in fairness to me, I'm just following the reading order that Marvel put in the books. So, apologies. These Both of the books came out the same day, so... I guess uh, if you bought them both, you have a 50-50 chance of reading them in the right order. If you follow the Marvel way, you're reading them in the reverse order. So, just like we are here. Uh, The book we're going to be discussing today is New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 9. It's had a May 2020 cover date. The story's called Something Rotten In... Written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano, or Flaviano. Colors by Carlos Lopez, led is VCs Travis Lanham, designs Tom Muller, head of X is Hickman, edits Bisa White Sapolsky, cover price $3.99, and went on sale the same day as X-Men number 8, that was uh, March 11th, 2020. Now our story opens in Carnelia, which uh, 
Isn't that the town you start in back in the, the first Final Fantasy? Nah, nah. It's, uh, it's actually just another Russian-ish safe target for the Dawn of X books. Um, it's still, uh, still kind of funny how like the Russians are once again safe targets. I don't know. So we see this. Uh, it's a snowy field. We see a large sewer pipe sticking out, and in it sits a very strange and bulbous character indeed. It's mostly in the shadows, but we can tell that it's uh, probably humanoid in shape. From here, we get an info page all about Carnelia. We get a picture of a map. It shows that this place is located by, like, the southwestern tip of the Ukraine. And amid a whole lot of information about the country that we couldn't possibly care about, we do actually get something. And stop me if you've heard this one before. The, the nation of Carnelia does not recognize Krakoa as a sovereign nation. Is this idea getting a little played out to anyone else? I, I know I'm... It feels like we're getting this a little a little too often here. Um, what are you going to do? Uh, from here, we get our double-page spread of creds, then our roll call. And uh, the folks we're going to be paying attention to this time are Boom Boom, Chamber, Magma, Mirage, Karma, Magic, Cyclops, Cypher, Mondo, and Armor. Back to comics, and the New Mutants A-Team are back at home at the Sextant. Of course, they were in Shi'ar space. There, Boom Boom's annoyed that all of her friends went into space without her. She's assured that they tried to wake her before they left, but she wouldn't budge, probably because she was passed out sloppy drunk. Now, she's also ticked off that they would take Chamber and Mondo with them instead of her. She goes as far as to say that those two aren't even part of the team. To which Karma says, they are now. Which, to me, kind of squashes the idea that we might get a Generation X arc sometime, sometime down the line, huh? If uh, we're all <laughs> the amalgamated uh, young mutant group here. Uh, Magma enters to greet her friends and walks right past Chamber, much to his chagrin. Now, it would, it would appear that old Jono's got the hot pants for Amara uh, here. Danny suggests that he'll have plenty of time to make an impression on her later. I mean, where are they going, right? Elsewhere, Magic and Cyclops are having a captain-to-commander chat. Now, despite the fact that Magic has spent the past several weeks, assumedly, in uh, Shi'ar space with his blessing, he still holds her somewhat responsible for the incident that occurred at the farm in Pilgrim, Nebraska. She justifies the actions of the Amalgamated Young Mutants of Krakoa LLC, claiming that, if not for their intervening, it probably would have ended far worse. Cyclops, eh, he pretty much plays the bad boss here. You know, he acts like he's, he still acts like he's disappointed, you know, it's kind of the, uh, you know, if, I, I think we've all worked for people like that, where no matter what you do, it, it could always be a little bit better, right? The, the, the folks that won't ever give you a 10 out of 10 on your uh, on your annual review. I think we all we all know people just like that. Anyway, magic more or less blows them off. Says we did what we did or they did what they did and uh, you know, if you don't like it, stick it. From here we jump back to Carnelia and some soldiers head into the sewer pipe. And inside they find a very strange sight. Uh, reality is warped and there's a creature within this like weird field of other reality uh, begging them for help. We jump back to Krakoa, where as luck would have it, hey, the kids are just about to head to Carnelia. Uh, I'm guessing Cerebro picked up on our new reality warper, and uh, since the country doesn't recognize mutantum, it's up to this team to perform a little rescue mission. 
So they hop in the pack rat too, which they, uh, you know, quote unquote, borrowed from old man Cable. He probably won't be missing it since he's dead. And then they head uh, whichever direction might be most expedient to get from Krakoa to Carnelia. It's worth noting that since Carnelia doesn't recognize Krakoa, they don't have any gateways on their land. So that's why we're taking the pack rat. Now, while they head off, we pop back to the sextant, Alpha House to be specific. There, Armor and Cypher are trying to do something with Krakoa. Uh, it's like they're trying to connect a computer system or something to tap in to something. It's not very clearly explained, and I don't think it's supposed to be at this point. Amondo, uh, he's also lingering around there, and so Doug asks if, you know, maybe he'll let him use his body one more time to connect to the island. Maybe help get a jump start to whatever they're trying to do. Mondo reminds Doug that, you know, the last time we did that... Mondo said he'd give a, he'd, he'd punch Doug in the face if he ever tried that again, if you remember. Doug suggests that Mondo could punch him twice if this works. Mondo agrees, and bada-bing, bada-boom, Doug is able to make a connection, after which Mondo throws up. Next, an info page. It's a Carnelian missing poster with a young girl named Natasha Tashi Rapina on it. And, uh... Most notably, she has braces, which suddenly makes the cover of the next issue of New Mutants make a whole lot of sense, if you're familiar with that image, and you will be soon. Anywho, she's missing, and her parents were found dead, so it stands to reason that the Carnelians might want to track this one down. Speaking of Carnelia, how about we head back there? Now, the soldiers, they're at the same location. I think it's the same location. Uh, there's a building there. I don't know if we're just looking at it from a different angle. We do see some reality warping in the distance here, like a big, like, black bubble, sort of just there. Then, the pack rat, the new mutants, arrive. Now, the soldiers don't have time for mutants, of course. Remember, they don't acknowledge their existence in the first place. Uh, Danny laments the fact that they didn't bring Doug with them, considering, you know, the language barrier they're about to face. Then, Boom Boom busts out with some first-year Russian. And it's kind of weird. Uh, Tabitha's first like word balloon is like really highly broken <laughs> in dialogue here. It's like just like little words, you know, trying to make a point. Then her second one is like nearly fluent. I, I-, I get the feeling this was supposed to be funny. I didn't think it was. Uh, I don't know if uh, Tabitha's worldliness is a remnant from Next Wave, which uh, ugh. And we'll, well, maybe we'll talk a little bit about Next Wave later on. Ugh. Uh, now, whatever the case, she's able to get the soldiers to stand down. They point the new mutants into the direction of the disturbance. And so they head in, and they find the reality warper. Now, Karma attempts to reach out, but is overcome by reality warping feedback, or something like that. It's a pretty cool-looking visual. Uh, Karma is basically wrecked here. There's like snakes coming out of her eyes. She's all frayed. It's it's pretty cool looking. Chamber steps in to help, but he gets nailed too. Ditto magma. So this, uh, this reality warper is just wrecking stuff. Mirage makes a frantic call back to the island to speak to Doug to let him know what's going down. And she lets him know that they're, you know, they're being overwhelmed here and they're in dire need of assistance. Back on Krakoa, Doug's like, hey, I'm on it. And so we follow him, Armor, and Mondo to... I don't know. Uh, I didn't realize that Krakoa had an other side of the tracks, but apparently they do. Because this side of... Uh, this little side of the island is not that pretty. And it's uh, the Mutant Liberation Front's ramshackle digs. 
Uh, they're greeted by Forearm, who's uh, sitting on a very classy outdoor couch. And I don't say that as in you know lawn furniture or outside furniture. This is like an actual indoor couch, just just happens to be outside the home. You know, it's very very classy. Now they barge past, and we see some more of the MLFers. We see Samurai, Dragonus, and Strobe. And out of those three, I only really remember Dragoness because I remember her being decapitated one time back in the long ago. And I feel like they spent like a half dozen panels like following her bouncing decapitated head. Though it was probably just the one panel and I imagined all the rest. But I remember a particular focus on her head bouncing across some panels. Maybe I'm wrong. Finally, Doug finds who he's looking for. And that is... Wildside, who's in the middle of clipping his disgusting toenails with a pair of scissors. And that's that. That is New Mutants, volume whatever this is, issue number whatever this was. Uh, next episode, we'll be talking about Excalibur number nine, but yeah, let's talk about this. Um, yeah, this was a, this was an issue of New Mutants, all right. Um, yeah, to start, to start, uh, it's been a long time since I've read, like, the early Legion appearances in New Mutants, but part of me can't shake the feeling that this feels, at least in the sorta kinda, just like that. I mean, with the reality warping and the, 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 the kids getting overwhelmed, and it feels kinda like when they ran in with Legion. Uh, it's not a bad issue. Uh, it might actually be the strongest Brisson New Mutants issue to this point. Though much of that might have to do with the cast that he's allowed to play with here. It's not just, you know, Glob Herman and uh, Beak. Um, the issue, uh, you know, one thing that we've talked about, the one thing that we haven't talked about, rather, with these books is decompression. I feel like, for the most part, the Dawn of X books have sidestepped, outside of Fallen Angels, of course, because that was a joke. But outside of Fallen Angels, decompression really hasn't been something we've really been smacked in the face with. This feels kind of decompressed. And, uh, I mean, that's not a New Mutants problem. That's not an X-Men problem. That's just a current year comics thing. Uh, we do get a few story spurs here, which will hopefully play out before long. Um, you know, first things first, we have a new reality warper. Uh, she's a mutant, and maybe maybe we'll have a new team member before long. Now, considering what like the next couple of covers of this book look like... I'm guessing we're going to be sticking with this as our main focus for the next little while, and that's fine. That's fine. I'm, you know, I'm. After the weirdness of the first two arcs of this volume, I'm totally cool with us just staying the course and finishing a story. So, <laughs> thumbs up to that. Hopefully, next issue it's not going to be like Surge and uh, and Wallflower. Uh, I don't know, go into a ballet recital or something. Hopefully it's just more of this. Let's get this done. Uh, second, we get Doug Ramsey doing something with Krakoa. Uh, he's attempting to interface, but we don't yet know why. I guess I'm interested in seeing where this goes. You know, why not, right? Give Doug something to do. It's funny. Every time Doug comes up in conversation, people are like, oh, he's so underused. He's so underrated. It's like, We've seen so much of Doug in here. Like, get out of here with the underrated stuff and the underused stuff. He's he's like everywhere, uh, and here he is again. Uh, also, we get that weird standoffish scene between Cyclops and Magic. This one didn't really sit too well with me. Um, as I mentioned during the synopsis, Cyclops is kind of playing that boss that you can never that you can never impress. 
The one where, like, no matter how successful an endeavor or a project goes, they'll always tell you it could have been done better. It could have been done more uh, quicker. It could have been done at a lower cost. It's always some sort of BS. And I suppose there are worse ways to depict Cyclops. And indeed, they have depicted him far worse, even, even during Dawn of X, in my opinion. Magic outright dismissing him... I don't know how I feel about that. I, I don't even know what Magic's character is supposed to be right now. Like, I, I feel like, and maybe this is intentional, she feels like she doesn't, like, have a heart, you know? It's just, I don't know. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not really digging a, a, lot of, a lot of Magic's interpersonals here. I do wonder if this is the start of a schism between the Krakoan captains. And I suppose that might be an interesting tack to take, but... In the grand scheme of things, it feels like it's a little too soon. I mean, despite the fact that we've been reading these books for, like, a really long time at this point. I mean, this is the 67th issue that we're reading here. At this point in the comic, the New Mutants have only really had one mission. And if the relationship is going to fray over the the direction of a single mission, I don't know, how strong was it to begin with? You know, um... I guess it's difficult to reconcile real-world time with in-story time, and uh, perhaps we're supposed to think that a lot of stuff has happened outside of just magic going to Shi'ar space with the rest of them and uh, then the little Pilgrim Nebraska side. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too hard, or maybe I'm not thinking hard enough. Um, boom, boom. I, I feel like she was added to this crew to act as comic relief, which... I don't think worked quite as well as it could have. Again, this is Next Wave Tabitha, not X-Force Tabitha. And uh, I'll actually admit that I found Next Wave to be wildly overrated. That's another one of those things that is constantly being touted as being underrated, though it's hard to find a single person who says anything bad about it. I wasn't too much of a fan of it. I think it was... Uh, eh, I, I'll, I'll leave that where it's at. I just didn't... I didn't dig it. Um, Boom Boom suddenly and awkwardly being fluent in Russian. Was that supposed to be funny? It wasn't. Um, Boom Boom claiming to have learned Russian from an old fence or friend. Was that funny? No, not really. It was also a little tryhard. I will say the art was great. Uh, I really like Flaviano's take on the characters, and even the new reality warper here, even though we don't get a good look at her outside of the missing poster. Uh, Though, you know, I I would have to say, and it's not anybody's fault, but with each each page I couldn't help but wonder how Rod Reese would have rendered it. Because, I mean, we've seen him do some Sienkiewiczian stuff, right? Uh, And now we have a reality warper, and... Sienkiewicz was pretty instrumental on Legion, you know, which really which really gave him the opportunity to flex some creative muscle there and just play. So if we were able to have a Reese on this book right here where we are dealing with reality going crazy, like just look at the, the page where Karma has like snakes coming out of her eyes and she's overcome by this weirdness. I mean, I would have loved to see seen how uh, Rod Reese would have uh, drawn that page because it's it seems to be written for his strengths, and uh, it's a shame that it it wasn't him. But Flaviano wasn't bad at all; he definitely uh, pulled his weight. Overall, 
ah, it's just another book that I don't have a whole heck of a lot to say. It's just another issue. Um, didn't love it. Didn't hate it. It does certainly feel like a step back in quality and urgency. And in my opinion, as it pains me to say it, but uh, I don't feel like New Mutants is must-reading anymore. Um, I feel like this is just another book. Take it, leave it. It's not vital. Um, and I, I again, I haven't looked at things like... Um, Sales charts outside of a very few times that we did it here on the show, so I'm interested to see, you know, what the uh, to compare and contrast the Hickman books and the Brisson books, because I have a feeling that it's probably not a staggering difference, but I'm sure there is some slight difference uh, between the two because uh, this really just doesn't have the same excitement, unfortunately. Though, despite the fact that I don't consider this to be must-reading for the greater comics uh, enthusiast out there, we will, of course, continue reading it. But, again, I wouldn't blame folks if they stopped plunking down their, you know, foreign change on the counter to, to get this book at this point. But we'll still be here time after time to follow these exploits and to find out whatever we can about our new reality warper and, uh, and our amalgamated Young Mutants of Krakoa, LLC. But... That's all I really got to say about New Mutants number 9. Uh, before we go, let's dip into the mailbag here. We got some real good stuff to discuss. We're going to start with a letter from Damien, where he's talking about X-Force number 8. He says, Some fascinating stuff in this issue of X-Force. I think I've mentioned before that I slowly dropped all the X-Books apart from Marauders, so I'm reading most of these comics for the first time on Marvel Unlimited as I follow you. A lot of what you said about this issue is addressed more directly in the next issue of X-Men. That's X-Men number 7. In fact, I think this story would work better after reading X-Men number 7, as you can see that Krakoa allows people to choose to die. And that is 100% true. X-Men number 7 goes really deep into the subject of a mutant's right to die. Um, and I already have uh, Damien's letter regarding that issue, so we will put a pin in that for now, and we'll, we'll cover that more Um when uh, when I discuss when I cover Damien's feedback, uh, probably next episode, to uh, discuss that uh, even more. Uh, Damien continues. The things that, the thing I found interesting was Colossus's belief that he would come back without his traumatic memories. This doesn't sit with the idea that Professor X is constantly updating the backups. If you're on Krakoa, I can see no reason for you to be resurrected from an old backup. Surely, Colossus and Domino would come back exactly as they just as they were with their physical injuries healed. Maybe there's a suggestion that the memory of a traumatic event relies on physical memory as well as emotional recall. Maybe a new body distances the trauma. I don't know. And I too don't know. I'm really not sure what Colossus is expecting at a resurrection. But it's clear that he sees it as something of a relief from the trauma. And I mean, this might be thinking way too hard, but maybe, perhaps, this is a commentary about suicide as a concept. Which, I mean, that's a discussion far above my pay grade. But suffice it to say, some may view it as an ending to pain. Maybe that's where Colossus is coming from? Maybe he feels like he deserves to die. Maybe the trauma of dying would... Backburner the current torment, right? I mean, he's got a lot of stuff on his mind right now, but maybe actually going through death would trump that. You know, maybe push that to 
I don't want to say put it into perspective because, I mean, we're dealing with some weird, weird stuff here, but I don't know. And, and, you know, I mean, we're still not 100% sure what he went through in Russia. We just know it was awful. We don't know if he if he engaged in some unsavory things. I mean, we're seeing him featured in the X-Force book where Beast is telling people, telling heroes not to leave survivors, not to leave witnesses, you know? It's... It's a different world. It's a different book. So who's to, who knows what Colossus had to do in order to save those uh, refugees? I mean, he might have he might have slaughtered families. He might have done some really, really heavy stuff that we just don't know. Uh, Damien continues. It does seem like Colossus believes that Xavier edits the resurrected in some way. But we have seen plenty of people carrying trauma from before resurrection. For example, Vulcan was shown remembering his death. Maybe he believed that when they discover a suicide that they would choose to correct the mental health issues underlying the act. And that's an awesome theory. Um, because, I mean, if we look at it, Xavier bringing back a mutant who took his own life, that seems like something that might lead to a recurrence, right? A self-fulfilling prophecy. Because, I mean, if Colossus comes back and he still has that torment he still has the uh the tortured you know soul who's to say he wouldn't just keep killing himself and would xavier keep bringing him back exactly the same way it's like that whole you know the definition of exa- of insanity right it's why would we assume that he wouldn't be unhappy this time so that's an awesome theory that xavier might be like okay well he killed himself, so how can I make it so he wouldn't do that again? You know, unless you have the the living will, like Domino, where she says, I want to live through this trauma. I want this trauma to remain with me every time I'm brought back. It's heavy. It's a heavy, uh, heavy topic. Uh, Damien continues, uh, As you say, this issue sits uncomfortably with our theory that Charles is changing the resurrected. Then again, all our information comes from someone suffering from severe PTSD, so he may be misinterpreting how the resurrection protocols work. And yeah, that's very, very true. Uh, Part of me just wonders if Colossus is just looking at this as a last-ditch effort, like his only way out, you know? Um, That's something that I think... Yeah, I made the joke about a DNR, you know? Uh, Not a do-not-resuscitate, but a do-not-resurrect. I wonder if the mutants have any say in that. Because to bring a mutant back who doesn't want to come back, I mean, that's like that's like torture, right? I mean, it's like, well, you're not going to die. You're not getting that release because Xavier said so. If you, you want to rest in peace, you, you just don't get that option here. i, I got to wonder if there is like a DNR, uh, a Krakoan DNR where... If you just want to release from pain, from torment, from your own thoughts, it's it's weird. And it really speaks to how wibbly-wobbly the, the right to die is here. Um, a very, very heavy stuff that I wish I'd prepared more notes for because I hadn't thought about it until right this second. Maybe we'll talk more about that in, uh, in future episodes, but... That's pretty interesting to, uh, to consider, right? I mean, maybe it's just me, but... Uh, I'll put a pin in that and maybe revisit it down the line here. If anybody else has thoughts about a Krakoan DNR, please, please share them with me. Uh, Damien continues. It says a lot about Domino that she actively chooses to work through her trauma. She knows that she can get through it and move on. 
It's also revelatory that Peter was so easy to convince not to give up. Suicidal ideation is often genuinely a cry for help rather than an actual desire to die. I'm not sure murdering a lot of mercenaries is the healthiest way to recover from trauma, but it seems to work. Um... You know, I've talked a bit about my academic career and my academic life here, and um, over the course of the past eh, 10 or so years, I, I have worked a little bit on a volunteer basis in behavioral health units, and uh, I've worked with a lot of folks, um, patients, uh, you know, not, not in any sort of an advisory level, just as an observer, and uh, I've been flat out told that they're, what they did was nothing more than a cry for help. Um, you know, it's, again, this is stuff that I really don't have a whole lot of uh, credibility in or legitimacy in speaking about. But, uh, you know, a lot of these folks were, you know, I, I hate saying repeat offenders, but I mean, for lack of a better term, that's kind of what they are. And uh, they might have just been telling me what they thought they were supposed to tell me, just as an observer. Um, and also, in that time, I spoke with a lot of um, professionals, seasoned, you know, behavioral techs, psychologists, nurses, uh, psychiatrists, and um, not to make a generalization, but uh, a lot of them told me that uh, most, or many, maybe many is more proper to say. Of those with strong ideations, uh, actually, you know, they succeed in their attempt, you know, to uh, further. And again, I don't want to make a generalization here since this is, I feel like this is a very personal topic to a lot of people and a very, very heavy one at that. But uh, the cry for help versus the legitimate, as Damien put it, desire to die, it's... There is intersectionality between the two, but there there is also a lot separating the two. There is a difference, um, at least in in my anecdotal experience uh, as an observer and a uh, and a you know uh, uneducated half of a discussion. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll leave that there and continue with uh, with comic book talk. Uh, Damien continues. What this issue really made me wonder is if we've ever seen telepathy used as an active treatment for PTSD. We've seen multiple stories where trauma is erased. Maxime and Manon removed Beak's memories in a recent New Mutants, for example. But I can't think of a single voluntary eraser of mem erasure of memories in order to get over trauma. It feels like there's a possible story there. And that is an amazing point. And as I read that sentence or that paragraph there, I thought to myself, there must have been an instance of voluntary memory erasure. But I can't actually think of a one. <laughs> You know, it seems like there's a lot of lot of very interesting ways that sort of a uh, story could go, uh, or just as a concept. Um, there, it feels like there's a lot of meat there, and I'm I'm shocked that I can't cite a single story. Maybe I'm not thinking hard enough, but I can't think of one, and it seems so obvious, doesn't it? I mean, we've seen Professor X, especially, like, go back to the Silver Age. Everybody the X-Men met got their minds wiped. It seemed like every issue, the last page is like, okay, well, I mind wiped everybody so they don't know we're here. But we've never seen, like, a voluntary, here, take my thoughts away. I did something bad, take my thoughts away. 
And it really speaks to Colossus's struggle here in that he sees death as his only outlet or his only exit, rather than just going to Xavier and saying, "Hey, you mind rewinding me? You know, you mind maybe blocking some thoughts out of my mind?" Or go to Maxime and Manon. You know, we know that they'll do it. It's uh, it's interesting. That's interesting, and I wonder. Yeah, I wonder if we'll see something like that going forward here. Um, you know, uh, the, the Dawn of X uh, brain trust, for a lack of a better term, and to steal something that they had in the Spider-Man family of books back in the day, they seem to be um, very forward-thinking and uh, are doing a lot of stuff outside the box. So I, I do wonder if we'll see something like that. That, that could be very, very cool. Uh, Damien continues. I'm looking forward to hearing you develop your thoughts about the theological implications of Krakoa when you get to the next episode. I'm going to save my response for then, and uh, we will indeed talk about that probably next episode. So I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to parsing that and, uh, and going through. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Thanks again for keeping us entertained on a daily basis. It must be so much work, but it's greatly appreciated. And uh, to which I say thank you for uh, keeping me company on a daily basis, because uh, it's a lot of work and it's also lonely. So it's nice to know that there are folks out there who are uh, who are enjoying and who are uh, on this trip with me and with us. It's it's really cool feeling like we're in this this little uh, book club community, just uh, all all propping each other up and, and sharing our thoughts and uh, just enjoying the ride. So thank you so much, Damien. It's always always a pleasure. Next, we have a piece from uh, Mark, our friend uh, Green Lantern HG, and he's discussing Cable Number One. He says, Chris, fantastic last two episodes. I'm liking the idea of an arena where mutants can fight each other without killing. It just makes my head spin with all the possible matches. But Jubilee losing a Dazzler? Come on, she was trained by Wolverine. I demand a rematch. To which I say, yes, I agree 100%. Dazzler shouldn't have beaten Jubilee. But uh, Jubilee's a Gen X kid, and it seems like the Gen X kids are really getting a... uh, I don't know, they're getting the stink eye in the Dawn of X uh, books here. They're, they're looked at as slobs, as slackers, as losers. It's, yeah, I think I think we need a revolt. Uh, people of my vintage, we need to, uh, we need the Generation X to get their own, their own book, or at least their own arc, so they can uh, maybe show that they're, show that they are up to, up to speed with everybody else. But uh, thank you so much for your uh, kind words there, Mark. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to wrap up with a very interesting email here from our friend Andrew at Mighty Evil Doom on Twitter. Now, back when we were discussing, I think I asked a few times, but most recently during X-Men number seven, where we talked about the Crucible and uh, talked about how uh, dicey and divisive and just how heady the concept was and how much how much it made you think, right? How much that issue in and of itself was just a real thinker in that it kind of it kind of transcended what you'd figure from just a regular just comic book story. It, was, it had a lot of themes in there, had a lot of uh, a lot of meat on the bone, you know, so to speak. And I uh, put out a call for anyone who isn't enjoying the Dawn of X direction, the Hox Pox Doc Socks direction. And uh, because overwhelmingly, we've only been talking about the positive. I mean, of course, there have been things we haven't liked. Um, in all the correspondence that we've covered here in the mailbag, there have been things we haven't liked. And I mean, not just talking about Fallen Angels. There's been stuff in just about every title 
that we'll call into question and just be like, yeah, they could have done this better. Oh, I don't like this direction. But I haven't had any messages from someone who just flat out has not appreciated the direction that this is going. And I, I want that. I definitely want that because I feel like I feel like all opinions are valid. And uh, I went into this entire project with a certain certain preconception. Not only about the concept, not only about the characters, not only about the creators involved, but just the entire endeavor. You know, uh, it's funny, I'm reading for another program on this channel, it's called Major X Lapsed, where I'm going through the six issue, or seven with the zero, issue miniseries of Major X. And as I'm moving further through that, I'm starting to see house ads for House of X. And Marvel is huge on House of X in these things. They're calling it the next seminal event in X-Men history. Like, putting it up there with with X-Men number one, and with Giant Size, and with uh, Age of Apocalypse, and with X-Men volume two number one with uh, Lee and Claremont, putting it up there with uh, the Morrison run. This is supposed to be the next big thing. There, there are house ads with the, uh, the Mora and Charles page from... I want to say probably House of X number two, where we start learning about Moore's past. And on top of on top of that page, it says this is the most important page in X Men history. You know, so Marvel was touting this as something larger than anything that's come in a very very long time. And so I I'm very interested to hear from people who weren't on aren't on board, don't like this direction. Because, indeed, it is a very, very different direction. Am I enjoying it? I'm enjoying it, yes. Is it my favorite take on the X-Men? Hell no. No. This, to me, this is, this is a good story. This is, um, it's, a, it's a great story. There's a lot of good stuff here. But it's not, it's not like my, my Desert Island X-Men book. You know, um... I'm not even sure what my Desert Island X-Men book would be, but I know this isn't it. <laughs> you know, this is not... This isn't the X-Men I grew up with. And I want to hear from people who feel the same way and uh, who may just not dig this. Because I, I believe there's value in that. I, I, I want to see this through as many prisms as possible because I think... When we go into something liking it, we may ignore some things that are blatantly things we don't like. And conversely, if we go into something with a negative attitude, like I almost did, you may dismiss things that you should or you would normally like because it's just not delivered in the package you want it in. So I, I'm really, really excited to cover this message here. I know I'm taking the scenic route to get here, but let's let I'll shut up for a second with my own thoughts and uh, start reading Andrews. He says, I'm starting this letter after listening to the episode on X-Men number seven on my morning commute. I have five more episodes to listen to today, so it's going to be a good day. Which, having my voice in your head for that long, that's... Oof, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> Andrew continues. I haven't written into the show before because, and I suspect I'm in the minority here... I haven't read any Dawn of X books, and I'm not reading along with the show, so I feel like any thoughts or opinions I have on the books aren't really worth that much. However, after X-Men number 7 and your call to hear from those with a less positive viewpoint, I guess I ran out of excuses not to write in. And first, I mean, 
we're, I'm trying to deliver these books as as best I can to uh, convey the story. Of course, it's coming through my prism, but I'm trying to at least deliver the synopsis in as uh, unbiased or unleading, unbaiting sort of way, just as even-keeled. So, I mean, your, your opinions are just as valid as the rest of us here, so I definitely don't hold back. Don't hold back. Uh, Andrew continues. Now, I stopped reading X-Men after Morrison, but would occasionally flip through a new trade at the library or a new issue at the comic shop just to see what was up. Nothing I saw ever appealed to me, but I still wanted to keep abreast of what was happening and how Marvel was screwing up the X-Men this time. When Hoxpox dropped, I was it was so hyped up that I wanted to read it. And all I can say about Hickman is that I wish he'd write a sci-fi novel because I'd love to read it. I can't say Hoxpox was bad, only as an X-Fan, as a... Only that as an X-Fan, as a potential new customer, it left me cold. It was full of interesting ideas, but it took the X-Men in too different of a direction. It was too far removed from anything that made me like the X-Men. Ditching superheroics for boring parliamentary meetings? Magic islands? Immortality? It simply wasn't for me. Very well said. It is very different. It is very, very different. Um... I've talked to a lot of folks who left when Morrison did. Um, I I didn't leave after Morrison did, but I did stop reading for probably three or four months after Morrison left. And I, I you know, I'm still buying because I always buy. But uh, I did take a little bit of a break because the post-Morrison issues were just, they weren't great. <laughs> they were really not very good at all. Um, but I did, of course, catch up, but from the Morrison run till now, like, it's, during Hoxbox days, they mentioned the Lost Decade, which probably doesn't start right after Morrison left. I would put it at around, probably, AVX, Avengers vs. X-Men is where I would put the Lost Decade beginning. Um, I recently had someone ask me, uh, where to start. Because they had, they had left the X Men books uh, right after Morrison left, and wanted to catch up, but didn't want to read a bunch of stuff that, you know, wouldn't matter or just wouldn't uh, wouldn't fit the flow. And the part, the place where I put them, you know, the, where I told them where they should start was Schism, you know, and Schism might actually be where a lot of people would put the Lost Decade beginning. But uh, it's interesting hearing you say that uh, you'd flip through and see how they're screwing up the X-Men this time around because I feel like I'll, I feel like you're not alone in that. I feel like a lot of folks, you'd get the hype for every once in a while where, you know, AVX, Schism, uh, uh, you know, all new X-Men, stuff like that. And, uh, and then you'd flip through it and be like, nope, not for me. <laughs> but with Hoxpox here... Um, if I read books without pictures in it, I guess a Hickman novel would be good, but I, I don't do that, so you know I really don't have much of an opinion on that. But uh, your points here are very well taken. Here, we do ditch superheroics for meetings. Uh, we have the Quiet Council, Krakoa, the Magic Island, Immortality, Rebirths, Resurrection Protocols. It is very different. It's very different, and I can see it. I could definitely see it leaving someone cold because. As we've said, and as I've said time and time again, that the stakes are different now. You know, we've sh we've shifted the stakes. The characters are, 
and I think I mentioned this recently, I feel like the concepts are the star here and the characters are background. Um, where the X-Men, when the X-Men are at their best, they're soap opera, right? I mean, that's basically the whole Claremont run is, is superhero soap opera. And it kind of informed the direction of the industry for a while. You know, after Claremont started on, on Uncanny, then we got Wolfman and Perez on Teen Titans. You know, we got The Outsiders uh, over at DC, which was also very, very soapy. A lot of the best books out there were integrating these soap operatic elements here and focusing on the interpersonals between the characters, giving us reasons to care about them, giving us reasons to love them. Where concepts were there, and sometimes concepts were very heady, but they weren't at the forefront the way they are here with Hoxpox. Um, this is... This is all about the, the, the high-concept stuff where, you know, it could have been... This could have been an Inhuman story. You know, this could have been any insert, you know, any marginalized group here. Any marginalized supergroup here, uh, should I say. It's, uh, it's so much about the concept that the characterization is kind of left flailing in the wind. And the fact that... The characters that we know most, the ones that we're most familiar with, the ones that we're most likely to have a emotional connection to, were killed during Hoxpox and brought back in eggs. You know, and I mean, I I enjoy I'm enjoying this, so I don't want to make it sound like I'm uh, dismissing these things. I'm just saying that I, I totally understand your point of view. I definitely see where you're coming from here, and your your opinions are just as valid as anyone else's. Andrew continues, I also couldn't shake the feeling that Marvel failed to get the Inhumans over to replace the X-Men, so they just made the X-Men into the Inhumans. All for movie introduction reasons, but I'm a cynic. You know, uh, hey, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? Um, this lost decade has been nothing but putting the Inhumans over the X-Men. And it's been, it's been really, really rough. You know, I got to the point where I couldn't read anything with the Inhumans in it because I got so irrationally angry because I knew what... And again, I don't have any insider knowledge. I'm not in a room with Tom Brevoort and Steve Wacker, you know, if, they, if Wacker's even still a thing. I'm not in a room with those guys. So I don't know what their plans are here, but... It, you know, when they smoke this fire, right? Uh, the Inhumans were really being pushed. They were, I mean, at, some, at one point, I think they had three or four ongoing series, and the Inhumans can't carry a single series, but all of a sudden we had four. <laughs> and, and, you know, the Terrigan mists were everywhere, and it was making the, the mutants sick, and we were going to have the mutants die out and be replaced by the Inhumans so they can put them on agents, a shield or some crap. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, Andrew continues. That said, I really enjoy the show in spite of not liking this brave new world approach to the X-Men. I like hearing what you liked and why, even if I don't feel the same. What didn't land for you and the deeper discussions about what's on the page and how the piece works as an actual 22-page $5 book. Which is to say, I enjoyed the show for the same reasons I enjoy all of your shows. Well, thank you so much. That really... I mean, I, I say it a lot, but it means a lot to me. It really, really does. Uh, Andrew continues. Even though I listen to every episode, I refrain from sharing my thoughts on the issues because I don't want to be sending a constant stream of negativity. 
I'm probably in the minority again for this, but I don't really enjoy the stories. They're not all bad. Marauder sounds like the best, and I thought the farm story in New Mutants wasn't so bad. But most of the time, my opinion on the story ranges from neutral to dislike, especially for the stories in the X-Men series. I just listened to the episode on issue number 7, and as much as I did like the philosophical questions being talked about, the whole fight apocalypse to the death ritual was, in my opinion, ridiculous. The fact this is just part of their new lives now, and everyone basically accepts it, is really too much for me. Sure, Wolverine wasn't happy about it, and Scott had a lot of questions, but no one dissented too hard. It's just part of their society now, and I just can't relate to the versions of these characters in these books. Also, there's too much apocalypse in these stories. I love it. That's excellent. Uh, Because issue 7 of X-Men, while... um, it gave us a lot to talk about, right? It did. It gave us so much to consider, and it really, for, um, it really put a hard line between what was and what is. Um, which is to say, I mean, the things you just pointed out here, um, people are just cool with this. This is a spectator sport. And I think I compared it to, like, a born-again baptism, where, uh, you'd have... You'd have witnesses. Uh, but this isn't that, right? This is different. This is a rebirth. Or it's a it's a facilitatory measure toward a rebirth. But fact remains that someone's being killed in front of their friends and family. And I mentioned Sam. You know, Cannonball was there and is watching his sister die. Watching his sister get run through or cut in half or whatever the hell Apocalypse did to her. It was... Uh, It's off-putting. It's weird. It's just, uh... It sticks with you. Um, and it makes you think. And I mentioned that Cannonball, he doesn't even live on Krakoa. And he isn't even totally clear. He's not 100% clear on Krakoan way of life. So to have him sitting there and watching this without... I mean, he does get up for a second, but he sits back down. And it's, uh... It's strange. It's very, very strange. And... If we go with theory A for Hox, Pox, Doc, Sox, is Krakoa doing this? Is Krakoa, is Krakoa influencing their behavior? Is, is Krakoa grooming their behavior? Is Xavier complicit in that? Is this some sort of a like master plan by someone to, to make a society into what they think it is? Because I don't, I mean, the X-Men, they're, they're not submissive people. So for them to just accept this, and maybe Wolverine's uh, not being here was on purpose, you know, because maybe they didn't want to damage Wolverine by having him actually sit here and watch. There's a lot to a lot to consider there. But that scene in particular, the Crucible scene, I'd love to hear more opinions on that because I think I said it probably a dozen a dozen or so times during that episode that I don't know what I don't know what my feelings are on it. You know, I like it for the food for thought it gives, but at the same time, it might. Be, you know, I talked. I've talked a lot, and I apologize for repeating myself. It's just something I do. I've talked a lot about breaking the toys lately, and uh, Crucible feels like it might be a step. Just too far. How do you how do you walk that back, right? I mean, Cyclops and Professor X just watched 
someone die, someone get killed. That's how little value life has. That's how replaceable these characters are. It's weird, and I can definitely see that not sitting well with people. I'm not sure it sits well with me. You know, it's there's a lot a lot of meat on that bone, and I wish we'd get more issues like that because I mean we're not getting all the answers we want, but we're getting we're getting a lot of questions. And I feel like when we are asking a lot of questions about this, uh, it it makes the story it makes the story like a multitasker in a way, right? It's not just a story we're reading; it's actually something we're experiencing and muddling through and trying to uh, trying to figure out our thoughts on it. So maybe we'll get more scenes like that. Maybe we won't. I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Andrew re- uh, wraps up with. Uh, But even feeling that way, I get my enjoyment from your discussions of the story and from the other listeners who write in, who are much more articulate and thoughtful than I am. So, until the essential fixes the time stream so that Chris Claremont never gets pushed off the book, make mine Michael McDonald. Seriously, that song gets stuck in my head. And uh, yes, mission accomplished. Michael McDonald is a... uh, He is one of the greatest singers. (laughs) He's definitely uh, an earworm in and of himself here, just a... Amazingly talented, and uh, I'm glad I get to share that every uh, every day with uh, with this program. <laughs> a little bit of sweet freedom uh, goes a long way. But uh, please, Andrew, don't be a stranger. Um, I very much appreciated this uh, this letter, and I want I would love to hear more. I want even even if it is negative, uh, because I want to cover the negative here as well as the positive. Because, like I said, all of our opinions are valid here, and we might, I, I, don't, I don't want to say that we're going to change each other's minds, but we might, I think we're all, I think we're all comfortable enough in our opinions on this where we can appreciate another point of view. And for someone like me who can't make up his damn mind, as many opinions as I can get, the better. <laughs> so, please don't be a stranger. Please feel free and more than welcome to write in. I really, really appreciate hearing from you. Thank you so much. And if anyone else out there would like to write in and tell me the good, the bad, the ugly, unless you're talking about me, of course. We're talking about the books here, not me. If you'd like to fill me in on your thoughts, please feel free to do so. You can reach me a couple different ways. You can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find show notes and blog posts at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. There's also xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can chat us up about... Anything you want to with the X-Men at uh, 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can also check out the full Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But I think that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. I, uh, it's been a while since I said what the next episode is. I think it's Excalibur. I think it is. I might have to, I'm going to have to check my notes again. It's, <laughs> it's been a longer episode than I anticipated. But uh, till then, uh, thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me. And as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya!
How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 76 of X-Lapsed, where I can't shake the feeling like I've got a frog in my throat here. I've been trying to drink as much as I can to uh, try to straighten this all out, but uh, apologies if I sound a little froggy at some points during this episode. I'm not getting sick again from what I can tell, but uh, I don't know. I feel like i got to constantly clear my throat, which I will spare you from as best as possible. And as always, we'll endeavor to do our best. But today, we're going to be talking about New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 10. This had a June 2020 cover date, and our story is called Parasomnia, which uh, I actually researched to find out what in the world Parasomnia is. And apparently it's a sleep disorder that causes abnormal behavior while sleeping. Things like talking, moving around, it's to the point where other people who are around you might think you're actually awake you're really asleep. So I'm guessing that these behaviors extend to uh, warping reality. I guess we'll find out. Now, this issue is written by Ed Brisson with art by Flaviano or Flaviano. Colors, Carlos Lopez. Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X is Hickman. Edits, Bisa white Sabolski. Cover price, $3.99. And went on sale June 10th of 2020. So this is another one of those issues from the post uh, well, I wouldn't say post-pandemic since it ain't over yet, but, uh, you know, that, that, that two-month span where there were no comics. This is coming off the heels of that. So we have a cover date and an on-sale date that are both in June again. Um, now, this is a cover. Uh, this cover is both, like, spectacular and horrifying here. It's uh, our, you know, new mutant here, our new new mutant from, uh, uh, was it, Carnelia of Russia, uh, Tashi Rapina, the girl with the braces here, and we see this big close-up on her face and her mouth, and, you know, where, like, the brackets on the teeth are from the braces. Instead of there being actual brackets, it's actually new mutant heads. So, uh, we get to see all of our favorites there as brackets on braces on a very horrifying face here. It's really well done. <laughs> it's a really well done cover. It's just one of those things that, it's like, ugh, kind of weird. Anyway, we open, and we are right there with our reality-warping new friend, Tashi Rapina. And, uh, of course, she is the girl with the braces and the weird right eye. Now, she's begging for forgiveness inside her inky black warp bubble thing. And those with her are uh, Karma, Chamber, Magma, and a couple of Russian security guard soldiers. They're there mimicking her. So, basically, everything she's saying, they're saying as well. And this is actually a really cool way of depicting such a strange scene here. It's just like what she's saying is reverberating through all of those within her, you know, sphere of influence. Your literal sphere of influence. Really, really well done. I liked it. Next, we go right to our roll call where we go over our cast of characters. And the folks we'll be focusing on today are Boom Boom, Chamber, Magma, Mirage, Karma, Cypher, Mondo, Armor, Wolfsbane, Wildside, Glob, and Magic. From here, our customary double-page spread of creds. Then back to comics, and we're back outside. 
Boom Boom accidentally steps in some of this reality-warping goop, and uh, she and Danny note that this uh, odd and, of course, literal sphere of influence is spreading, and uh, potentially spreading rapidly. And this will put a nearby apartment building in very, very severe danger before long. Now, the Russian... I don't know if they're soldiers, if they're rent-a-cops, whatever they are. These Russian folks, or these Carnelian folks, uh, they don't appear to be all that interested in helping out. Um, in fact, the only reason they're letting the New Mutants get as close as they are is because they're hoping that the warp bubble actually swallows them up. So, you know, I guess it's a, one of them good news, bad news situations. Uh, Danny asked Tabitha to try to talk reason with the Russians in Russian, since Tabitha showed us she could do that last issue. Before she can, however, the cavalry arrives, and it's uh, Doug, Mondo, Rain, Armor, and of course, Wildside. Boom Boom is quite displeased to see Wildside, and she calls him uh, Clowny McWolverine Light. Which, uh, I know I've been giving Tabitha a hard time over the past few issues, but uh, this is fair, <laughs> you know. Uh, I know I probably compared him to Wolverine back in the day, too, just because of his, you know, Wolverine-y hairdo. Uh, then again, I also compared Feral, Beast, and Matsuo Tsuraba to Wolverine for the very same reason. In fairness to me, I was 11, so there you go. Now, while the New Mutants try to put a plan together, we shift scenes to the Pershy Palace, which is the home of the Prime Minister Prokopovich Prokop, of Carnelia. I think I might have gotten that right one of those times, but I wouldn't bet on it. Now, he's stirred awake by some of his handlers in order to deal with some media and public relations due to this weird incident. And so he gets up, he curses the mutants, and he heads off to make himself presentable. We head back to Krakoa, where a couple of things are bubbling. One of those things is a subplot we're headed toward, and the other is some vegetarian laksa. We meet up with Glob, who is gathering eggs from his little chicken coop. Uh, Magic saunters up to talk with him about the Pilger incident on the Bohusk farm from a few issues back. She wants to know how those cartellis knew that there were mutants there. Glob talks about, well, our favorite online rag, Docs, which he refers to as either Mutant Docs, Muty Docs, or Doxwall Mutants. Uh, we know what he's talking about, though, right? Now, Magic is beyond ticked off that Docs, this Docs site would, you know, dox the mutants by publishing their addresses online, you know, knowing that they're putting these mutants in danger. Glob offers Magic some laksa, from here we go to an info page, and it's a recipe for Glob's vegetarian laksa. Oddly, and maybe not oddly, I don't know a whole lot about vegetarianism, but it includes eggs. Which always mystified me why eggs can be included in a vegetarian diet. I, I guess it would be like a vegan thing to leave them out, but still, I, I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't understand why I think of eggs as, as meat, in a way. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, if you want to make Glob's vegetarian laksa... More power to ya. I see this is kind of a waste of a page. It's a little cute, maybe a little too cute, but we'll move on. We jump back to comics and we're back on Carnelia, or Carneria, whatever, wherever we are. Doug is analyzing this inky warp balloon and he finds it fascinating. To which Danny asks if you, you know, maybe don't fall in love with it. And that's not cool. I mean, this dude just traveled halfway around the world to save your ass. So maybe, maybe just give the guy a minute. Uh, Doug deduces that everything swirling around inside the bubble, they are the dreams of this little girl, Tashi Rapina. Well, nightmares, actually. Boom Boom tells Cypher to stop Doug-splaining, <clears throat> which makes me want to see her dropped into a volcano. She then suggests that she just toss a time bomb into the bubble. 
when did Tabitha become such an asshole? Uh, is this more of the next wave effect? Because I don't like this. Anyway, Doug lays out a plan. Now, since this bubble is the result of Tashi trying to make sense of her nightmares, he suggests that maybe they try to get close enough to her inside the bubble in order to give her good dreams, which is probably where Wildside will come into play. But the question is, how are they going to do this? Well, Danny has an idea, and she asked the group if they'd ever seen the movie Poltergeist. I have not, although that, you know, is probably not a surprise to many of you listening. I do, however, remember the commercials for uh, Poltergeist scaring the bejesus out of me as a little kid, though. It's like, you know, there's a TV in most rooms in your house, or the most rooms that you congregate in your house, and then to <laughs> to know that, you know, the, the, the TV was where the bad things were is uh, it's a scary thing for a kid. Anyway... While Danny puts her gimmick in place, the Prime Minister arrives on the scene to make a statement on live television. Now, he suggests that this entire thing is just a stunt planned by the Krakoans as a result of Carnelia declining to sign the treaty. And you know, that's a good and reasonable enough angle. I think that enough people would buy that. Now, he suggests that the New Mutants are here to quote-unquote fix a situation that they created in the first place to get some good PR, and also to show the Carnelian people that, you know, the mutants are needed. So again, reasonable. He then orders the New Mutants to be arrested. We'll see how that works. From here, it's an info page, and it's from the Docs website. They're reporting that mutants are in Carnelia, and that the Prime Minister has issued an arrest warrant. Interestingly enough, there's also a call to arms to Carnelians to forward all of their mutant footage to the Docs site. So, uh, any Carnelian citizens who happen to be boots on the floor or happen to be in the area, get some footage, send it into Docs. I'm, I'm really liking this subplot. It's, it's really cool. Uh, back to comics, and Danny is about to enact her poltergeist plan. And to do so, she has affixed a long strap to armor, like around her waist, and then Armor has, you know, erected her armor bubble, which has encased herself, Doug, Mondo, and Wildside. Now, together, they're going to enter this inky warp balloon while Danny holds the other end of this strap. You know, so she can maybe yank them out if they get into trouble. Because how are you going to get them out otherwise? Now, Armor and company, they enter and immediately cannot see their way back out, which is moderately concerning. We then get a weird two-page spread that gives us a sort of kind of tour of this reality warp bubble, and it's pretty neat. Uh, the, team the team ultimately gets close enough to Tashi to maybe reach out to her, so Wildside is going to be the man on point here. He needs to reach out to her without letting any of the inky reality warped atmosphere in. And so he goes to touch her, which really freaks her out. In fairness to Tashi, w w would you want Wildside touching you? I don't think so. Anyway, the inky stuff seeps into Armor's armor. Uh, Doug is sure that Danny will feel the struggling and decide to yoink them out. Unfortunately for them, it would seem that the strap snapped and they'd be trapped. We wrap up with Hisako being greeted by her dead parents, and we are to be continued. Next episode, welcome to the Double Digits, X-Force number 10. So what is there to say about this issue? Um, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. I enjoyed it. Um, but it's... You know, I'm trying to reframe the way I'm looking at these books here because I feel like maybe... Maybe I've been a little unfair 
uh, over the past several episodes here where I might be expecting a little bit too much from these books. And I think the way that I'm doing this might actually... It's not benefiting anyone, myself especially, I suppose, since it's mostly affecting me for having to try to analyze these books. And and I'm thinking back to like the last issue of Marauders that we talked about that I, I really didn't come away from enjoying quite as much as I, I've enjoyed other issues. Um, Excalibur was okay. Uh, this was similarly okay. Um... I would say that had I read these just in like a, just as a regular afternoon read, you know, without any sort of designs on talking about it or trying to make any sort of, you know, half-assed analysis of it, I'd probably enjoy it a whole lot more than I did. So I might be doing the books a disservice by doing this the way I am. Um, Even thinking back to X-Men number nine, which... I really thought I was going to wrap that episode up by saying, hey, maybe this is done, <laughs> you know, because I shouldn't come away from this, from recording an episode with such negativity. And I had plenty of negativity with X-Men number nine. I really thought that like, okay, this might be it. <laughs> this might be done. So with New Mutants number 10 here, it was a good enough issue. Um, you know, Jason might have said it best when he said that uh, Hoxpox had set us up for the extraordinary, right? And Docs is not really giving us that every time out. And, and it couldn't. I mean, it couldn't possibly, right? We're at episode 76, so we've read, what, 64 of these Docs books? You know, taking out the 12 Hoxpox issues? So we're at like 64 issues into this uh, Dawn of X line. They can't all be, you know, just huge, massive successes. We do need bridging issues. We do need arcs to build things on. And this, this is one of those arcs. And I really can't hold that against it. That said, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot better than last issue. Though I still am really over the, the way Boom Boom's being uh, depicted here. I think she is really, really awful. Uh, but uh, everything else worked for me. I, I liked uh, I liked the plan uh, with Danny's uh, poltergeist gimmick, getting her friends into the inky balloon to try to try to uh, rescue their friends and uh, and maybe fix Tashi a little bit. I thought that was a cool idea. I like the idea of um, of Docs. Docs, I think, is going to be a really, really fun concept to uh, to be explored and, and mined over the next several issues. I think that there's a lot of meat on that bone, and uh, I'd like to find out who's behind it. I think that might be a very interesting reveal. Hopefully, I'm not setting myself up for a disappointment, but I like the idea of it uh, because it's something you could totally see happening. Uh, right now, things like social media and the Internet, they're, they're ubiquitous. You know, uh, how many people do you know who don't have a smartphone in their pocket at all times? How many people do you know who aren't constantly taking pictures uh, with their phones and taking pictures of themselves, taking pictures of where they're at, taking pictures of their, you know, the plate on their table? It's just what society's become. And now we have this Docs magazine that's like, hey, you, you can be part of this too. You know, you're taking pictures anyway, just send them to us. And it's all in the name of... Uh, doxing and outing the mutants of the world. I think this is 
if if anything, this is what I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how it plays out. Whereas this issue here in Carnelia, it was decent enough. I like the uh, Prime Minister playing with the propaganda and playing with the PR to to make it look as though this is all a ruse. You know, there 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 is no problem here. This is something that the Krakoan mutants had planned and placed in order to you know in, inspire fear and a need for them in, Carn- in Carnelia. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, so yeah, outside of the way uh, Tabitha was portrayed, I really don't have any complaints about this issue. I, I think Flaviano did a great job here. Everybody looked awesome. Uh, the the surreality of the inky bubble looked great. It was really, really cool. Um, had a bunch of like weird stuff that you might picture in a kid's brain. You know, like this candy in there. There's a whole bunch of just like weird stuff, and it was really cool. Don't know that I'm too interested in the cliffhanger with Hizako seeing her parents. Eh, I mean, that's... <laughs> I don't think that has a- any real oomph to it, but it'll get us to where we need to be, so that's okay. So, yeah, not a whole heck of a lot to say about this one. It was just another issue. It was an issue I enjoyed. It's probably not going to rock everybody's socks, but... Uh, it's an enjoyable little diversion, and it was a decent enough issue of the post-Hickman New Mutants. So I'd give it a net positive, and uh, I mean, if you're interested in seeing how the New Mutants are being treated after Hickman left, this is a fine place to go, you know, so this is not bad at all. If you, and like I said, if you're reading these, if you're reading 9 and 10 back-to-back uh, without having to stop to write a 20-page script about each one, you're probably going to like it a whole lot more than, than I made it the first issue sound. So there's that. <laughs> That's everything I have to say about New Mutants number 10. Let's dip into the mailbag here because we got quite a bit to discuss. We're going to start with Damien, and this is regarding Giant Size X-Men Nightcrawler number 1. He says, It's time for me to come and disagree with everything you said. Actually, that's not true. We agree that this comic should not be described as a Nightcrawler comic. He's barely involved. We also agree that this book looks amazing. It's so wonderful to see Alan Davis inking his own stuff. I don't think I've seen him do that since the New Mutants annual that introduced Psylocke many decades ago. And yes, so far we are on the same page here. This is not a Nightcrawler comic, and Alan Davis's work looked fairly spectacular here. It was very, very good. Very, very good. Uh, Damien continues. Lockheed's appearance is a continuity gaffe. When I first read this issue, I thought it was fine, as we saw Lockheed heading to Krakoa in the last issue of Marauders. I assumed his arrival was off-panel, and in absence of Kitty, he'd pair up with Kurt and Ilyana. Sadly, the next issue of Marauders shows his return, so I lose by no prize. I was glad to see him here, though, as he was a key element in the best-remembered Sidri Hunter story. They would definitely consider him a threat. Generally speaking, this was a positive for me. The issues with this story were editorial, but it was a fun one and done. And I don't remember anything with the Sidri. So, for all I knew, uh, this was the first time we were seeing him. Uh, so I didn't know anything about that. But I think my problem is the same as yours here, is in that um, it's definitely more editorial than anything. I feel like, you know, and I've, I've made this observation about comics fandom, and actually any sort of hobby fandom... We're a little too close to the pros now, and we know how the sausage is made, and um, 
I get kind of hung up on worrying about things that'll only serve to lessen my enjoyment of a story. These are Chris' problems, you know, totally. I just see all these editors and a head of X credited on all of these books, and I have this, maybe it's a Pollyanna-ish, pie-in-the-sky hope that the stories we're getting are being delivered in a more linear fashion. It feels like just another way that they're disrespecting the week-to-week reader. Um, And, you know... It doesn't all fall on them. I'm pretty disappointed how we've all just come to expect our stories to happen out of sequence. We're cool with it now. Um, Back in the long ago, something like this would have been called out far and wide. There'd be letters pages dedicated to why Lockheed showed up here before he actually came back. X-Fans would try to make sense of it, and now we just accept it. And many of us will, like, continue to rate it a 10 out of 10, (laughs) you know? I I don't know what happened to the fandom here where this sort of sloppy work... And, and, I mean, the the story was fine. The editorial is sloppy. And we just let it happen. And, uh, I don't know. It's it's a little disappointing. Uh, Damien continues. Great to hear Andrew agreeing with my reading of the Cyclops and Wolverine scene. I definitely agree with him that Havoc and Wolverine are a better team. In fact, Meltdown is sat near the top of my rereading pile at the moment. There is some fun stuff coming with Havoc and Hellions, but there's no bonding with Wolverine. And yeah, you know, that Cyclops-Wolverine scene from X-Men number 7 turned out to be such... so much nothing, right? Um, I still remember the day Bleeding Cool or whatever horrible comics news site first shared these panels because it was very, very strange because I had friends on social media who I hadn't heard from in months who were suddenly reaching out to ask me about this. And it's like, have you heard about this? What's going on with this? Is is this what they're doing now? And, you know, the overwhelming tone, it wasn't anger, you know, which I'm pretty sure disappointed the news hacks, but uh, it was more of like a collective eye rolling, you know? Um, it was just like, oh, it's Marvel, <laughs> and Marvel's marveling again. Um, and, you know, Meltdown is interesting, because I don't know that I've ever actually read it. Uh, I've got it sitting on my shelf, like, right behind me right now, but I can't remember if I've actually read it. I do know for a fact that I did read the Havoc and Wolverine team-up trading card from Marvel Universe Series 3, like, several dozen times, which made me particularly excited to read the story itself. I just can't recall if I ever did. I don't know. Maybe one of these days I'll have to find out. Uh, Damien continues with... I love the way you're so diplomatic about runs you don't like. I wish I could be as fair-minded about the Whedon run. I only read the first trade, but I thought it was horrible. It was infected by a bad case of Jeff Johns-itis in that he was desperately trying to reset the book to a previous version that he was nostalgic for. I don't care that he did it well, as it was a backwards move. And you know me. When I have an opinion that conflicts with anyone else, the mainstream, just anybody, I automatically assume that I'm wrong. (laughs) Now, that said... One of my least liked phrases, which I hear and see more than more often than I'd like to, is I think we can all agree, dot dot dot. And it's usually followed by something that, sure, an echo chamber will agree with, but you should never assume that everyone will agree. And that's something that I try to keep in mind to keep me from making sweeping statements and generalizations. Even something as reviled as the Chuck Austin run, or, hey, Major X. <laughs> I I try to keep my opinions clearly labeled as opinions. 
I never try to assume that my opinion is the popular one or the only one. Now, the Whedon run, for me, that might that might have been a bit of a tainted well for me due to, you know, stop me if you heard this one before, lousy or absentee editorial. <laughs> you know, just kind of like I've been complaining about about the uh, giant size Nightcrawler here. One thing about the Whedon run, before a single issue came out that got stuck in my craw, was that Marvel and Joe Quesada started walking back some of their positions. Most notably, and for folks who were fans of Marvel Comics around the turn of the century, there was one that they felt very, 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 very strongly about that was called Dead is Dead. Which is to say, hey writers, if you're going to engage in stunt writing, if you're just going to kill long-standing and beloved characters, well, you're not going to be bringing them back, so make sure you're done with them. You know, uh, once they're dead, they are dead. So maybe, maybe don't be stunt writers. Maybe tell stories instead. So a couple of notable X-deaths from the turn of the century were Psylocke, the Betsy Braddock version, in Extreme X-Men, and Colossus, who sacrificed himself to cure the legacy virus. Now, Chris Claremont intended on Psylocke's death being short-lived. No pun intended, I guess. Joe Casada said no, dead is dead. Grant Morrison intended on using Colossus during his run on New X-Men. Casada said no, dead is dead, which led to Emma Frost getting her diamond-hard skin secondary mutation. Then, the Buffy guy wanders in, and decides he wants to slum it in comics, and he wants to rekindle the Kitty Colossus romance. Joe Casada says, sure, no problem. Eh, because, well, he's a star effer, and he was mad at Morrison for heading back across the street to D.C. So yeah, I was already annoyed at the Whedon run before I read a single page of it. Is that unfair? Yeah. Do I owe it another try? Maybe. Will I ever get around to it? I don't know. <laughs> So, you you know, if one day you all wake up and see an episode of Astonishing X Lapsed in your feeds, well, then you'll know. Uh, now, I think there's definitely a place in comics for the Jeff Johns-itis, so long as it makes sense and it doesn't just absolutely crap on everything that came before it that the writer didn't agree with. I feel like Johns himself had a pretty good handle on that when he wanted to. Of course, you know... Uh, pushing legacy characters like Kyle Rayner and Wally West into irrelevance aside, of course, uh, because when he wanted his Hal and Barry back, he did not care <laughs> what characters were being were caught in that crossfire. But I feel like he did a lot of good, and, and there's there's a lot of potential to do good in there. But man, uh, yeah, Kyle and Wally really really got boned. But but to you know to the Whedon run. Like I said, it was a tainted well for me to begin with, and uh, maybe I owe it another try. Maybe I don't. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, Damien. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, next, Andrew Franklin is talking about X-Men number nine. He says, I'm a big sci-fi fan, and I love me some space stuff, but I have to agree that it's becoming a bit overused in Hox Pox Docs. Outer space is treated like their backyard at this point with some living on the moon, and Shi'ar space just a short wormhole away. It makes it less special. And yeah, it's true. Space stories, as little as I ever cared for them, because I don't, they at least felt novel and different. And 
maybe for a lack of a better term, earned back in the day? Because it's like, hey, you told a bunch of stories and now you want to go to space? Yeah, sure. You earned it. Go do it. Now, it's kind of like we're reading like a mutant Green Lantern Corps where it's almost a surprise when they have an Earth-based adventure. And it's, uh, it's a bit much. <laughs> Andrew continues. On the other hand, if this brave new world is about breaking old paradigms and evolving the X-Men, then I can see it being a part of that evolution. I can almost hear Magneto now saying, let the humans live on Earth, the mutants have the stars. The X-Men are closely associated with spacefaring adventures, so maybe moving more of their population and stories into space is the next step. Making it less special might just be the point. And yeah, that's certainly possible. But it would be a direction I would not care for at all. Um, speaking of X-Men in space, did I imagine this? Or was there a time where the X-Men actually lived in space? Like recently, like during Mute Marvel's feudal push of the boring Inhumans, did they send the X-Men to live in space? Uh, this is an era I've never read, but I could swear I saw something about the X-Men being off-planet or maybe like in their own dimension Maybe it was a fever dream. I kind of hope it was a fever dream, actually, but I could have sworn that I read something about that. I could be wrong. I've got a stack of unread X books, probably. If I stacked them up, it would probably be... I'd probably have to have two stacks because it would reach the ceiling. Uh, Andrew continues. <laughs> Beyond that, I like the New Mutant space story, but this King Egg saga was kind of meh. To me, the broods suffer from diminishing returns. The original Paul Smith story was great. The Outback era story was alright. And the early X-Men Volume 2 story is more notable for having Ghost Rider in it and dealing with Gambit's life in New Orleans. Uh, after that, they're all rather generic. Lionel Francis you draws some very cool-looking brood, though. I didn't mind the intro prelude with the Kree, but it really didn't add anything for me. The ending was very abrupt and made me ask why we even went through all of this. If, there was, if this was supposed to be funny, it fell flat. Diminishing Returns is a great way to describe the brood. Uh, my first encounter with them was that uh, that X-Men Ghost Rider Nolan story, actually. That was the first time I ever encountered the brood. And I think in more recent years, the brood has become less of like a threat to the X-Men and more of a, you know, like when there's a big Marvel event and they start listing, it's like, we have the Kree, the Skrulls, the Badoon, the brood. It's like just another species in space sort of thing, which... I feel like it might be an attempt to make them feel more special, but to me it makes them feel like just just another in a cluster of interchangeable generic Marvel aliens. I don't know. And I the ending of X-Men number 9, you know, I, I, I was going to say I don't want to say hate because hate's a strong word, but I hated it. I hated that issue. I really considered making some changes to this program after reading that issue because I was like, I, I can't do another one of these. I can't do a single issue that, that frustrates me so much. Because who wants to listen to an idiot like me talk about something they dislike? Um, and I just did not... I, oh, I did not like that issue at all. I hated that issue. <laughs> and I'm so beyond tired of the space stuff. Um, oof. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, if it was supposed to be funny, I didn't think it was. I, I, well, I was like, okay, let me, let me just put this in the, in the box and never look at it again. Andrew continues. 
Damien said in his email that his favorite X-Men period is from Uncanny 200 through 279, and that's also my favorite period. I can't help but agree with his statement that change is the hallmark of the great X-Men stories, and while I love the constant change Claremont put the team through in his last few years, it's the scrappy, ragtag nature of the team that I hold dearest. The outsider underdogs, walking the line between public heroes and outlaws, that's what I loved about the X-Men. They haven't really fit that mold for a long time, but Krakoa is probably the furthest from that that they've been. Very, very good points. Very, very good points. And uh, that run, 200 to 279, was such a strong period uh, of for the X-Men. And I actually, you know, you guys know me, I came in through uh, Lob Del Niciesa. So it was like staggering going back and reading these. Um, this was, you know... To so many people, this was the purest the X-Men have been. And, th- and there's a lot of merit to that statement, and I, I largely agree with it. But coming in from the you know the 90s crossover event to event to event to gimmick after gimmick and shadowy new character to shadowy new character, and then going to these, these pure X-Men stories. And, and I found these via Marvel's awesome and... Much, much missed Black and White Essentials volumes. I still have them on the bottom shelf of my bookcase right here behind me. I love them so, so much. <laughs> it was such a treat to see this um, because it was it was familiar, but at the same time it felt more real than the stuff that even brought me in. I could see what made the X-Men so special outside of all the hype, outside of... And I mean... I love the 90s stuff. The 90s stuff is my wheelhouse. But there was a lot of hype there, a lot of gimmicks, um, a lot of stunts. But when you go back to those 80s stories that, in comparison, feel kind of low-key, but they're just so good. Uh, And, you know, since then, I've gone back and I've bought almost the entire Claremont run as single issues. And I had plans with giving of giving it like a proper issue by issue read through, where I could you know look at letters pages and ads and all sorts of stuff, bull, the bullpen bulletins. My problem is that I'd actually want to talk about it as I did it, and really, who's got time for that? So maybe one of these days, maybe when we're all caught up, <laughs> we're past uh, X of tens, and who knows? We'll see. But uh, yes, those were great, great stories here. And your point is well taken. That Krakoa is is as like polar opposite as you're going to get from those stories. And uh, yeah, it's it doesn't you know discount either one as being better or worse than the other. But it is it is definitely staggering how different it is for sure. Um, Andrew continues with. That said, here I am, plugged into the X-Men like no other time in the last 17 or so years. I attribute this more to Chris and his excellent work than anything else, but even I can't say that this new approach hasn't succeeded in getting me interested again. And that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for, for saying that. That's just really awesome. That means a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Andrew wraps up with, I always feel bad about writing such long emails, so until Mantis and all that Celestial and the Madonna nonsense shows up, make my next lapse. Never feel bad about writing long emails, for sure, because I enjoy them. I enjoy sharing them. And uh, from the sounds of it, uh, a lot of the listeners enjoy hearing them as well. So, I mean, this is such a fun little community that we're building here. And uh, it's, it's stuff, it's, you know, it's letters like this and from everyone else. That just makes this so special. So thank you so much. 
uh, from one Andrew to another. We're going to Andrew in Belfast, our pal, and he says, I'm really enjoying journeying through all the episodes of X-Lapsed with you and reminding me of the sheer enjoyment I've had with this Hickman era of X-Men. I'm now going back and reading some select issues on Comixology, because obsessives like me now own these books in single-issue, trade paperback, and electronic. Firstly, I just wanted to say that for my money, this is the most original era of the X-Men since Morrison's run. There aren't member berries or homages to character cliches in this era of books. They're gripping and original in the main, and immersive to a much greater extent than in recent years that preceded them. In many ways, I find the tone very similar to Morrison's run, in fact, and the art is beautiful in this current selection of books, with each title having a very distinct look, with the exception of Fallen Angels, which was quite bland. (laughs) And uh, I've seen the Hickman run compared to the Morrison run, at least in tone, scope, and originality, a bunch of times, and I totally agree. Uh, Because, as you said here, this is such a shift from what had come before, and its sheer novelty can only be viewed as... I don't know, somewhat progressive, right? I mean, like you said, this isn't a retread, and it's not overly reliant on scratching nostalgia itches. Though, there are bits of that as well which are appreciated, but they're not necessary. You know, if we see... You know, the one that the one that always calls me back is the scene where, where the New Mutants, they meet up with Cannonball, and we see the New Mutants team all in this group hug... And Mondo and Chamber are not part of this hug because they weren't part of the New Mutants. They're Generation X characters. You don't need to know that. to, to you know, you, Because the, the scene there is great as it is. But if you do know that, it means a little bit more. And you can sort of see that there is this generational shift between the two. So it's not necessary that, uh, you know, the, the member berries and the homages, they're not necessary. But where they are... It means that much more for those of us in the know. So it's it's really... A lot of this is really, really well done. Andrew continues. Secondly, at first, at first read, I took similar view to you about the resurrection chambers and the devaluing of death in these books that results from it. Having reread the issues a few times now, I think that a lot of the plot element is pointing us back to a key scene in X-Force number 3, where Xavier is hatched post-assassination. Here, I think we see Jean Grey outlining the fact that the, the fact that death is no longer an issue helps to heighten the heroic dimension because it allows them to focus on others rather than on themselves. On a related note, this aspect of the Hickman era also gets drawn out in the forthcoming, for you, sort of X storyline, so it's a common theme that gets touched upon, and I think it provides a point of interest, how mutant society is strengthened or weakened by the fact that death is not the end. And yes, the resurrection protocols and... I mean, you know, it's weird. Here we are. I mean, this is issue, this is episode 76, right? So we're 76 issues and episodes in. So let's say each issue is around 20 pages per. So we've read over 1,500 pages of Hox Pox Docs together in these, uh, in these past few months. And I still can't exactly put my finger on where I stand with the resurrection process. Uh, you know, I still don't know what I think about it, which... Might just be the point, right? Um, one thing I will say is that it's making me think about these comics and characters differently than I ever have before. So, I mean, that's definitely a novel experience. Uh, my analysis muscles, as they as they may be, uh, are having to contort in very strange ways to make sense out of my my own feelings, concerns, confusion, and misgivings about what's playing out on the page. 
that's not a bad thing. I don't think that's a bad thing. But I still, if, you know, gun to my head, do I like these resurrection protocols or not? I couldn't say. Do I think they're a good idea? I couldn't say. Are they making me think? Yes, they are. Are they making me look at characters that I've been familiar with for over 30 years in a different way? Yes. Yes, they are. So... Good thing, bad thing, couldn't say, but it is definitely a thing that is affecting the way I'm reading this, and I think that's a good thing at the end of the day. Andrew continues, The other point I've been wanting to make from listening through the episodes is the interesting aspect where the Marvel Universe is now split between human and mutant spheres. I know that you've expressed some reservations about the mutant portrayal here, particularly in the context of the X-Men plus Fantastic Four miniseries. For me, though, I think this gives us an interesting dynamic in the Marvel Universe. There's the temptation to view the split and set up as, mi- as making the mutants look more villainous than normal. However, I think that view comes from the fact that the reader is grounded in the Marvel Universe that we know, i.e. we share the space that the X-Men and Marvel heroes have cohabited over the years. Therefore, we share the mental space of Sue Storm or Peter Parker or Luke Cage. The mutants establishing themselves on Krakoa establishes them as other from the long-established perspective. I would argue, however, that when reading these books, that the reader now has to alter their own frame of mind and position ourselves on Krakoa alongside the mutants. We need to read these books through their eyes and mindset, the same way we read the other Marvel books from a New York City or London-centric etc. view. Previously, the dynamic has been between mutants and humans trying to occupy a shared space. We are now in a brand new disposition, beyond that of even Genosha, and this means we have a whole new view of the mutant experience. By constantly rotating between the Marvelverse and the Krakoan Xverse, we get a broader canvas for storytelling and a whole new challenge for humans and mutants beyond previous two-state solutions experimented with in the past. I, for one, am hooked on how this plays out in the long run. If only we didn't get keep getting dragged off to Otherworld. <laughs> and uh, yes, the pull of Otherworld is sometimes very, very strong, isn't it? Whether we want it to be or not. And your point is very well taken and very well stated. I, I, I appreciate the, uh, the analysis here for sure. And as I've said a few times already, even just in this very episode, so much of my problem, and this is Chris problems, this is not, this is not uh, rational comic reader problems, this is purely Chris problems, it's rooted in editorial rather than what's actually happening. Because I'm still burned from the lost decade you know back in one of the issues of hox pox they they showed the lost decade which was i think they what they showed was cyclops's dark phoenix which ugh, i think i'm still burnt from that um where you know this is uh, there was there was a 10-year span where the x-men were just stomped into the ground by marvel brass due to their little temper tantrum about how the they, the fact that they didn't have the movie rights since 2010, we've seen the X-Men decimated, no, no pun intended. You know, they were jobbed to the Avengers. And in order to accomplish that, we had long-standing X-Men characters, long-standing X-Men fan favorites, like Beast and Wolverine, side with the Avengers over the X-Men. And characters like Cyclops turn into Doc Phoenix and murder Professor X. That sucks. The X-Men family of titles became low-key shield books, that the X-Men just so happened to show up in from time to time. You couldn't open an issue of any X-Book from the early 2010s and not see Maria Hill more than you'd see an X-Men character. It was just ridiculous. The handful of X-Characters that Marvel actually wanted to keep as valuable, 
they yanked them out of the X-Men books and added them to various Avengers teams and books. We had a v- Uncanny Avengers with, uh, I mean, Havoc was on that team, Rogue was on that team, Cable and Deadpool were on that friggin' team. Uh, Storm became an Avenger. They, they, uh, X-23 was part of Avengers Arena. They started yanking the characters that they cared about out of the X-Books and put them in the Avengers books. I hated it. Then, of course, we had the pathetic attempt at promoting the Inhumans. So when I got around to reading X-Men plus Fantastic Four, I probably brought some of my own baggage into it. And I viewed it as sort of another attempt to tamp down on the X-Men and make them look either like lesser heroes than the rest of the Marvel Universe or just as flat-out villains. Which, I mean, they came to the Richards' door to take their son. <laughs> I mean, that's not that's not heroic behavior. That's that's villainous, that's crazy behavior. And uh, what's worse is, you know, there was a bit of, like, sociopathy there because... Xavier didn't see that that was villainous, or he didn't notice that. Hey, this is a little bit off-putting. The what I'm what I'm doing here. I'm tearing this family apart because I feel like it. He didn't see anything wrong with that. And I mean, a lot of this is just me being burned out and just seeing the X Men get stomped on for a long time. But I mean, what I see, I see. I guess. <laughs> uh, Andrew continues. Anyway, gotta go, but I'm glad I finally got around to writing into the show. It's been a total survival tool for me in 2020, and I appreciate the routine that you've given us for you giving us content every day. Comics have been my focus for escapism this year, and I've actually found that 2020 has been a very good year for comic output, with high-quality X-Books, Spider-Man and Venom books, a classic style of storytelling returning to Batman and Detective Comics, and some wonderful independence. About 18 months ago, I had nearly given up on comics. A mixture of bad behavior from pros and fans, plus a substandard product. Thankfully, whenever I needed them most, comics came through for me again this year. And your show has been a wonderful complement to some great books. And that's awesome, Andrew. Thank you so much for saying that. Um, And, you know, I gotta say, this show and the comics surrounding it have been... I mean, I don't need to tell anyone here that 2020's been a challenging year. Uh, Putting together this show has been a coping and survival tool for me as well. Um, Six months back, I never thought I'd be able to sit behind a microphone again and talk about comics. I thought that part of my life was done. I thought that was, you know, the microphone was going to get packed up and put in a closet, and that was going to be it. And now... This has become a real source of joy for me. Uh, it's helped keep me motivated. It's helped keep kept me on task. Uh, it's and it's even provided me with this wonderful sense of community that I never ever expected to find. So thank you, thank you so much. Um, to know that this show is a little bit of a help, it means the world to me. It, that is just so awesome. Thank you. Uh, we're going to wrap up with an email from our friend Mark, Green Lantern HG, and he is talking about the Chris and Reggie Channel Thanksgiving weekend 2020. He says, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I had a chance to catch up on all past episodes, so this will be a mashup of the past four days. It was good to hear Reggie's voice, even if it was for something as complicated as Sandman. I didn't really follow Sandman. I read some of it, but it was just not for me. All, although I do like Death and Lucifer. And yes, uh, the... Sandman uh, Gatherums here. Uh, that was the final Sandman Gatherum that I put out on Black Friday. 
and uh, with the little gag in there that, you know, all the, all the Sandman readers wore black when I was growing up. So <laughs> Black Friday and uh, Sandman, it just worked for me. It also made it so I, was, I didn't have to take a break from cooking Thanksgiving dinner to record something that day. So it was a twofer for me. Um, but it was, uh, it was also, it was very nice for me to listen back to some of those as well. Uh, those, um, those were the last shows that Reggie and I did before his aortic dissection in May of 2019. So those were, uh, those were particularly special. Um, and I haven't listened to them since, um, Back in May of 2019, so it's been almost two years since I've heard any of those, and it was it was very it was very funny listening to them because for some of the books that we discussed, we were we were just so over it, and for some of them, we were excited. So it was I got to hear us both excited and just like let's get through this. So it was fun. It was a real nice cross section of uh, of some of our banter and stuff. It was really cool. And those Sandman Universe gatherums, they were a lot of fun for us to do for a few reasons. Um, first, because it was actually a request from a listener of Weird Science DC Comics that we cover them. They asked for us specifically, which was awesome because, I, you, you know me, I, I don't think anything I do is worth listening to. So someone reaching out and saying, hey, I want Chris and Reggie to do these, that just totally made my day. It was so cool. Uh, second, Reggie was a huge Sandman fan. And he'd read the series a few times over. I was familiar with Sandman, but I never actually read the entirety of the original Game and Run. So I, I'd read bits and pieces and here and again, but I couldn't. I couldn't write a thesis on it. I couldn't tell you anything really about it outside of the handful of issues that I read. So with the Gatherum, we were able to deliver a take from both a seasoned fan and a new reader, which I think offers a lot to the listener. Like, it could answer questions such as, like, would a new reader be able to follow this? Or do you need to have the, read the first volume to follow this? We were able to answer those questions with this because if there was something I didn't understand and I could ask Reggie, it's like, hey, do I need to have prior knowledge to understand this? And he would say either yes or no. It might be something that was brand new, that I assumed was from the first volume, or it might be something that was actually rooted in the Sandman lore. So it was really cool that we were able to do that, because, uh, contrastly, we we started our Gatherum series with the Young Animal books that DC put out in 2016. And we often asked each other, like, how would a new reader receive something like Doom Patrol? Doom Patrol was the flagship of the Young Animal run, and we figured that was probably the most potentially lucrative for DC because it was a main, I guess a secondary DC property. Uh, Though nowadays I think they have their own show, so a little bit more popular than just a a second stringer. But we would ask each other, like, hey, you know, we're reading this and we're enjoying it, but what would a new reader think? Would someone who'd never read the Arnold Drake run or the Morrison run, would they know, would, would they receive this the same way we would? Reggie and I were both huge Doom Patrol fans, and we knew the team inside and out. We, we've read the entirety of the runs several times over, so we were able, unable to assert whether or not this volume, the Gerard Way Young Animal volume, would be a good jumping-on point. So it was a question that we'd, we'd, let, we'd asked a few times but never really heard anything about. So 
being able to do that with the Sandman books was a lot of fun because I was there as the new reader. He was there as the seasoned, you know, professional Sandman reader. So we were able to work off each other very well, I think, in that regard. Back to Mark here. Hearts of Darkness, and he's talking about from Claremont to Claremont, episode 3B. He says, oh, man. Well, I'm not ashamed to say I like this book. It's not the greatest story ever, but for me, it signaled two things. First, team up of Punisher, Wolverine, and Ghost Rider. And the other is that those can, they can defeat Mephisto how? I don't know, but them being together made Blackheart plot and Mephisto nervous. I don't know if you ever read Ghost Rider when Danny Ketch was Ghost Rider, but the blood splashing on his face was because when he was introduced, it was something like when Bruce Banner got angry and turned into the Hulk. Danny would have to put some blood on the medallion on his bike in order to transform. Of course, they didn't keep that in continuity. Marvel in the 90s. And there is a sequel to Hearts of Darkness that I hope I find someday. I know it's not the best, but I liked it. I'm still working on the soundtrack of my life. I've gone through lots of changes in my life, and it's hard to pinpoint the songs that are more meaningful to me. Now, Hearts of Darkness wasn't a bad book. Um, It certainly wasn't the piece of high literature I thought it was back in 1991, but... (laughs) It was a good enough time. And no, I never actually read the Danny Catch Ghost Rider. Uh, so this information is all new for me. Thank you. It's weird. Like, I I live in, you know, the, the, the quarter bins and the 50-cent bins and just the back-issue bins in general. And there are certain properties that so seldom show up. You know, over on DC side, Wonder Woman never shows up in these books, in these boxes. And I don't know why. Maybe maybe there was a you know smaller print runs, or maybe people who buy Wonder Woman don't get rid of their books. I don't know. Over on Marvel side, it's Ghost Rider of the '90s, the '90s Ghost Rider. So the Danny Ketch stuff is hard to come by, and those were books that would sell out very very quickly and just be marked up, you know, twice three times the price pretty quick because Ghost Rider was a really, really hot property back then, despite the fact that Howard Mackey was writing it. Uh, now, I'm also looking forward to hearing your soundtrack of your life here, because those have been some very, very fun discussions. Uh, for those listening to this show who don't listen to From Claremont to Claremont episodes, uh, a gimmick that I'm running there for these segments is that I'm asking my co-hosts to share with us the songs that would be on the soundtrack of their lives. It's provided a great bit of insight and a whole lot of fun conversation because, I mean, there's just so much meat on that bone. And so if anyone listening would like to share the soundtrack of their lives, please do. Please do. It's a fun exercise to do, even if you don't share it with uh, with me or anybody. It's a fun exercise because it really makes you think about moments in your life and just what songs affect you in certain ways. Even if they have nothing to do with your life, just a song that affects you. I think there's a lot of fun discussion there. Um, the whole thing with From Claremont to Claremont is I'm trying to make it more than just me and a co-host talking about a comic book, right? I want it to be a little bit different than that because I try to offer something that you're not going to get everywhere else. Um, so I've, I, I integrate gimmicks into each of these segments, and so far the co-hosts have all been very, 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 very kind in <laughs> indulging me. Uh, This is the third episode that we're putting together right now. The first episode, it kind of included a life and times bit. So I would ask my co-host about their times as a comics fan, you know, their comic fandom history, their secret origin, if you will, how they discovered comics, what comics they loved, when they left comics, when they came back to comics, all that sort of stuff was part of the first episode. 
And uh, from Claremont to Claremont has like eight or nine segments. So, I mean, it's it's a long show. Uh, for episode two, I ran my co-host through the Marvel Bullpen Bulletin's profile questionnaire. Uh, basically, as a way to facilitate my asking them a bunch of silly questions that would never come up in conversation. You know, things like, you know, who would play you in a movie on about your life? You know, stuff like that. If you're a fan of Marvel from the 80s, on the Bullpen Bulletin's page, they would often... Uh, maybe for like the second half of the 80s They had a little Like basically a trading card for their For their editorial team And it would just be a battery of Silly questions about How they got into comics And uh, what their pet peeves are Where they were born, what their hobbies are Talking about their unfulfilled ambitions Stuff like that And I just was taken With these, uh, we covered a lot of these On Moratory Mondays Where we would we would just read through these things and really had a blast with it. And I thought it would be really cool to do a pod file, you know, with the with my co-host going through these questions and just seeing how silly it got. And also finding finding out that you, you, you do learn more about one another that way. Uh, it was really, really fun. Now for episode three, of course, it's the soundtracks. And uh, so far, they've been a blast. They've been really, really cool, really insightful, and... Uh, not not easy, not easy to compile. Uh, I'm I'm working on mine right now, and it's it's hard. It's really hard, but it's also so much fun, and it leads to a lot of introspection. And uh, you know, when you when you when you finish it, when you're done with it, you, you learn something about someone that you're you're friends with. You know, you learn things you didn't know, and I think that's kind of the tone that I, I want for all the shows on this channel, where. You know, this isn't just a show. It's it's a club. You know, it's a we're we're in this together. We're on this journey together, and you know, if we get to know each other a bit better in the process. I, I think that's only a good thing. So, I do have more crazy gimmicks in mind for future installments. So, stay tuned if that's your thing. Uh, back to Mark here. He continues. Major X lapsed. Um, pass. <laughs> I would think that Wolverine or Deadpool would make this better, but. No, I guess he's not the best he is at what he does. <laughs> oh, Major X was an experience. Uh, thankfully, it's one that's now behind us. Um, all I can say about Major X and Major X Lapsed is that I sincerely hope that nobody spent any actual money on Major X in order to keep up with the show, because I would feel very, very guilty if that was the case. Oof. The first issue, sure, because that one's still going up in value for some ridiculous reason. But the rest of it, eh, you don't need it. Uh, and finally, uh, back to Mark, he says, Kate not being able to resurrect. Oh, Marvel and their old gimmicks all over again. It's I'm interested in finding out why she can't resurrect, and especially since we know that she will be. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, Mark wraps up with, keep up the great work, Chris. Good or bad, I'm along for the ride, and hopefully Marvel will look harder into making these characters the best they were and are in our hearts. So thank you so much for uh, for the very insightful email, Mark. I always appreciate hearing from you, and I'm happy that you are along for the ride. And I'm happy everybody's along for the ride. And uh, if anybody out there would like to get a hold of me and uh, share some of your thoughts... And of course, uh, if you have some time and want to put together the soundtrack of your lives, that's also very, very welcome. Um, I'm hoping to maybe put together 
like Spotify playlists. So we all have the soundtrack of our lives just there, you know? So if you want to, if you want to listen to the soundtrack of Chris's life and hear some like weird yacht rock and Christmas music and all sorts of stuff, you'll, you'll be able to do that whenever you feel like it. But uh, yeah, if you have anything, send it my way. Uh, now, you can reach me at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at Chris'sOnInfiniteArts.com. We also have xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteArts.com. You can join us on the Facebook group at 90s X-Men. And, of course, the entire Chris and Reggie Audio Archives is there at your fingertips at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that's where we will leave it today. Uh, this was a long one. I'm, I'm sorry, and... <laughs> Thank you for sticking around if you did. Um, one more giant thank you to everyone for sharing your time, your thoughts, everything. It's been an absolute blast. And uh, like uh, our friend Mark said, good or bad, we're in this for the long haul. So thank you to everybody. And uh, until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 79 of X-Lapsed, where we're actually going to be dipping into the number 11s here. We're going to be talking about New Mutants, volume 4, number 11, at a September 2020 cover date. And you know, when I look at this, I'm looking at my little short box now that's full of uh, our unread and unreached uh, Dawn of X books here, and... I've only got two more issues of New Mutants in this thing. Uh, the latest one I have is number 13. Um, I know I have a big old box from DCBS on its way as we speak, so <laughs> by the next time uh, I hit up a recording here, there might be one or two more in there, but we're getting damn close. We are getting damn close. So let's get right into it today. This is, of course, New Mutants, Volume 4, Number 11. Stories called Ice Cream Dreams, written by Ed Brisson, with art by Flaviano, or Flaviano, or however you say that. 
Colors, Carlos Lopez, Letters, VCs, Travis Lanham, Designs, Tom Muller, Head of X's Hickman, Edits, Diesel White Sobolski, cover price $3.99, went on sale July 22nd of this very year, 2020. Now we open, and we're in the inky blackness of Tashi Rapina's living nightmare. We, you know, more or less pick up right where we left off. Armor is being visited by her brother and her mother, and I'm pretty sure last issue I mentioned that it was her parents, so mea culpa for that. Uh, they beg her to free them from this nightmare, but of course, this is all in her head. Double page spread of credits followed by roll call. Boom Boom, Chamber, Magma, Mirage, Karma, Cypher, Mondo, Armor, Wolfsbane, Wildside, Glob, and Magic will be featured prominently and, and less so in this very issue we're going to cover. So, we're inside the inky sphere of inkiness, and Armor is just completely out of it. Her armor bubble even shatters, which leaves her teammates in kind of a tough spot. Doug turns to Mondo to tell him that, you know, hey, you're on... Which is kind of weird, because I wasn't aware Mondo had this sort of powers. You see, Mondo starts to somehow pull together the broken armor bubble pieces. But we'll get back to that in a minute. First, we jump back outside to, uh, where are we? Carnelia. So we're in the snowy, snowy Carnelian uh, landscape here. And Danny is freaking out that her poltergeist tether has broken. And the natives, which is to say the Carnelian security squad, they're getting restless. They're starting to feel like the mutants have wasted enough of their time, and they begin their approach. Now, Rain attempts to reason with them, which is futile for a couple of reasons. First, they're bigots. Second, she doesn't speak Russian. So, there you go. Tabitha figures screw it and just tosses a time bomb, which, much to the Prime Minister's dismay, is not caught on film, so he can't use that to further his propaganda dealy here. Back inside the bubble. Now, Mondo has, again, somehow reassembled Armor's armor around himself. He's dragging Wildside by the remains of Danny's poltergeist tether over to Tashi. Bingo Bango, he's finally able to touch her, using his reality-warping powers to change her bad dreams to good. And then, boom. Suddenly, the inky mass is full of literal sunshine and lollipops. Uh, unicorns and plushies, too. The bubble bursts, uh, it's like the world's weirdest piñata, and the new mutants are free. Tashi still looks all twisted, it's worth noting. I figured she'd probably go back to looking the way she did in her earliest picture. I think we saw her on an info page where she just looked like a regular uh, preteen or teenage girl. But at least for the moment, she still looks like she did on the inside of the ink bubble, which is to say she has exaggerated features, she's kind of hunched over. It's a, it's a different look. So now, as the new mutants pick themselves up, the Carnelian Guard decides it's time to arrest them. You gotta remember, they still believe that this entire Megillah here was just a show from the Kirkoans in order to strut their stuff in light of Carnelia refusing to sign the treaty. Which is exactly what the Prime Minister wants them all to believe, of course. And so, our heroes are surrounded. The new mutants, who were just freed from the ink world, are momentarily powerless, so they're kind of out of it, so if this were to come to a fight, well, they'd be of precious little use. Boom Boom is totally ready to start chucking bombs left and right, but Danny, thankfully, is able to talk her off the precipice, suggesting that maybe it's best just to surrender, regroup, and then come up with a better plan. Turns out that this is a completely moot point, however, because before the Carnelians can take our kids into custody, Magic shows up, and she's pissed. Now, she lays down a few threats before warping the entire New Mutants team and Tashi away. 
Next, an info page, and it's our friends at Docs. They're talking all about the Carnelian Carnage, which is, a, you know, decent sensationalism in it. Uh, one thing on this page that kind of kind of irks me is how they're still poking fun at how Boom Boom had a bunch of different code names. Uh, this is just some of that low-hanging fruit sort of stuff that gets under my skin. This is definitely just a Chris problem. But if I never have to hear that Boom Boom had a lot of code names, or that Kitty Pride was scared of Storm's mohawk, or that Jean Grey dies all the time, it would be way, way, way too soon. From here, we resume our story. We're back on Krakoa, and we're in the healing gardens. The Morlock healer is running some tests on Karma, and he's found a strange anesthetic in her blood, which he's going to test. Now, this is the stuff that's running through our new friend Tashi's veins while she sleeps. So if he can get to the bottom of it, they can have a better idea of what makes her tick. We learn here that Tashi's new code name is going to be Cosmar. Don't know what that means, but yeah, it's good as any. Nearby, Armor is still coming to grips with the vision of her family that she saw, and Doug goes to lend her a shoulder, but she'd prefer to be alone. Maybe she saw that one of Doug's shoulders is techno-organic and didn't want any part of it. From here, another info page, and it's Boom Boom's Diary, and it's sort of uh, actually summing up the entire Brisson run to this point. Uh, she talks about the farm, she talks about Nova Roma, and of course she talks about Carnelia. Gotta say, Tabitha's uh, voice here is still wildly annoying. Elsewhere, Danny is visiting with Cosmar, who's locked in a glass tube while they try to get a bead on her powers. Maxime and Manon are there as well. With the latter offering to pop into uh, Tashi's head and change her memories to, inv- to avoid any further bad dreams, to which Danny says no. Further, Danny says the following quote, It would be easy for us to do that, but we can't remake people. We can't change their past, even if we think what we're doing will help them. Unquote. So uh, clearly, our Ms. Moonstar has not been reading X Force lately. Yeah. Huh. Anywho, M and M are here because Manon is going to use his empathic powers on Tashi in order to keep her calm. Maxime is there to make sure Manon doesn't fall asleep on the job. The creepy kids—they're just—they're happy to help, so they're fine with this. We resume back at the sextant, I think. Maybe wherever we are, we're with Magic, Danny, and Doug, and they're talking about our favorite website, Chris and Reggie.pot. No, um, Docs, Docs, of course. Um, Magic fills her friends in on the fact that she was able to follow them to Carnelia simply because Docs reported it. Also, that Docs posted the address for the Bohusk farm in Pilgrim, Nebraska, which led to that big mess. Danny asks if what Docs is doing is against the law because, to her, it's gotta be. But alas, it is not. At least, not, it's not against human law. And so, the new mutants are going to regulate on the basement-dwelling bloggers behind the Docs site. And I guess I'm on. I'm off the hook there because we really don't have basements in Arizona. But if they did say Kitchen Island dwelling bloggers, well, well, then I'd probably be getting up and locking my doors right about now. Not that it would be much help. Anyway, we wrap up this issue with the New Mutants preparing to take their fight to Docs. And I tell you what, I can't wait to see this one. So, looking forward to the next issue. But next episode, we're going to rejoin our old friend Wolverine for his third issue. But before that. Let's talk about what we have here. Well, I suppose this was a uh, satisfying enough conclusion to the Carnelia arc. Um, Plus, we wind up with a brand new mutant. Thing of it is, uh, there really isn't all that much to say about it, is there? Um, I mean, the bits with the inky limbo balloon, I I feel like they really didn't need to leak into this issue, did they? 
there really wasn't all that much to it. Armor's bubble broke. Mondo repaired it and brought Wildside over to touch Tashi, and that's it. I, I get that we have trades to fill, and issues to fill en route to X of Tens, but there really wasn't all that much in the way of meat here. You know, uh, granted, I mean, the reality is Marvel doesn't care about the week-to-week or month-to-month customer anymore, so this is just a, a bit more of me shaking my fist at the sky. But still, this was a bit thin. We get an ending, and it's not a bad one in the slightest. But the trip we took to get there was kind of like like driving through Nebraska. Not a whole lot to see or talk about. Uh, for me, the main takeaway for this issue was Danny's comments to the creepy twins toward the end of the issue. She talks about how it isn't right to mess with people's past experiences, even if we think we're doing them a favor. Now, for those of you who have listened to this show a time or two, you know we've spent quite a bit of time talking about that here on the show, especially in light of Domino's resurrection. Uh, The first one, I think. I mean, geez, there have been so many. Uh, The one where she was scarred, both physically and emotionally, before she died. I hope that narrows it down enough to figure out which one we're talking about here. I hope this was not an accidental mention, because, to be honest, I'm still not convinced that any of the creators involved are actually reading each other's work here, and I'm also not sure what the slew of credited editors actually do either. Hopefully it's intentional, and if it was, well, then I liked it, because, I mean, this might sort of set the table for an eventual Krakoan schism. If we remember, uh, Nightcrawler mentioned back in X-Men number 7 that he was already seeing cracks in the foundation of this mutant society, and this sort of thing may speak to that. I'm very excited if this is the case, because, uh, I mean, there's some weirdness going on here. We know for a fact that Domino's been altered, and we don't know that it was her wishes to be altered. And then, you know, we can consider things like, well, does she have any right to ask to be altered? It's There's a lot of... Uh, I, I don't want to use the word philosophical because I'm anything but, but I suppose there is a philosophical element to it. But it's, uh, it's interesting. And seeing Danny here, not talking about the resurrection protocols, but just simply the fact that they have this, this mutant child who can change people's memories and has done so for, uh, for Beacon Angel and the kids uh, back after the Pilgrim Mass. It's, it's just interesting to see that being revisited here, and it opens things up to, to the realization that they can actually change people without them dying, you know? Because I think we've, we've put a lot of focus on the fact that once they die, I mean, whatever Professor X wants to do with them, he's going to do with them. But here with Maxime and Manon, this can happen even before death. So it's... Uh, I don't know, it's interesting. I, I wonder if this will ever come to play, and it's one of those things like, we have a book like Hellions right now, with these inconvenient mutants, and you wonder why Maxime and Manon weren't, you know, brought in to maybe tinker in their heads a bit, or before Sabretooth was thrown into stasis. It's yeah, just food for thought, food for thought. Now, what else do we have here? Uh, Armor is disturbed by seeing her family in the Nightmare Balloon. I don't recall much of Armor's backstory, just that she was a, you know, she was Joss Whedon's big contribution to the X-Men, which at the time I think a lot of us joked that it was just another young girl for Wolverine to team up with and mentor, which, you know, she sort of was. Uh, I don't know that I'm all excited to see where this story arc goes. Uh, I don't know that we need to explore it much further either, which means we're probably going to get a 12-part story arc digging into it right after X of Tens, but fingers crossed we don't. 
uh, boom, boom, she's still very annoying. But uh, it seems that, you know, <laughs> that ship's already sailed, at least for now. I am curious if Tashi Rapina will become a member of this team, or, conversely, if we'll ever see her again. I feel like she might just become a character we can spot in the background of a panel every few issues, which, after all I know, might be exactly what you know needs to be done with her. Uh, what I'm most happy about here with this issue is the fact that next issue takes the fight to Docs, which is a concept that I've been excited to see fleshed out a bit uh, since it was first mentioned several issues back. I have high hopes, cautious optimism for the next issue, or however many the Doc story will fill. I think... Uh, I think it's only. I think it's going to be a one and done because I think right after next issue we go into X of Ten, so it's got to just be a one one and done. So I'm looking forward to it. High hopes for it. Um, let's briefly touch on the art before we go. It was good, but there's this weird thing with Flaviano here. It looks as though everybody has a bandaid on their cheek. I think it's supposed to indicate like a, a shine, like a dewiness, but it really just looks like a bandaid. The, the line work on it is too harsh to make it feel like it's just a, a you know a degradation of color or whatever just to show a glow. It looks like its own thing, and it's on like every face here. It kept catching my attention. Uh, other than that, it was good. I suppose overall, if you've read this far into the Carnelia story, then you'll probably want to check this one out too. It was decent, but not exceptional. And that's all I got to say about New Mutants number 11. Let's hop into the mailbag here and uh, do some chatting. We're going to start with Damien, who's talking about Marauders number 10. He says, I have reread Marauders 6 through 12 a number of times and really enjoy the story. Within that ongoing story, issue 10 works very well, but by itself, it's slightly lacking. There's an element of padding in here that makes me wonder if Duggan was made to extend his story by one issue to plug the gap until X of 10s. And, you know, I have no insider knowledge, but it sure reads that way, doesn't it? It really does. Um, I'll usually point out things like truncation, which to me, especially in this day and age, kind of stands out more than decompression and padding, simply due to the nature of monthly comic storytelling in order to fill a trade. We're just so accustomed to decompression. When we see something like truncation, it really stands out. It's like a, it's like a, a red alert. But yes, this feels like we might be lingering on some points here a bit to pad out our page count. Um, this probably does have a lot to do with getting us to X of 10s, which, you know, it, it reminds me that it's been a minute since our last big crossover. Yeah, I, I honestly can't believe it's taken us this long to get here. It used to be, yeah, at least it would feel like, we'd get like three or four months of story, followed by at least four months of crossover, and then repeat, repeat, repeat. That's the way it felt, but here, and, and I know the uh, the COVID um, hiatus pushed X of Tens back a bit further than they intended to, but uh, I feel like we're actually getting some decent decent story here before we're getting into the event, and hopefully, hopefully they stick with that because, God, I mean, how many events are going on in Marvel right now, right this minute? There's got to be like three or four. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Um, not including X of Tens, of course. Uh, Damien continues. Interesting to hear you comment about the reading order in your copy. I buy new comics digitally, and my issue has the correct reading order. They must have printed your one before the shutdown and corrected the digital edition. I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on the next two issue of Mar issues of Marauders as I love them. 
And what Damien's talking about there is, um, well, he basically said it right there. It's the reading order list in the back of the issues that, uh, that I've been using as a guide to put together these episodes in the episode order. Uh, they were all kind of weirded out because of the, the COVID hiatus. Um, I mean, the list I was looking at actually had Children of the Atom on it as releasing in April. I don't think we're getting that until maybe this coming April or February or something like that. Somewhere late winter, early spring, we're not getting that until. But it was interesting to see that. And it's interesting to me that um, that they'd bother to edit it for the digital. Um I mean, the indicia as well, because everywhere I look, the, uh, the uh, what is it, the cover date for these issues was pushed back. But in my copies, they said June, and a lot of these books came out in June and July, so for a bit of weirdness there, the indicia was actually earlier than the release date. And since I am such a stickler for the way things are in the book, I keep it that way. I don't, I don't <laughs> refer to the others, but... Uh, it's really interesting that they would bother to do that. I mean, maybe there's a legal component to that. Maybe I don't know. Uh, you know, ever since digital has become this ubiquitous presence in comics publishing, some of the decisions they've made about you know meta edits have fascinated me. Um, not only this instance with the Indicia being altered to reflect a new uh, release date, but things like the rating systems. Which, you know, I know I've touched on this before somewhere on this channel, but I couldn't tell you exactly where. And if I did, I mean, then you'd have to go find it yourself. And, I mean, who's got time for that? Uh, what I'm getting at is stuff like seeing that a book had initially bore the Comics Code Authority seal on them, right? Which, to me, and to most, says yeah, it's safe for kids. Now those same books are being rated as T+, as in, you know, for people 13 and over. And I wonder, like, what changed, right? Why, why is a book that was approved by the Comics Code, the, you know, the stringent, horrible, Puritan Comics Code authority, why is a book approved by them no longer suitable for kids 12 and under? Seems weird. And my go-to for this is, um, I don't remember exactly the issue number. It's Superman Volume 2 number 22 or 23. John Byrne's last issue where... He, where Superman kills the uh, the Phantom Zone criminals. Big deal at the time. Uh, to some, it still is. Uh, but that was a Comics Code-approved book, and it was rated like 13-plus on Comixology. And it just seemed so weird that back in the 80s, we were we were, we were built of strong enough stuff to, to read a story where, where Superman can kill someone. Whereas today, we, we just can't. But yes, the, the digital physical... Uh, you know, the dissonance between them is very interesting to me. It's one of those things that is probably only interesting to me because I'm sure I'm probably boring everybody here. Uh, the next two issues of Marauders, I'm also looking forward to those because uh, I believe this is where uh, a lot of a lot of chickens come home to roost. So I haven't read ahead. All I've looked at is the covers, and the covers do tell a tale, which I'm very, very interested in seeing how it plays out. But uh, I look forward to sharing my thoughts and uh, those, those issues with everybody when we get to them. But uh, thank you so much, Damien, for uh, reaching out and sharing your thoughts there. Next, we're going to go to uh, Mark, a.k.a. Green Lantern HG, and he's talking about X-Force number 10. We've actually got a, a double feature for, uh, for Mark here. Regarding X-Force number 10, he says, Great couple of episodes, Chris. Just, just as you said, I was expecting Kenny to peek around the corner and say, They killed Domino, you bastards. And uh, 
Yes, that is a commentary on how often Domino and, and you know, also Quentin Quire are killed in X-Force. And it almost feels like we're veering into parody at this point. It's like, just because you can kill everyone doesn't mean you have to, right? Uh, and of course, given the new status quo, we're expecting casualties. That's just part of the game now. That's part of the story. That's part of the hook. But this is just way too much, in my opinion, of course. I mean, there might be folks out here there who just love it, love seeing these characters die in different ways. Uh, and it's funny, I mean, they didn't kill people this rapidly in Strike Force Moratori, and that was the whole gimmick of the book. It's so weird how they're just... We can't go an issue, it seems. Uh, another piece from Mark, talking about giant size Magneto. This is another great episode, Chris. Now, I feel like this was a little more Marvel. Having Namor in this issue is weird and yet familiar. And I'll confess, I'm one of the few people that never stopped calling Magneto Eric. And yeah, this was an interesting issue. Um, As I said during the episode, not much meat on the bone for a $5 book, in my opinion. But decent enough world building. And I am a sucker for world building, and I'm interested in seeing where they're headed with uh, Emma's New Island. And yes, I'm with you. Uh, Magneto will always be Eric, or or Magnus to me. <laughs> I remember on trading cards, his real name was Magnus. And I was like, ah, well, it sounds like Magneto, so I guess that's fair enough. But thank you so much for your kind words and sharing your thoughts there, Mark. I really, really appreciate it. Next, uh, our friend Evan Bevins chimes in to uh, address Damien's comment in episode 35 regarding the use of the Queen of England in Excalibur. Now, he says, listening to the mailbag from episode 35, and while I understand Damien's concerns, I really want to see Captain America reporting on his activities to a bald eagle, particularly in the midst of the most serious stories. And (laughs) not going to lie, I'd like to see that too. Maybe, maybe we could Photoshop a bald eagle over every appearance of Maria Hill during the 2010s, since Cap seemed to have to report, like, even every bowel movement to her. We could just have her being a bald eagle. I think it would be really, really good. But uh, I, I, I've said it before. I love it when uh, when listeners comment on each other's comments. And uh, Damien's <laughs> discussion of uh, the Queen of England being used in Excalibur was, was very funny and very uh, enlightening to uh, you know, a, an unworldly fellow like myself. But... Um, I always like to see the humor and that kind of stuff. So thank you, Evan, for for reporting in. Uh, next, Joe Crawford is going to rank his Dawn of X number twos. He's just burning through the uh, anthology trades here, and he's been sharing a lot of thoughts with me in his rankings. So let's see how he ranked the Dawn of X Wave 1 number twos. Number one, Marauders. Two, X-Force. Three, New Mutants. Four, X-Men. Five, Excalibur. Six, Fallen Angels. Joe says it's a pretty strong month. He even enjoyed some of Excalibur. It's starting to find the right mix of silliness and action. X-Force was my surprise. Really dug it. Island mating in X-Men? Hickman nailed it. Ready for book three. Well, thank you. And you're, you're just burning through these things so quick. It's amazing. I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us here, and it's it's so weird that, I mean, it's almost goes without saying that Excalibur and Fallen Angels will be five or six in just about anybody's lists. That's <laughs> I don't know. It's just uh, the way it is. I don't know that I've seen anyone rank them higher at uh, to this point. Maybe I have, but uh, not too many. Not too many, especially not Fallen Angels. 
But uh, Marauders is on the top of everybody's list here, and uh, it makes me wish that I was more in tune with the you know comics commentary community to see just how widespread the love is for Marauders, because it is a top-tier book here. And as I've said time and again, the most consistently strong book of the line. But thanks again, Joe, for, uh, for sharing your thoughts on the Wave 1 number 2s, and I'll probably be sharing your Wave 1 number 3s next episode. But we're going to wrap up with a message from Andrew Franklin discussing X-Force number 10. He starts by setting me straight and saying eggs are definitely not meat, which is kind of an earth-shattering thing for me. I, I don't know why, why I would get... It's so weird, right? I mean, are, are they meat? But, but then you, you eat them with meat. You have them with bacon or with sausage. So maybe, maybe I've been wrong all this time. I don't know. And maybe I'm just confusing vegetarianism with veganism. That is a possibility as well. But he continues. X-Force number 10 is the first issue of that series that I'm reading for myself. Having now seen the book, I thought the art was a step down from the styles of Hellions and X-Men, the only two two series I actually read issues for. I don't think it's bad, just not what I expected. I really did not like the info page that came during the Gene and Hank scene and was glad to hear you highlight your problems with it as well. It read like it was an actual page from the script and was published as an info page instead of drawing the two or three pages it would have taken up. It struck me as really lazy and kind of soured the book for me, which I thought was otherwise fine. And it's true. Um, That is a, a reference to an info page which basically tells the like, second half of a scene that we were watching in sequential art form just the page before. And, uh, th- I mean, they, they do have uh, a way of lampshading it since they, they kind of introduced an observer. You know, someone actually saw this happen. But at the same time, it just felt like such a letdown, especially considering that this Hank and Gene confrontation is something that I feel like has been, you know, kind of bubbling away in the background here because Hank is doing some unethical and immoral things and gene is you know the moral compass of the team i felt like this should have been played out on panel on page in art whereas we got like a paragraph it's like oh well gene said this and then gene left and then hank cried it's like what (laughs) okay and yes it definitely it definitely soured the book for me as well a bit as for the art, I, I, I'm really digging the art. I'm really digging the art. Uh, the, what's his face? Uh, Kassara. Uh, I'm, I'm digging him. I, I've never seen him before. So it's a, it's a nice surprise for me. Uh, Andrew continues. It was great hearing Reggie again on the Sandman Gatherum you posted. I miss hearing his voice. I listened to the Gatherums as they were posted, and it was, it was fun to remember how incomprehensible some of those books were. Just dreadful stuff. The Gatherums did make me check out The Dreaming, though, since I'm a big fan of Neil Gaiman's Sandman, and it actually sounded like it was good, a rarity in revisitations. I was glad to hear Reggie's good words about Bilquis Evely. I first learned of her when she was one of the regular artists on Rebirth-era Wonder Woman, and then she skyrocketed to the top of my favorite artist list. I have a very nice collage of her work on Wonder Woman hanging on my wall. And yes, I posted the final Sandman Universe Gatherum uh, on Black Friday in America, as a, I said it was a way to tie in with all the folks who like Sandman wearing black, but in fact I just didn't want to have to take a break from preparing Thanksgiving dinner to record an episode. So I figured it was new to most, so <laughs> it was fair play. But uh, that was a fun one to put out. It was a fun one to revisit myself because, uh, yeah, like you said, 
uh, some of these books were very, very bad. Um, there were <laughs> the, uh, what is it? The Books of Magic, um, which was one I was very excited to do because I liked the original Books of Magic. And uh, I was, we were covering that book on the Sandman Gatherums, and there were literally issues of that book that could have been summed up with Tim looked to the left. And that was it for 20 something pages. Tim looked to the left. Just so bad. Decompression to the to the unth times a thousandth degree. Uh, just insanely decompressed. But um, those were fun to revisit and re-listen to. It's funny, out of all the stuff that, uh, you know, the thousands of hours Reggie and I recorded together uh, talking about comics and stuff, uh, the stuff that I'll, that I find myself revisiting or wanting to revisit Outside of comics talk, which are just very, very special episodes to me, uh, are things like the gatherums because they're just so weird. And it wasn't often where he and I would go off script and uh, just kind of react and just be frustrated with how bad a book is. Because, I mean, we chose some books that we didn't like for the Cosmic Treadmill, like, you know, Superman Grounded jumps out immediately as a book that we both just despised. But. We had control over that. We chose that book because we wanted to cover it and, and explain why it, why it was what it was. With things like Young Animal and Sandman, we were given a job, basically. It's like, here, talk about this book. Good, bad, and different. This is the book to talk about. So we were kind of trapped in, in the best way possible, is what I'm trying to get at. Because sometimes these books would make us very very happy sometimes they would just really really get under our skin and we would just get so angry i don't i don't try try not to curse too much on this channel um and i think it was during young animal episodes toward the end of the run were the only couple of times that i dropped an f-bomb on on this channel because we were just so done with that line outside of maybe the mother panic book I, we both like that one at the end but everything else was just like okay let's get this thing done so those are the ones that i find myself really wanting to revisit uh whenever i would get around to revisiting episodes uh, uh before before reggie passed i would re-listen to those um every now and again but uh i haven't i haven't since but maybe one of these days i'll have to get back into that as well uh andrew wraps up with that's all I've got to say for now, so until I die and resurrect for the umpteenth time, make mine X-lapsed. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts there, Andrew, and thank you for the kind words about the Sandman gatherums here. I, I never know if people are going to listen to that stuff. Um, and a lot of those, I mean, like I said, they're, they're very special. Uh, a lot of the... A lot of the unfinished business episodes that I've put up since May uh, have been... They've been hard to do, and, and they've been hard to kind of promote because, I don't know, it's, it's, I feel weird promoting them. I feel weird trying to, you know, get hits, and it's uh, it's nice when, when folks do listen to them and, and enjoy them and, uh, and are able to remember things. So thank you so much for that. It really means a lot. But uh, I think that's where we'll leave it for today. If anyone out there would like to get a hold of me, you can do so very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. There's also the dedicated X-Lapsed page, which now includes major X-Lapsed, over at xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarth.com. You could join us on Facebook and talk about whatever the hell you want. 90s X-Men is the group. 
and you can hear the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives, including The Gatherums, Young Animals, Sandman, uh, Comics Talk is another good one there. Uh, that is chrisandreggie.podbean.com. But that's where we'll leave it for today. Just one giant thank you for everyone sharing their time and listening and just hanging out on this little trip through the Dawn of X uh, landscape with your pal Chris. So thank you all so, so much. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 99 of X Lapsed. That's right, we're just on the precipice of the triple digits here. How about that? Today, we're talking about an issue of New Mutants, which every time I look at this cover, I feel like we're reading a, like a Marvel Now era book because it's got this red bar at the bottom of the cover where all those Marvel Now books had that awful red bar at the bottom. Thankfully, now that it's red, it's just going to go into a long box, and I don't have to look at it anymore because it's. It reminds me of times that I wasn't uh, wasn't too terribly keen on. But let's get into it here. This is an issue that we've been building to for a little while. This is the big docs payoff, which, for whatever reason, I uh, was really looking forward to. Let's see if uh, if my hopes were dashed or if uh, my hopes were validated, shall we? Uh, this is New Mutants, Volume Four, Number Twelve. It's had a November 2020 cover date. Stories called Monster Machine, written by Ed Brisson, with art by Marco Faila, or Faila, one of those. Colors, Carlos Lopez, letters, VCs, Travis Lanham, designs, Tom Muller, head of X's Hickman. Edits, Bisa White-Sabolski, cover price $3.99, went on sale September 2nd of 2020. And in saying that, it makes me realize that we, we are finally... Up to a point in the Dawn of X book releases here where I'd already started this program. You know, the first episode of X Lapsed hit on September 1st. This issue came out September 2nd. So we're already in business at this point. I, mean, I can't believe it took us about 100 episodes just to get to the point where we would have been current, but here we be. Anyway, let's open this thing up. 
we open in Nova Roma, which is a place I was hoping we wouldn't be heading back to anytime soon. We got a couple of fellas running like hell, and we get a look behind them to see exactly what they're running from. And it's those beasts that Armor and Boom Boom fought a few issues back, along with their keeper, that, that woman with the blonde hair, who we also met a few issues back. She was unhappy that uh, Boom Boom, Armor, and Magma managed to kill one of her beasts. And uh, here we see that she's exacting revenge. Let's do a roll call. Magic, Trinary, or Trinary, Mirage, and Glob. Then our double page spread of creds. Back to comics, and we are back to Krakoa, the Green Lagoon to be specific, because, as you know, this is a Dawn of X book, and we can't have a Dawn of X book without people drinking. Man, isn't high school fun? I can't wait for spring break. Anyway, Magic is here, and she's met by Trinary, Trinary, who I don't think we've seen since way back in Excalibur number one. And uh, from the feedback I'd received during that episode, very few of us knew who she was even back then. Well, here she is again. Turns out, Magic had tasked her with tracking down our favorite internet news rag, Docs. And we get a little bit of gobbledygook about how Docs uses IP address hiding technology, but thankfully, Trinary Trinary is a technopath. So she was able to find them with the quickness. She hands over a thumb drive with all the deets. From here, we don't go to an info page. We go to a Docs page. And what we see is a rundown of Krakoa Gate comings and goings, as reported by our friends at Docs. It's pretty dry stuff, pretty boring stuff, but, you know, even the boring stuff needs covering. See also our six-episode series on Fallen Angels. Magic, Danny Moonstar, and Glob Herman emerge from a gateway in Columbus, Ohio, right in front of the building that Docs operates out of. Now, Magic... She's as mad as a hornet, and has to be reminded of that pesky kill-no-human law. To which, Magic suggests that she could just hurt these people to the point where death would be the lesser punishment. And I'm not sure that's exactly what the Quiet Council had in mind, but technically I guess she's free to do that. Now inside the building, a bunch of douchebags notice the mutants heading their way. The lead douchebag instructs everyone to get out their phones and start recording, which... Yeah, I guess I could see a bunch of douchebags doing. What I'm trying to say is here, uh, these folks are douchebags, you see. Now, Magic kicks in the door to their office and doesn't even mind that they're filming her. In fact, she kind of prefers it that way. Now, she holds her sword up to the lead douchebag's throat while Danny commandeers a laptop from one of the reporters. Suddenly, pictures of innocent mutants who had died as a result of Dox's actions show up on their screens. This is to show that there's a difference between... You know, mild-mannered reporting and doxing, you know. Now, what dox does is, as we know, they name names, post addresses, show images, they out people, right? Which is a giant step past simple reporting of news. I do wonder how long these innocent mutants were dead, though. It seems a little weird that these deaths seem to matter when Quentin Quire dies every four and a half pages and all we really do about it is laugh. Eh, maybe we'll talk about that later. The lead douchebag tries to flip the script a little bit here and talks about how mutants, via their new status quo and the miracle drugs, they're now using human lives as bargaining chips, and Docs is just returning the favor. Which is a slippery slope argument, and uh, one that'll take us out of the confines of the fantastical Marvel universe 
Maybe we'll talk about that later, too. Now, the douche presses that this is a First Amendment issue, and that mutants are not above criticism. Also, Docs doesn't incite violence. It, you know, maybe gives a facilitatory nudge, but it never outright says, go kill mutants. Well, since we're, you know, dealing with a lot of technicalities today, I suppose he's kind of right. Uh, it's not like they're that support group hanging out with Wolverine over at the, over at the Red Whatever Tavern in, in Canada. Danny then reports that she'd, quote, updated Dox's system. And I mean, I, I'm no technopath. Hell, I can hardly navigate my own podcast and blog feed without feeling like I'm breaking something. But I'm not sure what's about to happen can, you know, actually happen. You see, via this thumb drive, uh, I'm assuming it's the one that Trinary, Trinary handed over, anytime Docs publishes anything, the news item will be accompanied by the full name and address of the reporter. Okay, uh, I, I mean, is that something that can be policed via a thumb drive? Can't Docs just change their usernames or, or like, bug out to a different location or go remote? Uh... This feels a little too neat and tidy, and maybe I'm thinking about it too hard here. Like I said, I'm not a technopath. I don't know anything. Now, the lead douche in charge is all, Okay, okay, you've won today, but it's not over yet. Then he promises to crucify the mutants, which prompts gentle Glob Herman to walk over and punch the dude in the face. Glob proceeds to pummel the hell out of the guy while threatening to actually kill him, like end his life. Now, if there's a single mutant death as a result of Docs from this point on, Glob promises to return to kill the guy. He doesn't care if that means that he'll spend the rest of his days in prison, he'll still kill this guy. Now, Magic gets him to settle his tea kettle, and they leave. Not an info page, but a Docs page follows, and, uh-oh, Docs is down for maintenance. So, mission accomplished. Back to Nova Roma. The place is absolutely decimated, Everybody's dead. Well, almost everybody. Amara's father has been left alive to tell the tale, basically. He's been spared by the Monster Keeper lady who wants the deets on who killed her monster babies a few issues back. And he refuses to say. And so, she cuts him open and lets this wriggly, caterpillar Pokemon-looking thing into his belly. And this thing is a parasite, which will not kill him. It'll actually keep him alive, but will keep him in horrible pain, so... Maybe he'll be talking sooner than later. From here, we jump back to the sextant. Magic and Glob chat about their visit to Ohio. We learn quite a bit about Glob here, which may or may not be all new information. I am not a Glob scholar. Uh, we find out that he was raised to hate mutants by his ignorant father, who, when Glob himself turned out to be a mutant, well, Glob became a target of Daddy's ire. Glob's mom would drop him off at Xavier's, where Glob would live surrounded by all those mutants that he was raised to hate. And so he grew more and more conflicted, more and more angry, before realizing he just had to let everything go and make peace. He managed to be more peaceful, more gentle. You know, he's got his chicken coop. He's a, he's a peaceful dude. But seeing those docks bags was too much for him, and it triggered those angry feelings all over again. Magic tells him it's okay to be angry, and he shouldn't be so hard on himself. After all, he likely saved a whole lot of lives today. And that is that. Next episode, the hundredth episode. I wish it were an issue I were looking forward to, but we play the hand we're dealt, and the hand we're dealt is Wolverine number five. 
Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. But first, let's talk about this issue. New Mutants number 12 here, the one I've been looking forward to. The big docs versus New Mutants deal. It wasn't everything I was hoping it would be. Um, in hindsight, I mean, I'm not sure why. I was really getting into the idea of a Docs vs. X-Men storyline. Um, the X-Men, as it stands currently, are they're far too powerful. I mean, there really are no threats. Granted, I haven't taken a single peek at X of Tens yet, so that may be all about the change. But as far as the Dawn of X books are concerned to this point... There's really nothing that can stop the X-Men. You know, the death can't stop them. There's no threats besides nameless Russian soldiers. I mean, there's just nothing really posing a threat. So having something like Docs, this invisible organization just needling the mutants via passive-aggressive concern trolling, it felt like it could have led to some interesting stories. I feel like Docs could have been a very fun foil. And I mean, jury's still out. They can always come back. But they were not a fun foil here, and this was not an interesting story. Now, let's address that slippery slope I talked about during the synopsis here. And it's something that we've talked about a little bit before. We've touched on it, at least. Even going back as far as Professor X's psychic address during the latter chapters of Hoxpox. And to start, I mean, it's easy to look at these stories as... Well, just that. Stories, right? The X-Men, they're heroes, right? Constantly saving a world that fears and hates them. I mean, we know that. That's X-Men 101, right? As readers, we view them as misunderstood and almost like Sisyphean altruists, right? Because we're supposed to. We see the entire picture. We're in their heads. You know, we know what... We know that they're well-meaning. We know what their goals are. We know about the dream of uh, human-mutant coexistence. We know all that stuff. Let's remove that, though. Let's try and put ourselves into the shoes of a 616 citizen, right? If we were living in a world where folks like Magneto and Apocalypse were making decisions that could affect everyone and everything, would we be 100% against an organization like Docs keeping an eye on them? And I'm not promoting doxing or saying doxing is a good thing to do, but let's put ourselves into this fantastical universe here. Magneto and Apocalypse, they've they've held this planet hostage time before, you know? It seems... I don't know. It seems like the X-Men are expecting everyone to forget some of these things. Hell, let's take Magneto and Apocalypse out of it, okay? If there were super-powered, like, white-bred heroes, people who have never done anything villainous... But superpowered people dictating foreign policy, would you sleep easy every night? I mean, right now we've got complete clowns dictating foreign policy in the real world here. Could you imagine if they had superpowers? You know, it's, it's hard to hold fears against the humans sometimes if we put ourselves in their shoes. And it's not an easy thing to do. They live in a scary place during a very scary time. People do some stuff when they're scared. Now, I get that the mutants are fed up with being marginalized and and targeted and hated. But it's almost as though they've forgotten how to empathize. And again, not saying that doxing is ever right. Um, Only saying that the dox organization is a reaction to the new status quo. The X-Men used to get a lot of criticism back in the day. Um, And this is like a meta-level thing. 
in the books and out of the books, people would say that the X-Men just waited for bad things to happen to them. They were reactive, which is why when Cable came in and made X-Force the proactive team for like five minutes, it was a novelty, right? The X-Men were a reactive team. They're the ones that you'd see sitting down to breakfast and then a sentinel would crash through the wall. They were always reacting to things here. Now we have Docs who are, they're kind of in that old X-Men role of being reactive. Though I'm sure any parallels between the two are either unintentional or just something I imagined. But just to say, this is a weird one to knowing what we know and knowing what the humans in this world are supposed to know. It's hard to reconcile in my head, right? Let's talk about the other sticking point for this issue. Mutant deaths as a result of docs. We're 99 episodes into this project, and for the past, what, 90, 91, 92 of them, we've been trained to think mutant death ain't no thing, right? Mutant death has very much become a punchline, an inconvenience at worst. We've been shown and told as much, sometimes repeatedly. I I mean, I don't need to mention the excessive and repetitive body count over an X-Force, right? I mean, to that, it's, it's a cliche in that book at this point. So then why should we feel any sort of loss here? I get that these weren't combat mutants, but if Xavier has backups of every living mutant, then there's really not much to get tangled up in here, right? Perhaps it'd be better to show Doc some humans who were killed as a result of their actions. I mean, Beak's folks, Beak's parents, humans who died. Even the cartel guys. They're not good guys, but they're humans who died as a result of what Docs did. I mean, they could have made up anybody. They made up three mutants here. Why not make up three humans? It really doesn't matter. Now, I am being sort of kind of purposely obtuse here, because I know the point they're trying to make, and I'm purposely missing it. But I feel like this is a case of eating the cake and having it too. You can't spend a hundred issues and thousands of pages telling us how little mutant deaths matter and then expect us to pivot on a dime in a sort of kind of throwaway story and start caring again. Definitely, you know, eating the cake, having it too. Um, I don't know, but then again, I mean, we know everything because we are the readers. We ha- we know the ins and outs of this universe in, in as far as what they've shown us. So maybe these docs people, maybe they don't know a whole lot about the resurrection protocols. Maybe they don't know much you know, I mean, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna point out the ignorance of six one six citizens in one, I gotta take it in the other as well. I can't I can't pick and choose my my talking points here. But as a reader, it's it's kind of hard to reconcile it for me personally. Um, the Nova Roma stuff, still don't care. Still don't care about Nova Roma. I don't want to go back to Nova Roma, but we will. I guess we will. Um, these uh, beasts, uh, you know, I, I mentioned the nameless, faceless Russian soldiers a little bit ago. And these, you know, amorphous quadpedal beasts and some woman, uh, you know, all, all the ma- all the good bad guys are part of the X-Men now, or they're living on Krakoa now, so you gotta, you gotta start somewhere, and I guess this is what we're gonna do. So we have these monsters of some sort. We need bad guys. Okay, fair enough. I I still just don't care about them. Uh, 
Uh, the art here, not my favorite. Certainly not my favorite art here. It was, you know, it's serviceable, but not my favorite kind of art. But uh, overall, a bit of a letdown for me. But uh, then again, I had this one on the pedestal, you know. I was looking forward to seeing this confrontation. I was expecting it to be the start of something and not the end of something. The jury's still out, though, like I said here. Maybe Docs will come back bigger and badder than ever, and maybe a little less douchey than ever. Maybe they won't. Maybe this was what we were building to, just getting it out of the way for uh, X-Attends to kick off uh, next month, you know. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, not my favorite issue, but uh, maybe your mileage will vary. That's my discussion on New Mutants number 12. Now let's hop into the mailbag here. It's going to be a brief mailbag here, and since we are in the middle of January at this point, I figure let's burn through these Christmas uh, missives here. I got a, We got a, a Damien double take here, talking about the final two episodes of Merry X Lapsed, just to kind of get them off the plate here. We are, we are getting into the new year, so... Damien mentions about X-Men Volume 2, number 109. This was Chris Claremont's last issue of his second go-around. Now, Damien says, Back to the issues I've never read before. I don't feel I missed out on much by not having read it. Claremont was really working his way down a list of things he had to resolve. Even the art is below par. I usually like Tom Derenick, but this looked very rushed. And it's true. It's true. This felt like an afterthought. Uh, It felt... Because Tom Derenick, he's... He's a great artist Um, I want to say I probably associate him more with DC stuff Though I might be conflating him with someone else But I really, I don't ever consider his work disappointing or underwhelming In this issue it kind of was In this issue it was It looked like he didn't have enough time to work on it It was very, very bizarre And definitely, as we talked about during that episode Claremont definitely had a list (laughs) of things that he was he had his dangling plot threads, and I think I mentioned that it felt like he he called Louise Simonson, asked her to read everything he wrote, and then write down every single new dangling plot thread so he can wrap it up in a single issue. Because it's kind of what he did, and it wasn't very good. Next, Damien's going to talk about Generation X number four, which was uh, the Christmas Day episode here. He says, I've always loved this comic, but on rereading it, it's really depressing for a Christmas story. I know Christmas can be a tough time, but this issue is very sad. The art by Bachalo and Buckingham was absolutely stunning. Generation X was the best X book whenever the original creative team was on it. Sadly, it's a relatively short space of time. And he's 100% right here. When Lobdell and Bachalo and uh, Buckingham were were just kicking it on, on Generation X, it was such a good book. Such a good book. And this one, this issue... The most Christmassy thing about it is the uh, is the trappings. You know, it happened during well somewhere around Christmas. We don't know when it was, but Jubilee was wearing a Santa hat, so it's got to be unless she was doing it to be ironic. But I don't think being ironic was really in style back in the early, you know, early mid '90s. But she was wearing a Santa hat. Monet was eating a candy cane, so we can assume it was Christmas time. Every single page had was gift wrapped and had uh, little elves on the. Uh, on the uh, in the gutters, you know, making little comments, holding little signs, telling you the direction to read the book. The cover said it was a holiday spectacular, and uh, I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been uh, might have been Jesse DeJong or uh, or Andrew Franklin who said that this issue is the uh, is like the diehard of uh, of X Men Christmas stories because it took place on Christmas but isn't really Christmassy, but you can remember it as a Christmassy thing, you know, and I. I 
I know there's a debate on whether or not Die Hard's a Christmas movie. I've never seen it. I'm sure that's a surprise to nobody. But I'm I'm cool either way. <laughs> you want to label anything Christmassy? I'm I'm on board for it. I will uh, appreciate it for what it is. But uh, definitely, this was a this was a depressing story, a really depressing story. And uh, but definitely straight out of my wheelhouse and took me back to a time where I was very very excited for uh, for the Xboxes and. We were right on the on the precipice of the Age of Apocalypse at this point. Uh, we had the little crystalline ending with the Emcron crystal uh, doing its doing its hoodoo, and it just takes me back to being you know 13, 14 years old and trudging up to the comic store three or four times a week because I never knew what day the comics came out, even though I'm sure the guy told us every single time we were there. But we always look for excuses to go up there anyway. But yeah, good times, very good times. Um, and I was happy to cover it for the uh, for the Christmas special. But thank you so, so much, Damien, for uh, listening to the Merry X-Lapsed episodes and for sharing your thoughts as well. I think that's where we're going to leave it for today. Uh, if anybody would like to reach out and get a hold of me, you could do so a couple different ways. I'm Ace Comics on Twitter or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. And, uh, I mean, this is the 99th episode. If anyone would like to send me a note to make me feel less foolish about spending... Hundreds of hours working on this project over the past several months uh, for the hundredth episode. Please feel free to do so. That is Ace Comics on Twitter and Weird Comics History at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfiniteearths.com and xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can chat with us about whatever you want over on 90s X Men on Facebook, and you can listen to the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. That's where we'll leave it for today, our last double-digit episode of X-Lapsed. Again, if you'd like to make me feel really good about the 100th one, send me a note. Send me a note. Ace Comics on Twitter, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. This isn't considered begging, is it? Uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> I want to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me this fine day. And as always, I will talk to you all again real soon. See ya. See ya.